Chapter 17 Indirect Exchange 1. Media of Exchange and Money Interpersonal exchange is called indirect exchange if, between the commodities and services the reciprocal exchange of which is the ultimate end of exchanging, one or several media of exchange are interposed. The subject matter of the theory of indirect exchange is the study of the ratios of exchange between the media of exchange on the one hand and the goods and services of all orders on the other hand. The statements of the theory of indirect exchange refer to all instances of indirect exchange and to all things which are employed as media of exchange. A medium of exchange which is commonly used as such is called money. The notion of money is vague, as its definition refers to the vague term commonly used. There are borderline cases in which it cannot be decided whether a medium of exchange is or is not commonly used and should be called money. But this vagueness in the denotation of money in no way affects the exactitude and precision required by praxeological theory. For all that is to be predicated of money is valid for every medium of exchange. It is therefore immaterial whether one preserves the traditional term theory of money or substitutes for it another term. The theory of money was and is always the theory of indirect exchange and of the media of exchange. The theory of monetary calculation does not belong to the theory of indirect exchange. It is a part of the general theory of praxeology. 2. Observations on some widespread errors the fateful errors of popular monetary doctrines which have led astray the monetary policies of almost all governments would hardly have come into existence if many economists had not themselves committed blunders in dealing with monetary issues and did not stubbornly cling to them. There is, first of all, the spurious idea of the supposed neutrality of money. An outgrowth of this doctrine was the notion of the level of prices that rises or falls proportionately with the increase or decrease in the quantity of money in circulation. It was not realized that changes in the quantity of money can never affect the prices of all goods and services at the same time and to the same extent. Nor was it realized that changes in the purchasing power of the monetary unit are necessarily linked with changes in the mutual relations between those buying and selling. In order to prove the doctrine that the quantity of money and prices rise and fall proportionately, recourse was had in dealing with the theory of money to a procedure entirely different from that modern economics applies in dealing with all its other problems. Instead of starting from the actions of individuals, as catalactics must do without exception, formulas were constructed designed to comprehend the whole of the market economy. Elements of these formulas were the total supply of money available in the Volkswirtschaft, the volume of trade, that is, the money equivalent of all transfers of commodities and services as effected in the Volkswirtschaft, 
the average velocity of circulation of the monetary units, the level of prices. These formulas seemingly provided evidence of the correctness of the price-level doctrine. In fact, however, this whole mode of reasoning is a typical case of arguing in a circle, for the equation of exchange already involves the level doctrines which it tries to prove. It is essentially nothing but a mathematical expression of the untenable doctrine that there is proportionality in the movements of the quantity of money and of prices. In analyzing the equation of exchange, one assumes that one of its elements, total supply of money, volume of trade, velocity of circulation, changes, without asking how such changes occur. It is not recognized that changes in these magnitudes do not emerge in the Volkswirtschaft as such, but in the individual actor's conditions, and that it is the interplay of the reactions of these actors that results in alterations of the price structure. The mathematical economists refuse to start from the various individuals' demand for and supply of money, they introduce instead the spurious notion of velocity of circulation fashioned according to the patterns of mechanics. There is at this point of our reasoning no need to deal with the question of whether or not the mathematical economists are right in assuming that the services rendered by money consist wholly or essentially in its turnover, in its circulation. Even if this were true, it would still be faulty to explain the purchasing power, the price of the monetary unit, on the basis of its services. The services rendered by water, whiskey, and coffee do not explain the prices paid for these things. What they explain is only why people, as far as they recognize these services, under certain further conditions demand definite quantities of these things. It is always demand that influences the price structure, not the objective value in use. It is true that with regard to money the task of catalactics is broader than with regard to vendable goods. It is not the task of catalactics, but of psychology and physiology, to explain why people are intent on securing the services which the various vendable commodities can render. It is a task of catalactics, however, to deal with this question with regard to money. Catalactics alone can tell us what advantages a man expects from holding money. But it is not these expected advantages which determine the purchasing power of money. The eagerness to secure these advantages is only one of the factors in bringing about the demand for money. It is demand a subjective element whose intensity is entirely determined by value judgments and not any objective fact, any power to bring about a certain effect, that plays a role in the formation of the market's exchange ratios. The deficiency of the equation of exchange and its basic elements is that they look at market phenomena from a holistic point of view, they are deluded by their prepossession with the Volkswirtschaft notion. But where there is, in the strict sense of the term, a Volkswirtschaft, there is neither a market, nor prices and money. 
On a market, there are only individuals or groups of individuals acting in concert. What motivates these actors is their own concerns, not those of the whole market economy. If there is any sense in such notions as volume of trade and velocity of circulation, then they refer to the resultant of the individual's actions. It is not permissible to resort to these notions in order to explain the actions of the individuals. The first question that catalactics must raise with regard to changes in the total quantity of money available in the market system is how such changes affect the various individuals' conduct. Modern economics does not ask what iron or bread is worth, but what a definite piece of iron or of bread is worth to an acting individual at a definite date and a definite place. It cannot help proceeding in the same way with regard to money. The equation of exchange is incompatible with the fundamental principles of economic thought. It is a relapse to the thinking of ages in which people failed to comprehend praxeological phenomena because they were committed to holistic notions. It is sterile, as were the speculations of earlier ages concerning the value of iron and bread in general. The theory of money is an essential part of the catalactic theory. It must be dealt with in the same manner which is applied to all other catalactic problems. 3. Demand for Money and Supply of Money In the marketability of the various commodities and services, there prevail considerable differences. There are goods for which it is not difficult to find applicants ready to disperse the highest recompense which, under the given state of affairs, can possibly be obtained, or a recompense only slightly smaller. There are other goods for which it is very hard to find a customer quickly, even if the vendor is ready to be content with a compensation much smaller than he could reap if he could find another aspirant whose demand is more intense. It is these differences in the marketability of the various commodities and services which created indirect exchange. A man who, at the instant, cannot acquire what he wants to get for the conduct of his own household or business, or who does not yet know what kind of goods he will need in the uncertain future, comes nearer to his ultimate goal if he exchanges a less marketable good he wants to trade against a more marketable one. It may also happen that the physical properties of the merchandise he wants to give away, as, for instance, its perishability or the costs incurred by its storage or similar circumstances, impel him not to wait longer. Sometimes he may be prompted to hurry in giving away the good, concerned because he is afraid of a deterioration of its market value. In all such cases he improves his own situation in acquiring a more marketable good, even if this good is not suitable to satisfy directly any of his own needs. A medium of exchange is a good which people acquire neither for their own consumption nor for employment in their own production activities, but with the intention of exchanging it at a later date against those goods which they want to use, either for consumption or for production. Money is a medium of exchange. 
It is the most marketable good which people acquire because they want to offer it in later acts of interpersonal exchange. Money is the thing which serves as the generally accepted and commonly used medium of exchange. This is its only function. All the other functions which people ascribe to money are merely particular aspects of its primary and sole function, that of a medium of exchange. Media of exchange are economic goods. They are scarce. There is a demand for them. There are on the market people who desire to acquire them and are ready to exchange goods and services against them. Media of exchange have value in exchange. People make sacrifices for their acquisition. They pay prices for them. The peculiarity of these prices lies merely in the fact that they cannot be expressed in terms of money. In reference to the vendable goods and services, we speak of prices or of money prices. In reference to money, we speak of its purchasing power with regard to various vendable goods. There exists a demand for media of exchange because people want to keep a store of them. Every member of a market society wants to have a definite amount of money in his pocket or box, a cash holding or cash balance of a definite height. Sometimes he wants to keep a larger cash holding sometimes a smaller. In exceptional cases, he may even renounce any cash holding. At any rate, the immense majority of people aim not only to own various vendable goods, they want no less to hold money. Their cash holding is not merely a residuum, an unspent margin of their wealth. It is not an unintentional remainder left over after all intentional acts of buying and selling have been consummated. Its amount is determined by a deliberate demand for cash. And as with all other goods, it is the changes in the relation between demand for and supply of money that bring about changes in the exchange ratio between money and the vendable goods. Every piece of money is owned by one of the members of the market economy. The transfer of money from the control of one actor into that of another is temporally immediate and continuous. There is no fraction of time in between in which the money is not a part of an individual's or a firm's cash holding, but just in circulation. Money can be in the process of transportation, it can travel in trains, ships, or planes from one place to another, but it is, in this case too, always subject to somebody's control. It is unsound to distinguish between circulating and idle money. It is no less faulty to distinguish between circulating money and hoarded money. What is called hoarding is a height of cash holding which, according to the personal opinion of an observer, exceeds what is deemed normal and adequate. However, hoarding is cash holding. Hoarded money is still money, and it serves in the hoards the same purposes which it serves in cash holdings called normal. He who hoards money believes that some special conditions make it expedient to accumulate a cash holding which exceeds the amount he himself would keep under different conditions, 
or other people keep, or an economist censuring his action considers appropriate. That he acts in this way influences the configuration of the demand for money in the same way in which every normal demand influences it. Many economists avoid applying the terms demand and supply in the sense of demand for and supply of money for cash holding, because they fear a confusion with the current terminology as used by the bankers. It is, in fact, customary to call demand for money the demand for short-term loans, and supply of money the supply of such loans. Accordingly, one calls the market for short-term loans the money market. One says money is scarce if there prevails a tendency toward a rise in the rate of interest for short-term loans, and one says money is plentiful if the rate of interest for such loans is decreasing. These modes of speech are so firmly entrenched that it is out of the question to venture to discard them. But they have favored the spread of fateful errors. They made people confound the notions of money and of capital, and believe that increasing the quantity of money could lower the rate of interest lastingly. But it is precisely the crassness of these errors which makes it unlikely that the terminology suggested could create any misunderstanding. It is hard to assume that economists could err with regard to such fundamental issues. Others maintain that one should not speak of the demand for and supply of money because the aims of those demanding money differ from the aims of those demanding vendable commodities. Commodities, they say, are demanded ultimately for consumption, while money is demanded in order to be given away in further acts of exchange. This objection is no less invalid. The use which people make of a medium of exchange consists eventually in its being given away. But first of all, they are eager to accumulate a certain amount of it in order to be ready for the moment in which a purchase may be accomplished. Precisely because people do not want to provide for their own needs right at the instant at which they give away the goods and services they themselves bring to the market, precisely because they want to wait, or are forced to wait, until propitious conditions for buying appear, they barter not directly but indirectly through the interposition of a medium of exchange. The fact that money is not worn out by the use one makes of it, and that it can render its services practically for an unlimited length of time, is an important factor in the configuration of its supply. But it does not alter the fact that the appraisement of money is to be explained in the same way as the appraisement of all other goods, by the demand on the part of those who are eager to acquire a definite quantity of it. Economists have tried to enumerate the factors which, within the whole economic system, may increase or decrease the demand for money. Such factors are the population figure, the extent to which the individual households provide for their own needs by autarkic production, and the extent to which they produce for other people's needs, selling their products and buying for their own consumption on the market. 
the distribution of business activity, and the settlement of payments over the various seasons of the year, institutions for the settlement of claims and counterclaims by mutual cancellation, such as clearinghouses. All these factors indeed influence the demand for money and the height of the various individuals and firms' cash holding, but they influence them only indirectly by the role they play in the considerations of people concerning the determination of the amount of cash balances they deem appropriate. What decides the matter is always the value judgments of the men concerned. The various actors make up their minds about what they believe the adequate height of their cash holding should be. They carry out their resolution by renouncing the purchase of commodities, securities, and interest-bearing claims, and by selling such assets, or conversely by increasing their purchases. With money, things are not different from what they are with regard to all other goods and services. The demand for money is determined by the conduct of people intent upon acquiring it for their cash holding. Another objection raised against the notion of the demand for money was this. The marginal utility of the money unit decreases much more slowly than that of the other commodities. In fact, its decrease is so slow that it can be practically ignored. With regard to money, nobody ever says that his demand is satisfied, and nobody ever forsakes an opportunity to acquire more money, provided the sacrifice required is not too great. It is, therefore, impermissible to consider the demand for money as limited. The very notion of an unlimited demand is, however, contradictory. This popular reasoning is entirely fallacious. It confounds the demand for money, for cash holding, with the desire for more wealth as expressed in terms of money. He who says that his thirst for more money can never be quenched does not mean to say that his cash holding can never be too large. What he really means is that he can never be rich enough. If additional money flows into his hands, he will not use it for an increase of his cash balance, or he will use only a part of it for this purpose. He will expend the surplus either for instantaneous consumption or for investment. Nobody ever keeps more money than he wants to have as cash holding. The insight that the exchange ratio between money on the one hand and the vendable commodities and services on the other hand is determined in the same way as the mutual exchange ratios between the various vendable goods, by demand and supply, was the essence of the quantity theory of money. This theory is essentially an application of the general theory of supply and demand to the special instance of money. Its merit was the endeavor to explain the determination of money's purchasing power by resorting to the same reasoning which is employed for the explanation of all other exchange ratios. Its shortcoming was that it resorted to a holistic interpretation— it looked at the total supply of money in the Volkswirtschaft, and not at the actions of the individual men and firms. 
An outgrowth of this erroneous point of view was the idea that there prevails a proportionality in the changes of the total quantity of money and of money prices. But the older critics failed in their attempts to explode the errors inherent in the quantity theory, and to substitute a more satisfactory theory for it. They did not fight what was wrong in the quantity theory. They attacked, on the contrary, its nucleus of truth. They were intent upon denying that there is a causal relation between the movements of prices and those of the quantity of money. This denial led them into a labyrinth of errors, contradictions, and nonsense. Modern monetary theory takes up the thread of the traditional quantity theory as far as it starts from the cognition that changes in the purchasing power of money must be dealt with according to the principles applied to all other market phenomena, and that there exists a connection between the changes in the demand for and supply of money on the one hand, and those of purchasing power on the other. In this sense, one may call the modern theory of money an improved variety of the quantity theory. The Epistemological Import of Karl Menger's Theory of the Origin of Money Karl Menger has not only provided an irrefutable praxeological theory of the origin of money, he has also recognized the import of his theory for the elucidation of fundamental principles of praxeology and its methods of research. There were authors who tried to explain the origin of money by decree or covenant. The authority, the state, or a compact between citizens has purposively and consciously established indirect exchange and money. The main deficiency of this doctrine is not to be seen in the assumption that people of an age unfamiliar with indirect exchange and money could design a plan of a new economic order entirely different from the real conditions of their own age, and could comprehend the importance of such a plan. Neither is it to be seen in the fact that history does not afford a clue for the support of such statements there are more substantial reasons for rejecting it. If it is assumed that the conditions of the parties concerned are improved by every step that leads from direct exchange to indirect exchange, and subsequently to giving preference for use as a medium of exchange to certain goods distinguished by their especially high marketability, it is difficult to conceive why one should, in dealing with the origin of indirect exchange, resort in addition to authoritarian decree or an explicit compact between citizens. A man who finds it hard to obtain in direct barter what he wants to acquire renders better his chances to acquire what he is asking for in later acts of exchange by the procurement of a more marketable good. Under these circumstances there was no need of government interference or of a compact between the citizens. The happy idea of proceeding in this way could strike the shrewdest individuals, and the less resourceful could imitate the former's method. 
it is certainly more plausible to take for granted that the immediate advantages conferred by indirect exchange were recognized by the acting parties than to assume that the whole image of a society trading by means of money was conceived by a genius, and if we adopt the covenant doctrine made obvious to the rest of the people by persuasion. If, however, we do not assume that individuals discovered the fact that they fare better through indirect exchange than through waiting for an opportunity for direct exchange, and, for the sake of argument, admit that the authorities or a compact introduced money, further questions are raised. We must ask what kind of measures were applied in order to induce people to adopt a procedure the utility of which they did not comprehend, and which was technically more complicated than direct exchange. We may assume that compulsion was practiced. But then we must ask, further, at what time and by what occurrences indirect exchange and the use of money later cease to be procedures troublesome or at least indifferent to the individuals concerned, and became advantageous to them. The praxeological method traces all phenomena back to the actions of individuals. If conditions of interpersonal exchange are such that indirect exchange facilitates the transactions, and if and as far as people realize these advantages, indirect exchange and money come into being. Historical experience shows that these conditions were and are present. How, in the absence of these conditions, people could have adopted indirect exchange and money and clung to these modes of exchanging is inconceivable. The historical question concerning the origin of indirect exchange and money is, after all, of no concern to praxeology. The only relevant thing is that indirect exchange and money exist because the conditions for their existence were and are present. If this is so, praxeology does not need to resort to the hypothesis that authoritarian decree or a covenant invented these modes of exchanging. The etatists may, if they like, continue to ascribe the invention of money to the state however unlikely this may be. What matters is that a man acquires a good not in order to consume it or to use it in production, but in order to give it away in a further act of exchange. Such conduct on the part of people makes a good a medium of exchange, and if such conduct becomes common with regard to a certain good, makes it money. All theorems of the catalactic theory of media of exchange and of money refer to the services which a good renders in its capacity as a medium of exchange. Even if it were true that the impulse for the introduction of indirect exchange and money was provided by the authorities or by an agreement between the members of society, the statement remains unshaken that only the conduct of exchanging people can create indirect exchange and money. History may tell us where and when for the first time media of exchange came into use and how, subsequently, the range of goods employed for this purpose was more and more restricted. 
as the differentiation between the broader notion of a medium of exchange and the narrower notion of money is not sharp, but gradual. No agreement can be reached about the historical transition from simple media of exchange to money. This is a matter of historical understanding. But, as has been mentioned, the distinction between direct exchange and indirect exchange is sharp and everything that catalactics establishes with regard to media of exchange refers categorially to all goods which are demanded and acquired as such media. As far as the statement that indirect exchange and money were established by decree or by covenant is meant to be an account of historical events, it is the task of historians to expose its falsity. As far as it is advanced merely as a historical statement, it can in no way affect the catalactic theory of money and its explanation of the evolution of indirect exchange. But if it is designed as a statement about human action and social events, it is useless, because it states nothing about action. It is not a statement about human action to declare that one day rulers or citizens assembled in convention were suddenly struck by the inspiration that it would be a good idea to exchange indirectly and through the intermediary of a commonly used medium of exchange. It is merely pushing back the problem involved. It is necessary to comprehend that one does not contribute anything to the scientific conception of human actions and social phenomena if one declares that the state, or a charismatic leader, or an inspiration which descended upon all the people, have created them. Neither do such statements refute the teachings of a theory showing how such phenomena can be acknowledged as the unintentional outcome, the resultant not deliberately designed and aimed at by specifically individual endeavors of the members of a society. 4. The Determination of the Purchasing Power of Money as soon as an economic good is demanded not only by those who want to use it for consumption or production, but also by people who want to keep it as a medium of exchange and to give it away at need in a later active exchange, the demand for it increases. A new employment for this good has emerged and creates an additional demand for it. As with every other economic good, such an additional demand brings about a rise in its value in exchange, that is, in the quantity of other goods which are offered for its acquisition. The amount of other goods which can be obtained in giving away a medium of exchange, its price, as expressed in terms of various goods and services, is in part determined by the demand of those who want to acquire it as a medium of exchange. If people stop using the good in question as a medium of exchange, this additional specific demand disappears, and the price drops concomitantly. Thus the demand for a medium of exchange is the composite of two partial demands. The demand displayed by the intention to use it in consumption and production, and that displayed by the intention to use it as a medium of exchange. With regard to modern metallic money, one speaks of the industrial demand and of the monetary demand. 
the value in exchange, purchasing power, of a medium of exchange is the resultant of the cumulative effect of both partial demands. Now the extent of that part of the demand for a medium of exchange, which is displayed on account of its service as a medium of exchange, depends on its value in exchange. This fact raises difficulties which many economists considered insoluble, so that they abstained from following farther along this line of reasoning. It is illogical, they said, to explain the purchasing power of money by reference to the demand for money, and the demand for money by reference to its purchasing power. The difficulty is, however, merely apparent— The purchasing power which we explain by referring to the extent of specific demand is not the same purchasing power the height of which determines this specific demand. The problem is to conceive the determination of the purchasing power of the immediate future, of the impending moment. For the solution of this problem we refer to the purchasing power of the immediate past, of the moment just past. These are two distinct magnitudes. It is erroneous to object to our theorem, which may be called the regression theorem, that it moves in a vicious circle. But, say the critics, this is tantamount to merely pushing back the problem. For now, one must still explain the determination of yesterday's purchasing power. If one explains this in the same way by referring to the purchasing power of the day before yesterday, and so on, one slips into a regressus in infinitum. This reasoning, they assert, is certainly not a complete and logically satisfactory solution of the problem involved. What these critics fail to see is that the regression does not go back endlessly— it reaches a point at which the explanation is completed, and no further question remains unanswered. If we trace the purchasing power of money back step by step, we finally arrive at the point at which the service of the good concerned as a medium of exchange begins. At this point, Yesterday's exchange value is exclusively determined by the non-monetary, industrial demand, which is displayed only by those who want to use this good for other employments than that of a medium of exchange. But, the critics continue, this means explaining that part of money's purchasing power which is due to its service as a medium of exchange by its employment for industrial purposes. The very problem, the explanation of the specific monetary component of its exchange value, remains unsolved. Here, too, the critics are mistaken. That component of money's value, which is an outcome of the services it renders as a medium of exchange, is entirely explained by reference to these specific monetary services and the demand they create. Two facts are not to be denied and are not denied by anybody. First, that the demand for a medium of exchange is determined by considerations of its exchange value, which is an outcome both of the monetary and the industrial services it renders. 
Second, that the exchange value of a good which has not yet been demanded for service as a medium of exchange is determined solely by a demand on the part of people eager to use it for industrial purposes, that is, either for consumption or for production. Now, the regression theorem aims at interpreting the first emergence of a monetary demand for a good which previously had been demanded exclusively for industrial purposes, as influenced by the exchange value that was ascribed to it at this moment, on account of its non-monetary services only. This certainly does not involve explaining the specific monetary exchange value of a medium of exchange on the ground of its industrial exchange value. Finally, it was objected to the regression theorem that its approach is historical, not theoretical. This objection is no less mistaken. To explain an event historically means to show how it was produced by forces and factors operating at a definite date and a definite place. These individual forces and factors are the ultimate elements of the interpretation. They are ultimate data, and as such not open to any further analysis and reduction. To explain a phenomenon theoretically means to trace back its appearance to the operation of general rules which are already comprised in the theoretical system. The regression theorem complies with this requirement. It traces the specific exchange value of a medium of exchange back to its function as such a medium, and to the theorems concerning the process of valuing and pricing as developed by the general catalactic theory. It deduces a more special case from the rules of a more universal theory. It shows how the special phenomenon necessarily emerges out of the operation of the rules generally valid for all phenomena. It does not say, this happened at that time and at that place. It says, this always happens when the conditions appear. Whenever a good which has not been demanded previously for the employment as a medium of exchange begins to be demanded for this employment, the same effects must appear again. No good can be employed for the function of a medium of exchange which, at the very beginning of its use for this purpose, did not have exchange value on account of other employments. And all these statements implied in the regression theorem are enounced apodictically, as implied in the a priorism of praxeology. It must happen this way. Nobody can ever succeed in constructing a hypothetical case in which things were to occur in a different way. The purchasing power of money is determined by demand and supply, as is the case with the prices of all vendable goods and services. As action always aims at a more satisfactory arrangement of future conditions, he who considers acquiring or giving away money is, of course, first of all interested in its future purchasing power and the future structure of prices. But he cannot form a judgment about the future purchasing power of money otherwise than by looking at its configuration in the immediate past. 
It is this fact that radically distinguishes the determination of the purchasing power of money from the determination of the mutual exchange ratios between the various vendable goods and services. With regard to these latter, the actors have nothing else to consider than their importance for future want satisfaction. If a new commodity unheard of before is offered for sale, as was, for instance, the case with radio sets a few decades ago, the only question that matters for the individual is whether or not the satisfaction that the new gadget will provide is greater than that expected from those goods he would have to renounce in order to buy the new thing. Knowledge about past prices is, for the buyer, merely a means to reap a consumer's surplus. If he were not intent upon this goal, he could, if need be, arrange his purchases without any familiarity with the market prices of the immediate past, which are popularly called present prices. He could make value judgments without appraisement. As has been mentioned already, the obliteration of the memory of all prices of the past would not prevent the formation of new exchange ratios between the various vendable things. But if knowledge about money's purchasing power were to fade away, the process of developing indirect exchange and media of exchange would have to start anew, it would become necessary to begin again with employing some goods, more marketable than the rest, as media of exchange. The demand for these goods would increase and would add to the amount of exchange value derived from their industrial, non-monetary employment, a specific component due to their new use as a medium of exchange. A value judgment is, with reference to money, only possible if it can be based on appraisement. The acceptance of a new kind of money presupposes that the thing in question already has previous exchange value on account of the services it can render directly to consumption or production. Neither a buyer nor a seller could judge the value of a monetary unit if he had no information about its exchange value, its purchasing power, in the immediate past. The relation between the demand for money and the supply of money, which may be called the money relation, determines the height of purchasing power. Today's money relation, as it is shaped on the ground of yesterday's purchasing power, determines today's purchasing power. He who wants to increase his cash holding restricts his purchases and increases his sales, and thus brings about a tendency toward falling prices. He who wants to reduce his cash holding increases his purchases, either for consumption or for production and investment, and restricts his sales. Thus he brings about a tendency toward rising prices. Changes in the supply of money must necessarily alter the disposition of vendable goods as owned by various individuals and firms. The quantity of money available in the whole market system cannot increase or decrease otherwise than by first increasing or decreasing the cash holdings of certain individual members. We may, if we like, assume that every member gets a share of the additional money right at the moment of its inflow into the system, 
or shares in the reduction in the quantity of money. But whether we assume this or not, the final result of our demonstration will remain the same. This result will be that changes in the structure of prices brought about by changes in the supply of money available in the economic system never affect the prices of the various commodities and services to the same extent and at the same date. Let us assume that the government issues an additional quantity of paper money. The government plans either to buy commodities and services or to repay debts incurred or to pay interest on such debts. However this may be, the treasury enters the market with an additional demand for goods and services. It is now in a position to buy more goods than it could buy before. The prices of the commodities it buys rise. If the government had expended in its purchases money collected by taxation, the taxpayers would have restricted their purchases, and while the prices of the goods bought by the government would have risen, those of other goods would have dropped. But this fall in the prices of the goods the taxpayers used to buy does not occur if the government increases the quantity of money at its disposal without reducing the quantity of money in the hands of the public. The prices of some commodities, namely of those the government buys, rise immediately, while those of the other commodities remain unaltered for the time being. But the process goes on. Those selling the commodities asked for by the government are now themselves in a position to buy more than they used previously. The prices of the things these people are buying in larger quantities therefore rise too. Thus the boom spreads from one group of commodities and services to other groups until all prices and wage rates have risen. The rise in prices is thus not synchronous with the various commodities and services. When eventually, in the further course of the increase in the quantity of money, all prices have risen, the rise does not affect the various commodities and services to the same extent. For the process has affected the material position of various individuals to different degrees. While the process is underway, some people enjoy the benefit of higher prices for the goods or services they sell, while the prices of the things they buy have not yet risen or have not risen to the same extent. On the other hand, there are people who are in the unhappy situation of selling commodities and services whose prices have not yet risen, or not in the same degree as the prices of the goods they must buy for their daily consumption. For the former, the progressive rise in prices is a boon, for the latter, a calamity. Besides, the debtors are favored at the expense of the creditors, when the process once comes to an end, the wealth of various individuals has been affected in different ways and to different degrees. Some are enriched, some impoverished. Conditions are no longer what they were before. The new order of things results in changes in the intensity of demand for various goods. The mutual ratio of the money prices of the vendable goods and services is no longer the same as before. The price structure has changed apart from the fact that all prices in terms of money have risen. 
the final prices to the establishment of which the market tends after the effects of the increase in the quantity of money have been fully consummated, are not equal to the previous final prices multiplied by the same multiplier. The main fault of the old quantity theory, as well as the mathematical economists' equation of exchange, is that they have ignored this fundamental issue. Changes in the supply of money must bring about changes in other data, too. The market system before and after the inflow or outflow of a quantity of money is not merely changed in that the cash holdings of the individuals and prices have increased or decreased. There have been effected also changes in the reciprocal exchange ratios between the various commodities and services, which, if one wants to resort to metaphors, are more adequately described by the image of price revolution than by the misleading figure of an elevation or a sinking of the price level. We may at this point disregard the effects brought about by the influence on the content of all deferred payments as stipulated by contracts. We will deal later with them, and with the operation of monetary events on consumption and production, investment in capital goods, and accumulation and consumption of capital. But even in setting aside all these things, we must never forget that changes in the quantity of money affect prices in an uneven way. It depends on the data of each particular case at what moment and to what extent the prices of the various commodities and services are affected. In the course of a monetary expansion, inflation, the first reaction is not only that the prices of some of them rise more quickly and more steeply than others. It may also occur that some fall at first, as they are for the most part demanded by those groups whose interests are hurt. Changes in the money relation are not only caused by governments issuing additional paper money, an increase in the production of the precious metals employed as money has the same effects, although, of course, other classes of the population may be favored or hurt by it. Prices also rise in the same way if, without a corresponding reduction in the quantity of money available, the demand for money falls because of a general tendency toward a diminution of cash holdings. The money expended additionally by such a dishoarding brings about a tendency toward higher prices in the same way as that flowing from the gold mines or from the printing press. Conversely, prices drop when the supply of money falls, for example, through a withdrawal of paper money, or the demand for money increases, for example, through a tendency toward hoarding, the keeping of greater cash balances. The process is always uneven, and by steps, disproportionate and asymmetrical. It could be and has been objected that the normal production of the gold mines brought to the market may well entail an increase in the quantity of money, but does not increase the income, still less the wealth, of the owners of the mines. 
These people earn only their normal income, and thus their spending of it cannot disarrange market conditions and the prevailing tendencies toward the establishment of final prices and the equilibrium of the evenly rotating economy. For them, the annual output of the mines does not mean an increase in riches and does not impel them to offer higher prices. They will continue to live at the standard at which they used to live before. Their spending within these limits will not revolutionize the market. Thus, the normal amount of gold production, although certainly increasing the quantity of money available, cannot put into motion the process of depreciation. It is neutral with regard to prices. As against this reasoning, one must first of all observe that within a progressing economy in which population figures are increasing, and the division of labor and its corollary, industrial specialization, are perfected, there prevails a tendency toward an increase in the demand for money. Additional people appear on the scene and want to establish cash holdings. The extent of economic self-sufficiency, that is, of production for the household's own needs, shrinks, and people become more dependent upon the market. This will, by and large, impel them to increase their holding of cash. Thus the price-raising tendency emanating from what is called the normal gold production encounters a price-cutting tendency emanating from the increased demand for cash holding. However, these two opposite tendencies do not neutralize each other. Both processes take their own course. Both result in a disarrangement of existing social conditions, making some people richer, some people poorer. Both affect the prices of various goods at different dates and to a different degree. It is true that the rise in the prices of some commodities caused by one of these processes can finally be compensated by the fall caused by the other process. It may happen that at the end some or many prices come back to their previous height. But this final result is not the outcome of an absence of movements provoked by changes in the money relation. It is rather the outcome of the joint effect of the coincidence of two processes, independent of each other, each of which brings about alterations in the market data, as well as in the material conditions of various individuals and groups of individuals. The new structure of prices may not differ very much from the previous one, but it is the resultant of two series of changes which have accomplished all inherent social transformations. The fact that the owners of gold mines rely upon steady yearly proceeds from their gold production does not cancel the newly mined gold's impression upon prices. The owners of the mines take from the market, in exchange for the gold produced, the goods and services required for their mining, and the goods needed for their consumption and their investments in other lines of production. If they had not produced this amount of gold, prices would not have been affected by it. It is beside the point that they have anticipated the future yield of the mines and capitalized it, and that they have adjusted their standard of living to the expectation of steady proceeds from the mining operations. 
The effects which the newly mined gold exercises on their expenditure and on that of those people whose cash holdings step by step it enters later begin only at the instant this gold is available in the hands of the mine owners. If in the expectation of future yields they had expended money at an earlier date and the expected yield failed to appear, Conditions would not differ from other cases in which consumption was financed by credit based on expectations not realized by later events. Changes in the extent of the desired cash holding of various people neutralize one another only to the extent that they are regularly recurring and mutually connected by a causal reciprocity. Salaried people and wage earners are not paid daily, but at certain paydays for a period of one or several weeks. They do not plan to keep their cash holding within the period between paydays at the same level. The amount of cash in their pockets declines with the approach of the next payday. On the other hand, the merchants who supply them with the necessities of life increase their cash holdings concomitantly. The two movements condition each other. There is a causal interdependence between them, which harmonizes them both with regard to time and to quantitative amount. Neither the dealer nor his customer lets himself be influenced by these recurrent fluctuations. Their plans concerning cash holding, as well as their business operations and their spending for consumption, respectively, have the whole period in view, and take it into account as a whole. It was this phenomenon that led economists to the image of a regular circulation of money, and to the neglect of the changes in the individual's cash holdings. However, we are faced with a concatenation which is limited to a narrow, neatly circumscribed field. Only as far as the increase in the cash holding of one group of people is temporally and quantitatively related to the decrease in the cash holding of another group, and as far as these changes are self-liquidating within the course of a period which the members of both groups consider as a whole in planning their cash holding, can the neutralization take place. Beyond this field, there is no question of such a neutralization. 5. The Problem of Hume and Mill and the Driving Force of Money Is it possible to think of a state of affairs in which changes in the purchasing power of money occur at the same time, and to the same extent, with regard to all commodities and services, and in proportion to the changes effected in either the demand for or the supply of money? In other words, is it possible to think of neutral money within the frame of an economic system which does not correspond to the imaginary construction of an evenly rotating economy? We may call this pertinent question the problem of Hume and Mill. It is uncontested that neither Hume nor Mill succeeded in finding a positive answer to this question. Is it possible to answer it categorically in the negative? We imagine two systems of an evenly rotating economy, A and B. The two systems are independent and in no way connected with one another. 
The two systems differ from one another only in the fact that to each amount of money M in A, there corresponds an amount NM in B, N being greater or smaller than 1. We assume that there are no deferred payments, and that the money used in both systems serves only monetary purposes, and does not allow of any non-monetary use. Consequently, the prices in the two systems are in the ratio 1 to N. Is it thinkable that conditions in A can be altered at one stroke in such a way as to make them entirely equivalent to conditions in B? The answer to this question must obviously be in the negative. He who wants to answer it in the positive must assume that a deus ex machina approaches every individual at the same instant, increases or decreases his cash holding by multiplying it by n, and tells him that henceforth he must multiply by n all price data which he employs in his appraisements and calculations. This cannot happen without a miracle. It has been pointed out already that in the imaginary construction of an evenly rotating economy, the very notion of money vanishes into an unsubstantial calculation process, self-contradictory and devoid of any meaning. It is impossible to assign any function to indirect exchange, media of exchange, and money within an imaginary construction, the characteristic mark of which is unchangeability and rigidity of conditions. Where there is no uncertainty concerning the future, there is no need for any cash holding. As money must necessarily be kept by people in their cash holdings, there cannot be any money. The use of media of exchange and the keeping of cash holdings are conditioned by the changeability of economic data. Money in itself is an element of change. Its existence is incompatible with the idea of a regular flow of events in an evenly rotating economy. Every change in the money relation alters, apart from its effects upon deferred payments, the conditions of the individual members of society. Some become richer, some poorer. It may happen that the effects of a change in the demand for and supply of money encounter the effects of opposite changes occurring by and large at the same time and to the same extent. It may happen that the resultant of the two opposite movements is such that no conspicuous changes in the price structure emerge. But even then, the effects on the conditions of the various individuals are not absent. Each change in the money relation takes its own course and produces its own particular effects. If an inflationary movement and a deflationary one occur at the same time, or if an inflation is temporarily followed by a deflation in such a way that prices finally are not very much changed, the social consequences of each of the two movements do not cancel each other. To the social consequences of an inflation, those of a deflation are added, there is no reason to assume that all or even most of those favored by one movement will be hurt by the second one, or vice versa. Money is neither an abstract numeraire nor a standard of value or prices. 
It is necessarily an economic good, and as such it is valued and appraised on its own merits, that is, the services which a man expects from holding cash. On the market there is always change and movement. Only because there are fluctuations is there money. Money is an element of change not because it circulates, but because it is kept in cash holdings. Only because people expect changes about the kind and extent of which they have no certain knowledge whatsoever, do they keep money. While money can be thought of only in a changing economy, it is in itself an element of further changes. Every change in the economic data sets it in motion and makes it the driving force of new changes. Every shift in the mutual relation of the exchange ratios between the various non-monetary goods not only brings about changes in production and in what is popularly called distribution, but also provokes changes in the money relation and thus further changes. Nothing can happen in the orbit of vendable goods without affecting the orbit of money, and all that happens in the orbit of money affects the orbit of commodities. The notion of a neutral money is no less contradictory than that of a money of stable purchasing power. Money without a driving force of its own would not, as people assume, be a perfect money. It would not be money at all. It is a popular fallacy to believe that perfect money should be neutral and endowed with unchanging purchasing power, and that the goal of monetary policy should be to realize this perfect money. It is easy to understand this idea as a reaction against the still more popular postulates of the inflationists, but it is an excessive reaction. It is in itself confused and contradictory, and it has worked havoc because it was strengthened by an inveterate error inherent in the thought of many philosophers and economists. These thinkers are misled by the widespread belief that a state of rest is more perfect than one of movement. Their idea of perfection implies that no more perfect state can be thought of, and consequently that every change would impair it. The best that can be said of a motion is that it is directed toward the attainment of a state of perfection, in which there is rest, because every further movement would lead into a less perfect state. Motion is seen as the absence of equilibrium and full satisfaction, as a manifestation of trouble and want. As far as such thoughts merely establish the fact that action aims at the removal of uneasiness, and ultimately at the attainment of full satisfaction, they are well-founded. But one must not forget that rest and equilibrium are not only present in a state in which perfect contentment has made people perfectly happy, but no less in a state in which, although wanting in many regards, they do not see any means of improving their condition. The absence of action is not only the result of full satisfaction, it can no less be the corollary of the inability to render things more satisfactory. It can mean hopelessness as well as contentment. With the real universe of action and unceasing change, with the economic system which cannot be rigid, neither neutrality of money nor stability of its purchasing power are compatible.
a world of the kind which the necessary requirements of neutral and stable money presuppose, would be a world without action. It is therefore neither strange nor vicious that in the frame of such a changing world money is neither neutral nor stable in purchasing power. All plans to render money neutral and stable are contradictory. Money is an element of action, and consequently of change. Changes in the money relation, that is, in the relation of the demand for and the supply of money, affect the exchange ratio between money on the one hand and the vendable commodities on the other hand. These changes do not affect at the same time and to the same extent the prices of the various commodities and services. They consequently affect the wealth of the various members of society in a different way. 6. Cash-induced and goods-induced changes in purchasing power Changes in the purchasing power of money that is, in the exchange ratio between money and the vendable goods and commodities, can originate either from the side of money or from the side of the vendable goods and commodities. The change in the data which provokes them can either occur in the demand for and supply of money or in the demand for and supply of the other goods and services. We may accordingly distinguish between cash-induced and goods-induced changes in purchasing power. Goods-induced changes in purchasing power can be brought about by changes in the supply of commodities and services, or in the demand for individual commodities and services. A general rise or fall in the demand for all goods and services, or the greater part of them, can be effected only from the side of money. Let us now scrutinize the social and economic consequences of changes in the purchasing power of money under the following three assumptions. First, that the money in question can only be used as money that is, as a medium of exchange, and can serve no other purpose. Second, that there is only exchange of present goods, and no exchange of present goods against future goods. Third, that we disregard the effects of changes in purchasing power on monetary calculation. Under these assumptions, all that cash-induced changes in purchasing power bring about are shifts in the disposition of wealth among different individuals. Some get richer, others poorer. Some are better supplied, others less. What some people gain is paid for by the loss of others. It would, however, be impermissible to interpret this fact by saying that total satisfaction remained unchanged, or that, while no changes have occurred in total supply, the state of total satisfaction, or of the sum of happiness, has been increased or decreased by changes in the distribution of wealth. The notions of total satisfaction or total happiness are empty. It is impossible to discover a standard for comparing the different degrees of satisfaction or happiness attained by various individuals. Cash-induced changes in purchasing power indirectly generate further changes by favoring either the accumulation of additional capital or the consumption of capital available. 
Whether and in what direction such secondary effects are brought about depends on the specific data of each case. We shall deal with these important problems at a later point. Goods-induced changes in purchasing power are sometimes nothing else but consequences of a shift of demand from some goods to others. If they are brought about by an increase or a decrease in the supply of goods, they are not merely transfers from some people to other people. They do not mean that Peter gains what Paul has lost. Some people may become richer, although nobody is impoverished, and vice versa. We may describe this fact in the following way. Let A and B be two independent systems which are in no way connected with each other. In both systems the same kind of money is used, a money which cannot be used for any non-monetary purpose. Now we assume, as case one, that A and B differ from each other only insofar as in B the total supply of money is N, M, M being the total supply of money in A, and that to every cash holding of C, and to every claim in terms of money, D, in A there corresponds a cash holding of N, C, and a claim of N, D, in B. In every other respect, A equals B. Then we assume, as case two, that A and B differ from each other only insofar as in B the total supply of a certain commodity R is in P, P being the total supply of this commodity in A, and that to every stock V of this commodity R in A there corresponds a stock of N V in B. In both cases, N is greater than 1. If we ask every individual of A whether he is ready to make the slightest sacrifice in order to exchange his position for the corresponding place in B, the answer will be unanimously in the negative, in case 1. But in case 2, all owners of R, and all those who do not own any R but are eager to acquire a quantity of it, that is, at least one individual, will answer in the affirmative. The services money renders are conditioned by the height of its purchasing power. Nobody wants to have in his cash holding a definite number of pieces of money or a definite weight of money. He wants to keep a cash holding of a definite amount of purchasing power. As the operation of the market tends to determine the final state of money's purchasing power at a height at which the supply of and the demand for money coincide, there can never be an excess or a deficiency of money. Each individual, and all individuals together, always enjoy fully the advantages which they can derive from indirect exchange and the use of money no matter whether the total quantity of money is great or small. Changes in money's purchasing power generate changes in the disposition of wealth among the various members of society. From the point of view of people eager to be enriched by such changes, the supply of money may be called insufficient or excessive and the appetite for such gains may result in policies designed to bring about cash-induced alterations in purchasing power. 
However, the services which money renders can be neither improved nor impaired by changing the supply of money. There may appear an excess or a deficiency of money in an individual's cash holding, but such a condition can be remedied by increasing or decreasing consumption or investment. Of course, one must not fall prey to the popular confusion between the demand for money for cash holding and the appetite for more wealth. The quantity of money available in the whole economy is always sufficient to secure for everybody all that money does and can do. From the point of view of this insight, one may call wasteful all expenditures incurred for increasing the quantity of money. The fact that things which could render some other useful services are employed as money, and thus withheld from these other employments, appears as a superfluous curtailment of limited opportunities for want satisfaction. It was this idea that led Adam Smith and Ricardo to the opinion that it was very beneficial to reduce the cost of producing money by resorting to the use of paper-printed currency. However, things appear in a different light to the students of monetary history. If one looks at the catastrophic consequences of the great paper-money inflations, one must admit that the expensiveness of gold production is the minor evil. It would be futile to retort that these catastrophes were brought about by the improper use which the governments made of the powers that credit money and fiat money placed in their hands, and that wiser governments would have adopted sounder policies. As money can never be neutral and stable in purchasing power, a government's plans concerning the determination of the quantity of money can never be impartial and fair to all members of society. Whatever a government does in the pursuit of aims to influence the height of purchasing power depends necessarily upon the ruler's personal value judgments. It always furthers the interests of some groups of people at the expense of other groups. It never serves what is called the commonweal or the public welfare. In the field of monetary policies, too, there is no such thing as a scientific ought. The choice of the good to be employed as a medium of exchange and as money is never indifferent. It determines the course of the cash-induced changes in purchasing power. The question is only, who should make the choice? The people buying and selling on the market, or the government? It was the market which, in a selective process going on for ages, finally assigned to the precious metals, gold and silver, the character of money. For two hundred years, the governments have interfered with the market's choice of the money medium. Even the most bigoted etatists do not venture to assert that this interference has proved beneficial. Inflation and Deflation Inflationism and Deflationism The notions of inflation and deflation are not praxeological concepts. They were not created by economists, but by the mundane speech of the public and of politicians. They implied the popular fallacy that there is such a thing as neutral money, or money of stable purchasing power, 
and that sound money should be neutral and stable in purchasing power. From this point of view, the term inflation was applied to signify cash-induced changes resulting in a drop in purchasing power, and the term deflation to signify cash-induced changes resulting in a rise in purchasing power. However, those applying these terms are not aware of the fact that purchasing power never remains unchanged and that consequently there is always either inflation or deflation. They ignore these necessarily perpetual fluctuations as far as they are only small and inconspicuous, and reserve the use of the terms to big changes in purchasing power. Since the question as to at what point a change in purchasing power begins to deserve being called big depends on personal relevance judgments, it becomes manifest that inflation and deflation are terms lacking the categorical precision required for praxeological, economic, and catalactic concepts. Their application is appropriate for history and politics. Catalactics is free to resort to them only when applying its theorems to the interpretation of events of economic history and of political programs. Moreover, it is very expedient, even in rigid catalactic disquisitions, to make use of these two terms whenever no misinterpretation can possibly result, and pedantic heaviness of expression can be avoided. But it is necessary never to forget that all that catalactic says with regard to inflation and deflation, that is, big cash-induced changes in purchasing power, is valid also with regard to small changes, although, of course, the consequences of smaller changes are less conspicuous than those of big changes. The terms inflationism and deflationism inflationist and deflationist, signify the political programs aiming at inflation and deflation in the sense of big, cash-induced changes in purchasing power. The semantic revolution, which is one of the characteristic features of our day, has also changed the traditional connotation of the terms inflation and deflation. What many people today call inflation or deflation is no longer the great increase or decrease in the supply of money, but its inexorable consequences, the general tendency toward a rise or a fall in commodity prices and wage rates. This innovation is by no means harmless. It plays an important role in fomenting the popular tendencies toward inflationism. First of all, there is no longer any term available to signify what inflation used to signify. It is impossible to fight a policy which you cannot name. Statesmen and writers no longer have the opportunity of resorting to a terminology accepted and understood by the public when they want to question the expediency of issuing huge amounts of additional money. They must enter into a detailed analysis and description of this policy with full particulars and minute accounts whenever they want to refer to it, and they must repeat this bothersome procedure in every sentence in which they deal with the subject. As this policy has no name, it becomes self-understood and a matter of fact. It goes on luxuriantly. 
The second mischief is that those engaged in futile and hopeless attempts to fight the inevitable consequences of inflation, the rise in prices, are disguising their endeavors as a fight against inflation. While merely fighting symptoms, they pretend to fight the root causes of the evil. Because they do not comprehend the causal relation between the increase in the quantity of money on the one hand and the rise in prices on the other, they practically make things worse. The best example was provided by the subsidies granted on the part of the governments of the United States, Canada, and Great Britain to farmers. Price ceilings reduce the supply of the commodities concerned, because production involves a loss for the marginal producers. To prevent this outcome, the governments granted subsidies to the farmers producing at the highest costs. These subsidies were financed out of additional increases in the quantity of money. If the consumers had had to pay higher prices for the products concerned, no further inflationary effects would have emerged. The consumers would have had to use for such surplus expenditure only money which had already been issued previously. Thus, the confusion of inflation and its consequences, in fact, can directly bring about more inflation. It is obvious that this newfangled connotation of the terms inflation and deflation is utterly confusing and misleading, and must be unconditionally rejected. 7. Monetary Calculation and Changes in Purchasing Power Monetary calculation reckons with the prices of commodities and services as they were determined or would have been determined, or presumably will be determined, on the market. It is eager to detect price discrepancies and to draw conclusions from such a detection. Cash-induced changes in purchasing power cannot be taken into account in such calculations. It is possible to put in the place of calculation based on a definite kind of money, A, a mode of calculating based on another kind of money, B. Then the result of the calculation is made safe against adulteration on the part of changes effected in the purchasing power of A, but it can still be adulterated by changes effected in the purchasing power of B. There is no means of freeing any mode of economic calculation from the influence of changes in the purchasing power of the definite kind of money on which it is based. All results of economic calculation and all conclusions derived from them are conditioned by the vicissitudes of cash-induced changes in purchasing power. In accordance with the rise or fall in purchasing power, there emerge between items reflecting earlier prices and those reflecting later prices specific differences. The calculus shows profits or losses which are merely produced by cash-induced changes effected in the purchasing power of money. If we compare such profits or losses with the result of a calculation accomplished on the basis of a kind of money whose purchasing power had been subject to less vehement changes, we can call them imaginary or apparent only. But one must not forget that such statements are only possible as a result of the comparison of calculations carried out in different kinds of money. 
As there is no such thing as a money with stable purchasing power, such apparent profits and losses are present with every mode of economic calculation, no matter on what kind of money it may be based. It is impossible to distinguish precisely between genuine profits and losses and merely apparent profits and losses. It is therefore possible to maintain that economic calculation is not perfect. However, nobody can suggest a method which could free economic calculation from these defects, or design a monetary system which could remove this source of error entirely. It is an undeniable fact that the free market has succeeded in developing a currency system which well served all the requirements both of indirect exchange and of economic calculation. The aims of monetary calculation are such that they cannot be frustrated by the inaccuracies which stem from slow and comparatively slight movements in purchasing power. Cash-induced changes in purchasing power of the extent to which they occurred in the last two centuries with metallic money, especially with gold money, cannot influence the result of the businessman's economic calculations so considerably as to render such calculations useless. Historical experience shows that one could, for all practical purposes of the conduct of business, manage very well with these methods of calculation. Theoretical consideration shows that it is impossible to design, still less to realize, a better method. In view of these facts, it is vain to call monetary calculation imperfect. Man has not the power to change the categories of human action he must adjust his conduct to them. Businessmen never deemed it necessary to free economic calculation in terms of gold from its dependence on the fluctuations in purchasing power. The proposals to improve the currency system by adopting a tabular standard based on index numbers or by adopting various methods of commodity standards were not advanced with regard to business transactions and to monetary calculation. Their aim was to provide a less fluctuating standard for long-run loan contracts. Businessmen did not even consider it expedient to modify their accounting methods in those regards in which it would have been easy to narrow down certain errors induced by fluctuations in purchasing power. It would, for instance, have been possible to discard the practice of writing off durable equipment by means of yearly depreciation quotas, invariably fixed in a percentage of the cost of its acquisition. In its place, one could resort to the device of laying aside in renewal funds as much as seems necessary to provide the full costs of the replacement at the time when it is required. But business was not eager to adopt such a procedure. All this is valid only with regard to money which is not subject to rapid, big cash-induced changes in purchasing power. But money with which such rapid and big changes occur loses its suitability to serve as a medium of exchange altogether. 8. The Anticipation of Expected Changes in Purchasing Power 
The deliberations of the individuals which determine their conduct with regard to money are based on their knowledge concerning the prices of the immediate past. If they lacked this knowledge, they would not be in a position to decide what the appropriate height of their cash holdings should be, and how much they should spend for the acquisition of various goods. A medium of exchange without a past is unthinkable. Nothing can enter into the function of a medium of exchange which was not already previously an economic good, and to which people assigned exchange value already, before it was demanded as such a medium. But the purchasing power handed down from the immediate past is modified by today's demand for and supply of money. Human action is always providing for the future, be it sometimes only the future of the impending hour. He who buys, buys for future consumption and production. As far as he believes that the future will differ from the present and the past, he modifies his valuation and appraisement. This is no less true with regard to money than it is with regard to all vendable goods. In this sense, we may say that today's exchange value of money is an anticipation of tomorrow's exchange value. The basis of all judgments concerning money is its purchasing power, as it was in the immediate past. But as far as cash-induced changes in purchasing power are expected, a second factor enters the scene, the anticipation of these changes. He who believes that the prices of the goods in which he takes an interest will rise buys more of them than he would have bought in the absence of this belief. Accordingly, he restricts his cash holding. He who believes that prices will drop restricts his purchases, and thus enlarges his cash holding. As long as such speculative anticipations are limited to some commodities, they do not bring about a general tendency toward changes in cash holding. But it is different if people believe that they are on the eve of big cash-induced changes in purchasing power. When they expect that the money prices of all goods will rise or fall, they expand or restrict their purchases. These attitudes strengthen and accelerate the expected tendencies considerably. This goes on until the point is reached beyond which no further changes in the purchasing power of money are expected. Only then does the inclination to buy or to sell stop, and do people begin again to increase or to decrease their cash holdings. But if once public opinion is convinced that the increase in the quantity of money will continue and never come to an end, and that consequently the prices of all commodities and services will not cease to rise, everybody becomes eager to buy as much as possible and to restrict his cash holding to a minimum size. For under these circumstances, the regular costs incurred by holding cash are increased by the losses caused by the progressive fall in purchasing power. The advantages of holding cash must be paid for by sacrifices which are deemed unreasonably burdensome. This phenomenon was, in the great European inflations of the twenties, called flight into real goods, or crack-up boom, 
the mathematical economists are at a loss to comprehend the causal relation between the increase in the quantity of money and what they call velocity of circulation. The characteristic mark of the phenomenon is that the increase in the quantity of money causes a fall in the demand for money. The tendency toward a fall in purchasing power as generated by the increased supply of money is intensified by the general propensity to restrict cash holdings which it brings about. Eventually, a point is reached where the prices at which people would be prepared to part with real goods discount to such an extent the expected progress in the fall of purchasing power that nobody has a sufficient amount of cash at hand to pay them. The monetary system breaks down. All transactions in the money concerned cease. A panic makes its purchasing power vanish altogether. People return either to barter or to the use of another kind of money. The course of a progressing inflation is this. At the beginning, the inflow of additional money makes the prices of some commodities and services rise. Other prices rise later. The price rise affects the various commodities and services, as has been shown, at different dates and to a different extent. This first stage of the inflationary process may last for many years. While it lasts, the prices of many goods and services are not yet adjusted to the altered money relation. There are still people in the country who have not yet become aware of the fact that they are confronted with a price revolution, which will finally result in a considerable rise of all prices although the extent of this rise will not be the same in the various commodities and services. These people still believe that prices one day will drop. Waiting for this day, they restrict their purchases and, concomitantly, increase their cash holdings. As long as such ideas are still held by public opinion, it is not yet too late for the government to abandon its inflationary policy. But then, finally, the masses wake up. They become suddenly aware of the fact that inflation is a deliberate policy and will go on endlessly. A breakdown occurs. The crack-up boom appears. Everybody is anxious to swap his money against real goods, no matter whether he needs them or not, no matter how much money he has to pay for them. Within a very short time, within a few weeks or even days, the things which were used as money are no longer used as media of exchange. They become scrap paper. Nobody wants to give away anything against them. It was this that happened with the continental currency in America in 1781, with the French Mandat Territorio in 1796, and with the German mark in 1923. It will happen again whenever the same conditions appear. If a thing has to be used as a medium of exchange, public opinion must not believe that the quantity of this thing will increase beyond all bounds. Inflation is a policy that cannot last forever. 9. The Specific Value of Money 
As far as a good used as money is valued and appraised on account of the services it renders for non-monetary purposes, no problems are raised which would require special treatment. The task of the theory of money consists merely in dealing with that component in the valuation of money which is conditioned by its function as a medium of exchange. In the course of history, various commodities have been employed as media of exchange. A long evolution eliminated the greater part of these commodities from the monetary function. Only two, the precious metals, gold and silver, remained. In the second part of the nineteenth century, more and more governments deliberately turned toward the demonetization of silver. In all these cases, what is employed as money is a commodity which is used also for non-monetary purposes. Under the gold standard, gold is money, and money is gold. It is immaterial whether or not the laws assign legal tender quality only to gold coins minted by the government. What counts is that these coins really contain a fixed weight of gold, and every quantity of bullion can freely be transformed into coins. Under the gold standard, the dollar and the pound sterling were merely names for a definite weight of gold, within very narrow margins precisely determined by the laws. We may call such a sort of money commodity money. A second sort of money is credit money. Credit money evolved out of the use of money substitutes. It was customary to use claims, payable on demand and absolutely secure, as substitutes for the sum of money to which they gave a claim. We shall deal with the features and problems of money substitutes in the next section. The market did not stop using such claims when one day their prompt redemption was suspended, and thereby doubts about their safety and the solvency of the obligee were raised. As long as these claims had been daily maturing claims against a debtor of undisputed solvency, and could be collected without notice and free of expense, their exchange value was equal to their face value. It was this perfect equivalence which assigned to them the character of money substitutes. Now, as redemption was suspended, the maturity date postponed to an undetermined day, and consequently doubts about the solvency of the debtor, or at least about his willingness to pay, emerged, they lost a part of the value previously ascribed to them. They were now merely claims, which did not bear interest, against a questionable debtor, and falling due on an undefined day. But, as they were used as media of exchange, their exchange value did not drop to the level to which it would have dropped if they were merely claims. One can fairly assume that such credit money could remain in use as a medium of exchange, even if it were to lose its character as a claim against a bank or a treasury, and thus would become fiat money. Fiat money is a money consisting of mere tokens, which can neither be employed for any industrial purposes, nor convey a claim against anybody. It is not a task of catalactics, but of economic history, to investigate whether there appeared in the past specimens of fiat money, 
or whether all the sorts of money which were not commodity money were credit money. The only thing that catalactics has to establish is that the possibility of the existence of fiat money must be admitted. The important thing to be remembered is that with every sort of money, demonetization, that is, the abandonment of its use as a medium of exchange, must result in a serious fall of its exchange value. What this practically means has become manifest when, in the last eighty years, the use of silver as commodity money has been progressively restricted. There are specimens of credit money and fiat money which are embodied in metallic coins. Such money is printed, as it were, on silver, nickel, or copper. If such a piece of fiat money is demonetized, it still retains exchange value as a piece of metal. But this is only a very small indemnification of the owner. It has no practical importance. The keeping of cash holding requires sacrifices. To the extent that a man keeps money in his pockets or in his balance with a bank, he forsakes the instantaneous acquisition of goods he could consume or employ for production. In the market economy, these sacrifices can be precisely determined by calculation. They are equal to the amount of originary interest he would have earned by investing the sum. The fact that a man takes this falling off into account is proof that he prefers the advantages of cash holding to the loss in interest yield. It is possible to specify the advantages which people expect from keeping a definite amount of cash, but it is a delusion to assume that an analysis of these motives could provide us with a theory of the determination of purchasing power which could do without the notions of cash holding and demand for and supply of money. The advantages and disadvantages derived from cash holding are not objective factors which could directly influence the size of cash holdings. They are put on the scales by each individual and weighed against one another. The result is a subjective judgment of value, colored by the individual's personality. Different people and the same people at different times value the same objective facts in a different way. Just as knowledge of a man's wealth and his physical condition does not tell us how much he would be prepared to spend for food of a certain nutritive power, so knowledge about data concerning a man's material situation does not enable us to make definite assertions with regard to the size of his cash holding. 10. The Import of the Money Relation the money relation, that is, the relation between demand for and supply of money, uniquely determines the price structure as far as the reciprocal exchange ratio between money and the vendable commodities and services is involved. If the money relation remains unchanged, neither an inflationary, expansionist, nor a deflationary, contractionist, pressure on trade, business, production, consumption, and employment can emerge. The assertions to the contrary reflect the grievances of people reluctant to adjust their activities to the demands of their fellow men as manifested on the market. 
However, it is not an account of an alleged scarcity of money that prices of agricultural products are too low to secure to the submarginal farmers proceeds of the amount they would like to earn. The cause of these farmers' distress is that other farmers are producing at lower costs. What is wrong with British manufacturing is not that the level of prices is too low, but the fact that they did not succeed in raising the productivity of the capital invested and the men employed to a height that would provide all the goods the British want to consume. An increase in the quantity of goods produced, other things being unchanged, must bring about an improvement in people's conditions. Its consequence is a fall in the money prices of the goods the production of which has been increased. But such a fall in money prices does not in the least impair the benefits derived from the additional wealth produced. One may consider as unfair the increase in the share of the additional wealth which goes to the creditors, although such criticisms are questionable as far as the rise in purchasing power has been correctly anticipated and adequately taken into account by a negative price premium. But one must not say that a fall in prices caused by an increase in the production of the goods concerned is the proof of some disequilibrium which cannot be eliminated otherwise than by increasing the quantity of money. Of course, as a rule, every increase in production of some or of all commodities requires a new allocation of factors of production to the various branches of business. If the quantity of money remains unchanged, the necessity of such a reallocation becomes visible in the price structure. Some lines of production become more profitable, while in others profits drop or losses appear. Thus the operation of the market tends to eliminate these much-discussed disequilibria, it is possible, by means of an increase in the quantity of money, to delay or to interrupt this process of adjustment. It is impossible either to make it superfluous or less painful for those concerned. If the government made cash-induced changes in the purchasing power of money resulted only in shifts of wealth from some people to other people, it would not be permissible to condemn them from the point of view of catalactic scientific neutrality. It is obviously fraudulent to justify them under the pretext of the commonweal or public welfare, but one could still consider them as political measures suitable to promote the interests of some groups of people at the expense of others without further detriment. However, there are still other things involved. It is not necessary to point out the consequences to which a continued deflationary policy must lead. Nobody advocates such a policy. The favor of the masses and of the writers and politicians eager for applause goes to inflation. With regard to these endeavors, we must emphasize three points. First, inflationary or expansionist policy must result in overconsumption on the one hand and in malinvestment on the other. It thus squanders capital and impairs the future state of want satisfaction. Second, 
the inflationary process does not remove the necessity of adjusting production and reallocating resources. It merely postpones it, and thereby makes it more troublesome. Third, inflation cannot be employed as a permanent policy because it must, when continued, finally result in a breakdown of the monetary system. A retailer or innkeeper can easily fall prey to the illusion that all that is needed to make him and his colleagues more prosperous is more spending on the part of the public. In his eyes, the main thing is to impel people to spend more. But it is amazing that this belief could be presented to the world as a new social philosophy. Lord Keynes and his disciples make the lack of the propensity to consume responsible for what they deem unsatisfactory in economic conditions. What is needed in their eyes to make men more prosperous is not an increase in production, but an increase in spending. In order to make it possible for people to spend more, an expansionist policy is recommended. This doctrine is as old as it is bad. Its analysis and refutation will be undertaken in the chapter dealing with the trade cycle. 11. The Money Substitutes Claims to a definite amount of money, payable and redeemable on demand, against a debtor about whose solvency and willingness to pay there does not prevail the slightest doubt, render to the individual all the services money can render, provided that all parties with whom he could possibly transact business are perfectly familiar with these essential qualities of the claims concerned. Daily maturity and undoubted solvency and willingness to pay on the part of the debtor. We may call such claims money substitutes, as they can fully replace money in an individual's or a firm's cash holding. The technical and legal features of the money substitutes do not concern catalactics. A money substitute can be embodied either in a banknote or in a demand deposit with a bank subject to check, checkbook money, or deposit currency provided the bank is prepared to exchange the note or the deposit daily, free of charge, against money proper. Token coins are also money substitutes, provided the owner is in a position to exchange them at need against money, free of expense and without delay. To achieve this, it is not required that the government be bound by law to redeem them. What counts is the fact that these tokens can be really converted free of expense and without delay. If the total amount of token coins issued is kept within reasonable limits, no special provisions on the part of the government are necessary to keep their exchange value at par with their face value. The demand of the public for small change gives everybody the opportunity to exchange them easily against pieces of money. The main thing is that every owner of a money substitute is perfectly certain that it can, at every instant and free of expense, be exchanged against money. If the debtor, the government, or a bank keeps against the whole amount of money substitutes a reserve of money proper, we call the money substitute a money certificate. The individual money certificate is, not necessarily in a legal sense, but always in the catalactic sense, 
a representative of a corresponding amount of money kept in the reserve. The issuing of money certificates does not increase the quantity of things suitable to satisfy the demand for money for cash holding. Changes in the quantity of money certificates, therefore, do not alter the supply of money and the money relation. They do not play any role in the determination of the purchasing power of money. If the money reserve kept by the debtor against the money substitutes issued is less than the total amount of such substitutes, we call that amount of substitutes which exceeds the reserve fiduciary media. As a rule, it is not possible to ascertain whether a concrete specimen of money substitutes is a money certificate or a fiduciary medium. A part of the total amount of money substitutes issued is usually covered by a money reserve held. Thus, a part of the total amount of money substitutes issued is money certificates, the rest fiduciary media. But this fact can only be recognized by those familiar with the bank's balance sheets. The individual banknote, deposit, or token coin does not indicate its catalactic character. The issue of money certificates does not increase the funds which the bank can employ in the conduct of its lending business. A bank which does not issue fiduciary media can only grant commodity credit. That is, it can only lend its own funds and the amount of money which its customers have entrusted to it. The issue of fiduciary media enlarges the bank's funds available for lending beyond these limits. It can now not only grant commodity credit, but also circulation credit, that is, credit granted out of the issue of fiduciary media. While the quantity of money certificates is indifferent, the quantity of fiduciary media is not. The fiduciary media affect the market phenomena in the same way as money does. Changes in their quantity influence the determination of money's purchasing power, and of prices, and, temporarily, also of the rate of interest. Earlier economists applied a different terminology. Many were prepared to call the money substitutes simply money, as they are fit to render the services money renders. However, this terminology is not expedient. The first purpose of a scientific terminology is to facilitate the analysis of the problems involved. The task of the catalactic theory of money, as differentiated from the legal theory and from the technical disciplines of bank management and accountancy, is the study of the problems of the determination of prices and interest rates. This task requires a sharp distinction between money certificates and fiduciary media. The term credit expansion has often been misinterpreted. It is important to realize that commodity credit cannot be expanded. The only vehicle of credit expansion is circulation credit. But the granting of circulation credit does not always mean credit expansion. If the amount of fiduciary media previously issued has consummated all its effects upon the market, if prices, wage rates, and interest rates have been adjusted to the total supply of money proper plus fiduciary media, supply of money in the broader sense, 
granting of circulation credit without a further increase in the quantity of fiduciary media is no longer credit expansion. Credit expansion is present only if credit is granted by the issue of an additional amount of fiduciary media, not if banks lend a new fiduciary media paid back to them by the old debtors. 12. The Limitation on the Issuance of Fiduciary Media People deal with money substitutes as if they were money because they are fully confident that it will be possible to exchange them at any time, without delay and without cost, against money. We may call those who share in this confidence and are therefore ready to deal with money substitutes as if they were money the clients of the issuing banker, bank, or authority. It does not matter whether or not this issuing establishment is operated according to the patterns of conduct customary in the banking business. Token coins issued by a country's treasury are money substitutes too, although the treasury as a rule does not enter the amount issued into its accounts as a liability and does not consider this amount a part of the national debt. It is no less immaterial whether or not the owner of a money substitute has an actionable claim to redemption. What counts is whether the money substitute can really be exchanged against money without delay and cost. It is furthermore immaterial whether or not the laws assign to the money substitute's legal tender quality. If these things are really dealt with by people as money substitutes, and are therefore money substitutes and equal in purchasing power to the respective amount of money, the only effect of the legal tender quality is to prevent malicious people from resorting to chicanery for the mere sake of annoying their fellow men. If, however, the things concerned are not money substitutes and are traded at a discount below their face value, the assignment of legal tender quality is tantamount to an authoritarian price ceiling, the fixing of a maximum price for gold and foreign exchange, and of a minimum price for the things which are no longer money substitutes but either credit money or fiat money. Then the effects appear, which Gresham's Law describes. Issuing money certificates is an expensive venture. The banknotes must be printed, the token coins minted, a complicated accounting system for the deposits must be organized, the reserves must be kept in safety. Then there is the risk of being cheated by counterfeit banknotes and checks, Against all these expenses stands only the slight chance that some of the banknotes issued may be destroyed, and the still slighter chance that some depositors may forget their deposits. Issuing money certificates is a ruinous business, if not connected with issuing fiduciary media. In the early history of banking there were banks whose only operation consisted in issuing money certificates. But these banks were indemnified by their clients for the costs incurred. At any rate, Catalactics is not interested in the purely technical problems of banks not issuing fiduciary media. The only interest that Catalactics takes in money certificates is the connection between issuing them and the issuing of fiduciary media.
While the quantity of money certificates is catalactically unimportant, an increase or decrease in the quantity of fiduciary media affects the determination of money's purchasing power in the same way as do changes in the quantity of money. Hence the question of whether there are or are not limits to the increase in the quantity of fiduciary media has fundamental importance. If the clientele of the bank includes all members of the market economy, the limit to the issue of fiduciary media is the same as that drawn to the increase in the quantity of money. A bank which is, in an isolated country or in the whole world, the only institution issuing fiduciary media, and the clientele of which comprises all individuals and firms, is bound to comply in its conduct of affairs with two rules. First, it must avoid any action which could make the clients, that is, the public, suspicious. As soon as the clients begin to lose confidence, they will ask for the redemption of the banknotes and withdraw their deposits. How far the bank can go on increasing its issues of fiduciary media without arousing distrust depends on psychological conditions. Second, it must not increase the amount of fiduciary media at such a rate and with such speed that the clients get the conviction that the rise in prices will continue endlessly at an accelerated pace. For if the public believes that this is the case, they will reduce their cash holdings, flee into real values, and bring about the crack-up boom. It is impossible to imagine the approach of this catastrophe without assuming that its first manifestation consists in the evanescence of confidence. The public will certainly prefer exchanging the fiduciary media against money to fleeing into real values, that is, to the indiscriminate buying of various commodities. Then the bank must go bankrupt. If the government interferes by freeing the bank from the obligation of redeeming its banknotes and of paying back the deposits in compliance with the terms of the contract, the fiduciary media become either credit money or fiat money. The suspension of specie payments entirely changes the state of affairs. There is no longer any question of fiduciary media, of money certificates, and of money substitutes. The government enters the scene with its government-made legal tender laws. The bank loses its independent existence. It becomes a tool of government policies, a subordinate office of the Treasury. The catalactically most important problems of the issuance of fiduciary media on the part of a single bank, or of banks acting in concert, the clientele of which comprehends all individuals, are not those of the limitations drawn to the amount of their issuance. We will deal with them in Chapter 20, devoted to the relations between the quantity of money and the rate of interest. At this point of our investigations, we have to scrutinize the problem of the coexistence of a multiplicity of independent banks. Independence means that every bank in issuing fiduciary media follows its own course and does not act in concert with other banks. Coexistence means that every bank has a clientele which does not include all members of the market system. 
For the sake of simplicity, we will assume that no individual or firm is a client of more than one bank. It would not affect the result of our demonstration if we were to assume that there are also people who are clients of more than one bank, and people who are not clients of any bank. The question to be raised is not whether or not there are limits to the issuance of fiduciary media on the part of such independently coexisting banks. As there are even limits to the issuance of fiduciary media on the part of a unique bank, the clientele of which comprises all people, it is obvious that there are such limits for a multiplicity of independently coexisting banks, too. What we want to show is that for such a multiplicity of independently coexisting banks, the limits are narrower than those drawn for a single bank with an unlimited clientele. We assume that within a market system several independent banks have been established in the past. While previously only money was in use, these banks have introduced the use of money substitutes, a part of which are fiduciary media. Each bank has a clientele and has issued a certain quantity of fiduciary media which are kept as money substitutes in the cash holdings of various clients. The total quantity of the fiduciary media, as issued by the banks and absorbed by the cash holdings of their clients, has altered the structure of prices and the monetary unit's purchasing power. But these effects have already been consummated, and at present the market is no longer stirred by any movements generated from this past credit expansion. But now we assume further, one bank alone embarks upon an additional issue of fiduciary media, while the other banks do not follow suit. The clients of the expanding bank, whether it's old clients or new ones acquired on account of the expansion, receive additional credits. They expand their business activities. They appear on the market with an additional demand for goods and services. They bid up prices. Those people who are not clients of the expanding bank are not in a position to afford these higher prices. They are forced to restrict their purchases. Thus there prevails on the market a shifting of goods from the non-clients to the clients of the expanding bank. The clients buy more from the non-clients than they sell to them. They have more to pay to the non-clients than they receive from them. But money substitutes issued by the expanding bank are not suitable for payments to non-clients, as these people do not assign to them the character of money substitutes. In order to settle the payments due to non-clients, the clients must first exchange the money substitutes issued by their own, namely the expanding bank, against money. The expanding bank must redeem its banknotes and pay out its deposits. Its reserve, we suppose that only a part of the money substitutes it had issued had the character of fiduciary media, dwindles. The instant approaches in which the bank will, after the exhaustion of its money reserve, no longer be in a position to redeem the money substitutes still current. In order to avoid insolvency, it must, as soon as possible, return to a policy of strengthening its money reserve. It must abandon its expansionist methods.
This reaction of the market to a credit expansion on the part of a bank with a limited clientele has been brilliantly described by the currency school. The special case dealt with by the currency school referred to the coincidence of credit expansion on the part of one country's privileged central bank, or of all banks of one country, and of a non-expansionist policy on the part of the banks of other countries. Our demonstration covers the more general case of the coexistence of a multiplicity of banks with different clientele, as well as the most general case of the existence of one bank with a limited clientele, in a system in which the rest of the people do not patronize any bank and do not consider any claims as money substitutes. It does not matter, of course, whether one assumes that the clients of a bank live neatly separated from those of the other banks in a definite district or country, or whether they live together with those of the other banks. These are merely differences in the data not affecting the catalactic problems involved. A bank can never issue more money substitutes than its clients can keep in their cash holdings. The individual client can never keep a larger portion of his total cash holding in money substitutes than that corresponding to the proportion of his turnover with other clients of his bank to his total turnover. For considerations of convenience, he will, as a rule, remain far below this maximum proportion. Thus a limit is drawn to the issue of fiduciary media. We may admit that everybody is ready to accept in his current transactions indiscriminately banknotes issued by any bank and checks drawn upon any bank. But he deposits without delay with his own bank not only the checks but also the banknotes of banks of which he is not himself a client. In the further course, his bank settles its accounts with the bank engaged. Thus, the process described above comes into motion. A lot of nonsense has been written about a perverse predilection of the public for banknotes issued by dubious banks. The truth is that except for small groups of businessmen who were able to distinguish between good and bad banks, banknotes were always looked upon with distrust. It was the special charters which the governments granted to privileged banks that slowly made these suspicions disappear. The often advanced argument that small banknotes come into the hands of poor and ignorant people who cannot distinguish between good and bad notes cannot be taken seriously. The poorer the recipient of a banknote is, and the less familiar he is with bank affairs, the more quickly will he spend the note, and the more quickly will it return, by way of retail and wholesale trade, to the issuing bank, or to people conversant with banking conditions. It is very easy for a bank to increase the number of people who are ready to accept loans granted by credit expansion, and paid out in an amount of money substitutes but it is very difficult for any bank to enlarge its clientele, that is, the number of people who are ready to consider these claims as money substitutes and to keep them as such in their cash holdings. To enlarge this clientele is a troublesome and slow process, as is the acquisition of any kind of goodwill. On the other hand, a bank can lose its clientele very quickly, 
If it wants to preserve it, it must never permit any doubt about its ability and readiness to discharge all its liabilities in due compliance with the terms of the contract. A reserve must be kept large enough to redeem all banknotes which a holder may submit for redemption. Therefore, no bank can content itself with issuing fiduciary media only. It must keep a reserve against the total amount of money substitutes issued, and thus combine issuing fiduciary media and money certificates. It was a serious blunder to believe that the reserve's task is to provide the means for the redemption of those banknotes, the holders of which have lost confidence in the bank. The confidence which a bank and the money substitutes it has issued enjoy is indivisible. It is either present with all its clients, or it vanishes entirely. If some of the clients lose confidence, the rest of them lose it too. No bank issuing fiduciary media and granting circulation credit can fulfill the obligations which it has taken over in issuing money substitutes if all clients are losing confidence and want to have their banknotes redeemed and their deposits paid back. This is an essential feature or weakness of the business of issuing fiduciary media and granting circulation credit. No system of reserve policy and no reserve requirements as enforced by the laws can remedy it. All that a reserve can do is to make it possible for the bank to withdraw from the market an excessive amount of fiduciary media issued. If the bank has issued more banknotes than its clients can use in doing business with other clients, it must redeem such an excess. The laws which compelled the banks to keep a reserve in a definite ratio of the total amount of deposits and of banknotes issued were effective insofar as they restricted the increase in the amount of fiduciary media and of circulation credit. They were futile, as far as they aimed at safeguarding, in the event of a loss of confidence, the prompt redemption of the banknotes and the prompt payment of deposits. The banking school failed entirely in dealing with these problems. It was confused by a spurious idea according to which the requirements of business rigidly limit the maximum amount of convertible banknotes that a bank can issue. They did not see that the demand of the public for credit is a magnitude dependent on the bank's readiness to lend and that banks which do not bother about their own solvency are in a position to expand circulation credit by lowering the rate of interest below the market rate. It is not true that the maximum amount which a bank can lend if it limits its lending to discounting short-term bills of exchange resulting from the sale and purchase of raw materials and half-manufactured goods is a quantity uniquely determined by the state of business and independent of the bank's policies. This quantity expands or shrinks with the lowering or raising of the rate of discount. Lowering the rate of interest is tantamount to increasing the quantity of what is mistakenly considered as the fair and normal requirements of business. The currency school gave a quite correct explanation of the recurring crises as they upset English business conditions in the thirties and forties of the nineteenth century. 
There was credit expansion on the part of the Bank of England and the other British banks and bankers. While there was no credit expansion, or at least not to the same degree, in the countries with which Great Britain traded. The external drain occurred as the necessary consequence of this state of affairs. Everything that the banking school advanced in order to refute this theory was vain. Unfortunately, the currency school erred in two respects. It never realized that the remedy it suggested, namely strict legal limitation of the amount of banknotes issued beyond the specie reserve, was not the only one. It never gave a thought to the idea of free banking. The second fault of the currency school was that it failed to recognize that deposits subject to check are money substitutes, and, as far as their amount exceeds the reserve kept, fiduciary media, and consequently no less a vehicle of credit expansion than our banknotes. It was the only merit of the banking school that it recognized that what is called deposit currency is a money substitute, no less than banknotes. But except for this point, all the doctrines of the banking school were spurious. It was guided by contradictory ideas concerning money's neutrality. It tried to refute the quantity theory of money by referring to a deus ex machina, the much-talked-about hordes, and it misconstrued entirely the problems of the rate of interest. It must be emphasized that the problem of legal restrictions upon the issue of fiduciary media could emerge only because governments had granted special privileges to one or several banks, and had thus prevented the free evolution of banking. If the governments had never interfered for the benefit of special banks, if they had never released some banks from the obligation incumbent upon all individuals and firms in the market economy to settle their liabilities in full compliance with the terms of the contract, no bank problem would have come into being. The limits which are drawn to credit expansion would have worked effectively. Considerations of its own solvency would have forced every bank to cautious restraint in issuing fiduciary media. Those banks which would not have observed these indispensable rules would have gone bankrupt, and the public, warned through damage, would have become doubly suspicious and reserved. The attitudes of the European governments and their satellites with regard to banking were from the beginning insincere and mendacious. The pretended solicitude for the nation's welfare, for the public in general, and for the poor ignorant masses in particular, was a mere blind. The governments wanted inflation and credit expansion. They wanted booms and easy money. Those Americans who twice succeeded in doing away with a central bank were aware of the dangers of such institutions. It was only too bad that they failed to see that the evils they fought were present in every kind of government interference with banking. Today, even the most bigoted etatists cannot deny that all the alleged evils of free banking count little when compared with the disastrous effects of the tremendous inflations which the privileged and government-controlled banks have brought about. It is a fable that governments interfered with banking in order to restrict the issue of fiduciary media and to prevent credit expansion. 
The idea that guided governments was, on the contrary, the lust for inflation and credit expansion. They privileged banks because they wanted to widen the limits drawn to credit expansion by conditions prevailing on the unhampered market, or because they were eager to open to the treasury a source of revenue. For the most part, both of these considerations motivated the authorities. They were convinced that the fiduciary media are an efficient means of lowering the rate of interest, and asked the banks to expand credit for the benefit of both business and the treasury. Only when the undesired effects of credit expansion became visible were laws enacted to restrict the issue of banknotes, and sometimes also of deposits, not covered by specie. The establishment of free banking was never seriously considered, precisely because it would have been too efficient in restricting credit expansion. For rulers, writers, and the public were unanimous in the belief that business has a fair claim to a normal and necessary amount of circulation credit, and that this amount could not be attained under free banking. The notion of normal credit expansion is absurd. Issuance of additional fiduciary media, no matter what its quantity may be, always sets in motion those changes in the price structure, the description of which is the task of the theory of the trade cycle. Of course, if the additional amount issued is not large, neither are the inevitable effects of the expansion. Many governments never looked upon the issuance of fiduciary media from a point of view other than that of fiscal concerns. In their eyes, the foremost task of the banks was to lend money to the treasury. The money substitutes were pacemakers for government-issued paper money. The convertible banknote was merely a first step on the way to the non-redeemable banknote. With the progress of statolatry and the policy of interventionism, these ideas have become general and are no longer questioned by anybody. No government is willing today to give any thought to the program of free banking, because no government wants to renounce what it considers a handy source of revenue. What is called today financial war preparedness is merely the ability to procure by means of privileged and government-controlled banks all the money a warring nation may need. Radical inflationism, although not admitted explicitly, is an essential feature of the economic ideology of our age. But even at the time liberalism enjoyed its highest prestige, and governments were more eager to preserve peace and well-being than to foment war, death, destruction, and misery, people were biased in dealing with the problems of banking. Outside of the Anglo-Saxon countries, public opinion was convinced that it is one of the main tasks of good government to lower the rate of interest, and that credit expansion is the appropriate means for the attainment of this end. Great Britain was free from these errors when, in 1844, it reformed its bank laws. But the two shortcomings of the currency school vitiated this famous act. On one hand, the system of government interference with banking was preserved. On the other hand, limits were placed only on the issuance of banknotes not covered by specie. The fiduciary media were suppressed only in the shape of banknotes. They could thrive as deposit currency. 
In carrying the idea implied in the currency theory to its full logical conclusion, one could suggest that all banks be forced by law to keep against the total amount of money substitutes, banknotes plus demand deposits, a 100% money reserve. This is the core of Professor Irving Fisher's 100% plan. But Professor Fisher combined his plan with his proposals concerning the adoption of an index number standard. It has been pointed out already why such a scheme is illusory and tantamount to open approval of the government's power to manipulate purchasing power according to the appetites of powerful pressure groups. But even if the 100% reserve plan were to be adopted on the basis of the unadulterated gold standard, it would not entirely remove the drawbacks inherent in every kind of government interference with banking. What is needed to prevent any further credit expansion is to place the banking business under the general rules of commercial and civil laws, compelling every individual and firm to fulfill all obligations in full compliance with the terms of the contract. If banks are preserved as privileged establishments, subject to special legislative provisions, the tool remains that governments can use for fiscal purposes. Then every restriction imposed upon the issuance of fiduciary media depends upon the government's and the parliament's good intentions. They may limit the issuance for periods which are called normal. The restriction will be withdrawn whenever a government deems that an emergency justifies resorting to extraordinary measures. If an administration and the party backing it want to increase expenditure without jeopardizing their popularity through the imposition of higher taxes, they will always be ready to call their impasse an emergency. Recourse to the printing press and to the obsequiousness of bank managers willing to oblige the authorities regulating their conduct of affairs is the foremost means of governments eager to spend money for purposes for which the taxpayers are not ready to pay higher taxes. Free banking is the only method available for the prevention of the dangers inherent in credit expansion. It would, it is true, not hinder a slow credit expansion, kept within very narrow limits on the part of cautious banks which provide the public with all information required about their financial status. But under free banking, it would have been impossible for credit expansion with all its inevitable consequences to have developed into a regular, one is tempted to say, normal, feature of the economic system. Only free banking would have rendered the market economy secure against crises and depressions. Looking backward upon the history of the last hundred years, one cannot help realizing that the blunders committed by liberalism in handling the problems of banking were a deadly blow to the market economy. There was no reason whatever to abandon the principle of free enterprise in the field of banking. The majority of liberal politicians simply surrendered to the popular hostility against money lending and interest taking. They failed to realize that the rate of interest is a market phenomenon which cannot be manipulated ad libitum by the authorities or by any other agency. 
they adopted the superstition that lowering the rate of interest is beneficial, and that credit expansion is the right means of attaining such cheap money. Nothing harmed the cause of liberalism more than the almost regular return of feverish booms and of the dramatic breakdown of bull markets followed by lingering slumps. Public opinion has become convinced that such happenings are inevitable in the unhampered market economy. People did not conceive that what they lamented was the necessary outcome of policies directed toward a lowering of the rate of interest by means of credit expansion. They stubbornly kept to these policies and tried in vain to fight their undesired consequences by more and more government interference. Observations on the Discussions Concerning Free Banking The banking school taught that an overissuance of banknotes is impossible if the bank limits its business to the granting of short-term loans. When the loan is paid back at maturity, the banknotes return to the bank and thus disappear from the market. However, this happens only if the bank restricts the amount of credits granted. But even then, it would not undo the effects of its previous credit expansion. It would merely add to it the effects of a later credit contraction. The regular course of affairs is that the bank replaces the bills expired and paid back by discounting new bills of exchange. Then, to the amount of banknotes withdrawn from the market by the repayment of the earlier loan, there corresponds an amount of newly issued banknotes. The concatenation which sets a limit to credit expansion under a system of free banking works in a different way. It has no reference whatever to the process which this so-called principle of Fullerton has in mind. It is brought about by the fact that credit expansion in itself does not expand a bank's clientele, namely the number of people who assign to the demand claims against this bank the character of money substitutes. Since the overissuance of fiduciary media on the part of one bank, as has been shown above, increases the amount to be paid by the expanding bank's clients to other people, it increases concomitantly the demand for the redemption of its money substitutes. It thus forces the expanding bank back to a restraint. This fact was never questioned with regard to demand deposits subject to check. It is obvious that an expanding bank would very soon find itself in a difficult position in clearing with other banks. However, people sometimes maintain that things are different as far as banknotes are concerned. In dealing with the problems of money substitutes, Catalactics maintains that the claims in question are dealt with by a number of people, like money, that they are, like money, given away and received in transactions and kept in cash holdings. Everything that Catalactics asserts with regard to money substitutes presupposes this state of affairs. But it would be preposterous to believe that every banknote issued by any bank really becomes a money substitute. What makes a banknote a money substitute is the special kind of goodwill of the issuing bank. 
the slightest doubt concerning the bank's ability or willingness to redeem every banknote without any delay at any time and with no expense to the bearer impairs this special goodwill and removes the banknote's character as a money substitute. We may assume that everybody not only is prepared to get such questionable banknotes as a loan, but also prefers to receive them as payment instead of waiting longer. But if any doubts exist concerning their prime character, people will hurry to get rid of them as soon as possible. They will keep in their cash holdings money and such money substitutes as they consider perfectly safe, and will dispose of the suspect banknotes. These banknotes will be traded at a discount, and this fact will carry them back to the issuing bank, which alone is bound to redeem them at their full face value. The issue can still better be clarified by reviewing banking conditions in continental Europe. Here the commercial banks were free from any limitation concerning the amount of deposits subject to check. They would have been in a position to grant circulation credit and thus expand credit by adopting the methods applied by the banks of the Anglo-Saxon countries. However, the public was not ready to treat such bank deposits as money substitutes. As a rule, a man who received a check cashed it immediately and thereby withdrew the amount from the bank. It was impossible for a commercial bank to lend, except for negligible sums, by crediting the debtor's account. As soon as the debtor wrote out a check, a withdrawal of the amount concerned from the bank resulted. Only a small group of big business treated deposits with the country's central bank of issue, not those with the commercial banks, as money substitutes. Although the central banks in most of these countries were not submitted to any legal restrictions with regard to their deposit business, they were prevented from using it as a vehicle of large-scale credit expansion because the clientele for deposit currency was too small. Banknotes were practically the sole instrument of circulation credit and credit expansion. Similar conditions prevailed, and for the most part still prevail, by and large, in all countries of the world which are outside the pale of Anglo-Saxon banking methods. In the 80s of the 19th century, the Austrian government embarked upon a project of popularizing checkbook money by establishing a checking account department with the Post Office Savings Service. It succeeded to some degree. Balances with this department of the post office were treated as money substitutes by a clientele which was broader than that of the checking account department of the country's central bank of issue. The system was later preserved by the new states, which in 1918 succeeded the Habsburg Empire. It has also been adopted by many other European nations, for instance, Germany. It is important to realize that this kind of deposit currency was a purely governmental venture, and that the circulation credit that the system granted was exclusively lent to the governments. It is characteristic that the name of the Austrian Post Office Savings Institution, and likewise of most of its foreign replicas, was not Savings Bank, but Savings Office. 
Apart from these demand deposits with the government post system in most of the non-Anglo-Saxon countries, banknotes, and, to a small extent, also deposits with the government-controlled central bank of issue, are the only vehicles of circulation credit. In speaking of credit expansion with regard to these countries, one refers almost entirely to banknotes. In the United States, many employers pay salaries and even wages by writing out checks. As far as the payees immediately cash the checks received and withdraw the whole amount from the bank, the method means merely that the onerous burden of manipulating coins and banknotes is shifted from the employer's cashier to the bank's cashier. It has no catalactic implications. If all citizens were to deal in this way with checks received, the deposits would not be money substitutes and could not be used as instruments of circulation credit. It is solely the fact that a considerable part of the public looks upon deposits as money substitutes that makes them what is popularly called checkbook money or deposit currency. It is a mistake to associate with the notion of free banking the image of a state of affairs under which everybody is free to issue banknotes and to cheat the public ad libitum. People often refer to the dictum of an anonymous American quoted by Took, Free trade in banking is free trade in swindling. However, Freedom in the issuance of banknotes would have narrowed down the use of banknotes considerably if it had not entirely suppressed it. It was this idea which Chernusky advanced in the hearings of the French banking inquiry on October 24, 1865. I believe that what is called freedom of banking would result in a total suppression of banknotes in France. I want to give everybody the right to issue banknotes so that nobody should take any banknotes any longer. People may uphold the opinion that banknotes are more handy than coins and that considerations of convenience recommend their use. As far as this is the case, the public would be prepared to pay a premium for the avoidance of the inconveniences involved in carrying a heavy weight of coins in their pockets. Thus, in earlier days, banknotes issued by banks of unquestionable solvency stood at a slight premium, as against metallic currency. Thus, travelers' checks are rather popular, although the bank issuing them charges a commission for their issuance. But all this has no reference whatever to the problem in question. It does not provide a justification for the policies urging the public to resort to the use of banknotes. Governments did not foster the use of banknotes in order to avoid inconvenience to ladies' shopping. Their idea was to lower the rate of interest and to open a source of cheap credit to their treasuries. In their eyes, the increase in the quantity of fiduciary media was a means of promoting welfare. Banknotes are not indispensable. All the economic achievements of capitalism would have been accomplished if they had never existed. Besides, deposit currency can do all the things banknotes do, 
and government interference with the deposits of commercial banks cannot be justified by the hypocritical pretext that poor ignorant wage earners and farmers must be protected against wicked bankers. But, some people may ask, what about a cartel of the commercial banks? Could not the banks collude for the sake of a boundless expansion of their issuance of fiduciary media? The objection is preposterous. As long as the public is not, by government interference, deprived of the right of withdrawing its deposits, no bank can risk its own goodwill by collusion with banks whose goodwill is not so high as its own. One must not forget that every bank issuing fiduciary media is in a rather precarious position. Its most valuable asset is its reputation. It must go bankrupt as soon as doubts arise concerning its perfect trustworthiness and solvency. It would be suicidal for a bank of good standing to link its name with that of other banks with a poorer goodwill. Under free banking, a cartel of the banks would destroy the country's whole banking system. It would not serve the interests of any bank. For the most part, the banks of good repute are blamed for their conservatism and their reluctance to expand credit. In the eyes of people not deserving of credit, such restraint appears as a vice. But it is the first and supreme rule for the conduct of banking operations under free banking. It is extremely difficult for our contemporaries to conceive of the conditions of free banking because they take government interference with banking for granted and as necessary. However, one must remember that this government interference was based on the erroneous assumption that credit expansion is a proper means of lowering the rate of interest permanently and without harm to anybody but the callous capitalists. The governments interfered precisely because they knew that free banking keeps credit expansion within narrow limits. Economists may be right in asserting that the present state of banking makes government interference with banking problems advisable, but this present state of banking is not the outcome of the operation of the unhampered market economy. It is a product of the various governments' attempts to bring about the conditions required for large-scale credit expansion. If the governments had never interfered, the use of banknotes and of deposit currency would be limited to those strata of the population who know very well how to distinguish between solvent and insolvent banks. No large-scale credit expansion would have been possible. The governments alone are responsible for the spread of the superstitious awe with which the common man looks upon every bit of paper upon which the treasury or agencies which it controls have printed the magical words, legal tender. Government interference with the present state of banking affairs could be justified if its aim were to liquidate the unsatisfactory conditions by preventing, or at least seriously restricting, any further credit expansion. In fact, the chief objective of present-day government interference is to intensify further credit expansion. This policy is doomed to failure. Sooner or later, it must result in a catastrophe. 13. 
The Size and Composition of Cash Holdings The total amount of money and money substitutes is kept by individuals and firms in their cash holdings. The share of each is determined by marginal utility. Each is eager to keep a certain portion of his total wealth in cash. He gets rid of an excess of cash by increased purchases and remedies a deficiency of cash by increased sales. The popular terminology confusing the demand for money for cash holding and the demand for wealth and vendable goods must not delude an economist. What is valid with regard to individuals and firms is no less true with regard to every sum of the cash holdings of a number of individuals and firms. The point of view from which we treat a number of such individuals and firms as a totality and sum up their cash holdings is immaterial. The cash holdings of a city, a province, or a country is the sum of the cash holdings of all its residents. Let us assume that the market economy uses only one kind of money, and that money substitutes are either unknown or used in the whole area by everybody without any difference. There are, for example, gold money and redeemable banknotes issued by a world bank and treated by everybody as money substitutes. On these assumptions, measures hindering the exchange of commodities and services do not affect the state of monetary affairs and the size of cash holdings. Tariffs, embargoes, and migration barriers affect the tendencies toward an equalization of prices, wages, and interest rates. They do not react directly upon cash holdings. If a government aims at increasing the amount of cash kept by its subjects, it must order them to deposit a certain amount with an office and to leave it there untouched. The necessity of procuring this amount would force everybody to sell more and to buy less. Domestic prices would drop. Exports would be increased and imports reduced. A quantity of cash would be imported. But if the government were simply to obstruct the importation of goods and the exportation of money, it would fail to attain its goal. If imports drop, other things being equal, exports drop concomitantly. The role money plays in international trade is not different from that which it plays in domestic trade. Money is no less a medium of exchange in foreign trade than it is in domestic trade. Both in domestic trade and in international trade, purchases and sales result in a more than passing change in the cash holdings of individuals and firms, only if people are purposely intent upon increasing or restricting the size of their cash holdings. A surplus of money flows into a country only when its residents are more eager to increase their cash holdings than are the foreigners. An outflow of money occurs only if the residents are more eager to reduce their cash holdings than are the foreigners. A transfer of money from one country into another country, which is not compensated by a transfer in the opposite direction, is never the unintended result of international trade transactions. It is always the outcome of intended changes in the cash holdings of the residents. 
just as wheat is exported only if a country's residents want to export a surplus of wheat. So money is exported, only if the residents want to export a sum of money, which they consider as a surplus. If a country turns to the employment of money substitutes, which are not employed abroad, such a surplus emerges. The appearance of these money substitutes is tantamount to an increase in the country's supply of money in the broader sense, that is, supply of money plus fiduciary media. It brings about a surplus in the supply of money in the broader sense. The residents are eager to get rid of their share in the surplus by increasing their purchases, either of domestic or of foreign goods. In the first case, exports drop, and in the second case, imports increase. In both cases, the surplus of money goes abroad. As, according to our assumption, money substitutes cannot be exported, only money proper flows out. The result is that within the domestic supply of money in the broader sense, money plus fiduciary media, the portion of money drops and the portion of fiduciary media increases. The domestic stock of money in the narrower sense is now smaller than it was previously. Now we assume further the domestic money substitutes cease to be money substitutes. The bank which issued them no longer redeems them in money. These former money substitutes are now claims against a bank which does not fulfill its obligations, a bank whose ability and willingness to pay its debts is questionable. Nobody knows whether and when they will ever be redeemed. But it may be that these claims are used by the public as credit money. As money substitutes, they had been considered as equivalents of the sum of money to which they gave a claim payable at any moment. As credit money, they are now traded at a discount. At this point, the government may interfere. It decrees that these pieces of credit money are legal tender at their face value. Very often the legal tender quality had been granted to these banknotes at a time when they still were money substitutes, and as such equal to money in their exchange value. At that time the decree had no catalactic importance. Now it becomes important, because the market no longer considers them money substitutes. Every creditor is bound to accept them in payment at their face value, no trader is free to discriminate against them. The decree tries to force the public to treat things of different exchange value as if they had the same exchange value. It interferes with the structure of prices as determined by the market. It fixes minimum prices for the credit money and maximum prices for the commodity money, gold, and for an exchange. The result is not what the government aimed at. The difference in exchange value between credit money and gold does not disappear. As it is forbidden to employ the coins according to their market price, people no longer employ them in buying and selling and in paying debts. They keep them or they export them. The commodity money disappears from the domestic market. 
Bad money, says Gresham's law, drives good money out of the country. It would be more correct to say that the money which the government's decree has undervalued disappears from the market, and the money which the decree has overvalued remains. The outflow of commodity money is thus not the effect of an unfavorable balance of payments, but the effect of a government interference with the price structure. 14. Balances of Payments The confrontation of the money equivalent of all incomings and outgoings of an individual or a group of individuals during any particular period of time is called the balance of payments. The credit side and the debit side are always equal. The balance is always in balance. If we want to know an individual's position in the frame of the market economy, we must look at his balance of payments. It tells us everything about the role he plays in the system of the social division of labor. It shows what he gives to his fellow men and what he receives or takes from them. It shows whether he is a self-supporting, decent citizen, or a thief, or an almsman. It shows whether he consumes all his proceeds, or whether he saves a part of them. There are many human things which are not reflected in the sheets of the ledger. There are virtues and achievements, vices and crimes, that do not leave any traces in the accounts. But as far as a man is integrated into social life and activities— as far as he contributes to the joint effort of society, and his contributions are appreciated by his fellow men, and as far as he consumes what is or could be sold and bought on the market, the information conveyed is complete. If we combine the balances of payments of a definite number of individuals, and leave out of account the items referring to transactions between the members of this group, we draw up the group's balance of payment. This balance tells us how the members of the group, considered as an integrated complex of people, are connected with the rest of the market society. Thus we can draw up the balance of payments of the members of the New York Bar, of the Belgian farmers, of the residents of Paris, or of those of the Swiss canton of Bern. Statisticians are mostly interested in establishing the balance of payments of the residents of the various countries, which are organized as independent nations. While an individual's balance of payments conveys exhaustive information about his social position, a group's balance discloses much less. It says nothing about the mutual relations between the members of the group. The greater the group is, and the less homogeneous its members are, the more defective is the information vouchsafed by the balance of payments. The balance of payments of Latvia tells more about the conditions of the Latvians than the United States' balance of payments about the conditions of the Americans. If one wants to describe a country's social and economic condition, one does not need to deal with every single inhabitant's personal balance of payments, but one must not form other groups than such as are composed of members who are by and large homogeneous in their social standing and their economic activities. Reading balances of payments is thus very instructive. 
However, one must know how to interpret them, to guard against popular fallacies. It is customary to list separately the monetary and the non-monetary items of a country's balance of payments. One calls the balance favorable if there is a surplus of the imports of money and bullion over the exports of money and bullion. One calls the balance unfavorable if the exports of money and bullion exceed the imports. This terminology stems from inveterate mercantilist errors, unfortunately still surviving in spite of the devastating criticisms of the economists. The imports and exports of money and bullion are viewed as the unintentional outcome of the configuration of the non-monetary items of the balance of payments. This opinion is utterly fallacious. An excess in the exports of money and bullion is not the product of an unhappy concatenation of circumstances that befalls a nation like an act of God. It is the result of the fact that the residents of the country concerned are intent upon reducing the amount of money held, and upon buying goods instead. This is why the balance of payments of the gold-producing countries is, as a rule, unfavorable. This is why the balance of payments of a country substituting fiduciary media for a part of its money stock is unfavorable as long as this process goes on. No provident action on the part of a paternal authority is required lest a country lose its whole money stock by an unfavorable balance of payments. Things are, in this regard, not different between the personal balances of payments of individuals and those of groups. Neither are they different between the balances of payments of a city or a district and those of a sovereign nation. No government interference is needed to prevent the residents of New York from spending all their money in dealings with the other 47 states of the Union. As long as any American attaches any weight to the keeping of cash, he will spontaneously take charge of the matter. Thus he will contribute his share to the maintenance of an adequate supply of money in his country. But if no American were interested in keeping any cash holding, no government measure concerning foreign trade and the settlement of international payments could prevent an outflow of America's total monetary stock. A rigidly enforced embargo upon the exportation of money and bullion would be required. 15. Interlocal Exchange Rates let us first assume that there is only one kind of money. Then, with regard to money's purchasing power at various places, the same is valid as with regard to commodity prices. The final price of cotton in Liverpool cannot exceed the final price in Houston, Texas, by more than the cost of transportation. As soon as the price in Liverpool rises to a higher point, merchants will ship cotton to Liverpool, and thus will bring about a tendency toward a return to the final price. The price of an order for the payment of a definite amount of guilders in Amsterdam cannot rise in New York above the amount determined by the costs involved by remitting the coins, shipment, insurance, and the interest during the period required for all these manipulations. As soon as the difference rises above this point, 
the gold export point, it becomes profitable to ship gold from New York to Amsterdam. Such shipments force the Gilder exchange rate in New York down below the gold export point. A difference between the configuration of interlocal exchange rates for commodities and those for money is brought about by the fact that, as a rule, commodities move only in one direction, namely from the places of surplus production to those of surplus consumption. Cotton is shipped from Houston to Liverpool, and not from Liverpool to Houston. Its price is lower in Houston than in Liverpool by the amount of shipping costs. But money is shipped now this way, now that. The error of those who try to interpret the fluctuations of the interlocal exchange rates and the interlocal shipments of money as determined by the configuration of the non-monetary items of the balance of payments is that they assign to money an exceptional position. They do not see that with regard to interlocal exchange rates there is no difference between money and commodities. If cotton trade between Houston and Liverpool is possible at all, the cotton prices at these two places cannot differ by more than the total amount of costs required for shipment. In the same way in which there is a flow of cotton from the southern states of the United States to Europe, gold flows from the gold-producing countries like South Africa to Europe. Let us disregard the case of the gold-producing countries, and let us assume that the individuals and firms trading with one another on the basis of the gold standard do not have the intention of changing the size of their cash holdings. From their purchases and sales, claims are generated, which necessitate interlocal payments. But according to our assumption, these interlocal payments are equal in amount. The amount that the residents of A have to pay to the residents of B is equal to the amount that the residents of B have to pay to the residents of A. It is therefore possible to save the costs of shipping gold from A to B and from B to A. Claims and debts can be settled by a sort of interlocal clearing. It is merely a technical problem whether this evening up is affected by an interlocal clearinghouse organization or by the turnovers of a special market for foreign exchange. At any rate, the price which a resident of A or of B has to pay for a payment due in B or in A is kept within the margins determined by the shipment costs. It cannot rise above the par value by more than the shipment costs, gold export point, and cannot fall below the shipment costs, gold import point. It may happen that, all our other assumptions remaining unaltered, there is a temporal discrepancy between the payments due from A to B and those from B to A. Then, an interlocal shipment of gold can only be avoided by the interposition of a credit transaction. If the importer who today has to pay from A to B can buy at the market of foreign exchange only such claims against residents of B as fall due in ninety days, he can save the costs of shipping gold by borrowing the sum concerned in B for a period of ninety days.
The dealers in foreign exchange will resort to this makeshift if the costs of borrowing in B do not exceed the costs of borrowing in A by more than double the costs of shipping gold. If the cost of shipping gold is one-eighth percent, they will be ready to pay for a three-months loan in B up to one percent pro anno more as interest than corresponds to the state of the money market interest rate at which, in the absence of such requirements for interlocal payments, credit transactions between A and B would be effected. It is permissible to express these facts by contending that the daily state of the balance of payments between A and B determines the point at which, within the margins drawn by the gold export point and the gold import point, the foreign exchange rates are fixed. But one must not forget to add that this happens only if the residents of A and of B do not intend to change the size of their cash holdings. Only because this is the case does it become possible to avoid the transfer of gold altogether and to keep foreign exchange rates within the limits drawn by the two gold points. If the residents of A want to reduce their cash holdings, and those of B want to increase theirs, gold must be shipped from A to B, and the rate for cable transfer B reaches in A the gold export point. Then gold is sent from A to B in the same way in which cotton is regularly sent from the United States to Europe. The rate of cable transfer B reaches the gold export point because the residents of A are selling gold to those of B, not because their balance of payments is unfavorable. All this is valid with regard to any payments to be transacted between various places. It makes no difference whether the cities concerned belong to the same sovereign nation or to different sovereign nations. However, government interference has considerably changed the conditions. All governments have created institutions which make it possible for the residents of their countries to make interlocal domestic payments at par. The costs involved in shipment of currency from one place to another are borne either by the Treasury or by the country's central bank system, or by another government bank, such as the postal savings banks of various European countries. Thus there is no longer any market for domestic interlocal exchange. The public is not charged more for an interlocal order to pay than for a local one, or, if the charge is slightly different, it no longer has any reference to the fluctuations of the interlocal movements of currency within the country. It is this government interference which has sharpened the difference between domestic payment and payment abroad. Domestic payments are transacted at par, while, with regard to foreign payments, fluctuations occur within the limits drawn by the gold points. If more than one kind of money is used as medium of exchange, the mutual exchange ratio between them is determined by their purchasing power. The final prices of the various commodities, as expressed in each of the two or several kinds of money, are in proportion to each other. 
The final exchange ratio between the various kinds of money reflects their purchasing power with regard to the commodities. If any discrepancy appears, opportunity for profitable transactions presents itself, and the endeavors of businessmen eager to take advantage of this opportunity tend to make it disappear again. The purchasing power parity theory of foreign exchange is merely the application of the general theorems concerning the determination of prices to the special case of the coexistence of various kinds of money. It does not matter whether the various kinds of money coexist in the same territory or whether their use is limited to distinct areas. In any case, the mutual exchange ratio between them tends to a final state at which it no longer makes any difference whether one buys and sells against this or that kind of money. As far as costs of interlocal transfer come into play, these costs must be added or deducted. The changes in purchasing power do not occur at the same time with regard to all commodities and services. Let us consider again the practically very important instance of an inflation in one country only. The increase in the quantity of domestic credit money or fiat money affects at first only the prices of some commodities and services. The prices of the other commodities remain for some time still at their previous stand. The exchange ratio between the domestic currency and the foreign currencies is determined on the bourse, a market organized and managed according to the pattern and the commercial customs of the stock exchange. The dealers on this special market are quicker than the rest of the people in anticipating future changes. Consequently, the price structure of the market for foreign exchange reflects the new money relation sooner than the prices of many commodities and services. As soon as the domestic inflation begins to affect the prices of some commodities, at any rate, long before it has exhausted all its effects upon the greater part of the prices of commodities and services, the price of foreign exchange tends to rise to the point corresponding to the final state of domestic prices and wage rates. This fact has been entirely misinterpreted. People failed to realize that the rise in foreign exchange rates merely anticipates the movement of domestic commodity prices. They explained the boom in foreign exchange as an outcome of an unfavorable balance of payments. The demand for foreign exchange, they maintained, has been increased by a deterioration of the balance of trade or of other items of the balance of payments or simply by sinister machinations on the part of unpatriotic speculators. The higher prices to be paid for foreign exchange cause the domestic prices of imported goods to rise. The prices of the domestic products must follow suit, because otherwise their low state would encourage business to withhold them from domestic consumption and to sell them abroad at a premium. The fallacies involved in this popular doctrine can easily be shown. If the nominal income of the domestic public had not been increased by the inflation, they would be forced to restrict their consumption either of imported or of domestic products. In the first case, imports would drop, 
and in the second case, exports would increase. Thus, the balance of trade would again be brought back to what the mercantilists call a favorable state. Pressed hard, the mercantilists cannot help admitting the correctness of this reasoning. But, they say, it applies only to normal trade conditions. It does not take into account the state of affairs in countries which are under the necessity of importing vital commodities, such as food and essential raw materials. The importation of such goods cannot be curtailed below a certain minimum. They are imported no matter what prices must be paid for them. If the foreign exchange required for importing them cannot be procured by an adequate amount of exports, the balance of trade becomes unfavorable, and the foreign exchange rates must rise more and more. This is no less illusory than all other mercantilist ideas. However urgent and vital an individual's or a group of individuals demand for some goods may be, they can satisfy it on the market only by paying the market price. If an Austrian wants to buy Canadian wheat, he must pay the market price in Canadian dollars. He must procure these Canadian dollars by exporting goods either directly to Canada or to some other country. He does not increase the amount of Canadian dollars available by paying higher prices, in shillings, the Austrian domestic currency, for Canadian dollars. Moreover, he cannot afford to pay such higher prices in shillings for imported wheat if his income in shillings remains unchanged. Only if the Austrian government embarks upon an inflationary policy and thus increases the number of shillings in the pockets of its citizens are the Austrians in a position to continue to buy the quantities of Canadian wheat they used to buy without curtailing other expenditures. If there were no domestic inflation, any rise in the price of imported goods would result either in a drop in their consumption or in a restriction in the consumption of other goods. Thus the process of readjustment as described above would have come into motion. If a man lacks the money to buy bread from his neighbor, the village baker, the cause is not to be seen in an alleged scarcity of money. The cause is that this man did not succeed in earning the amount of money needed either by selling goods or by rendering services for which people are prepared to pay. The same is true with regard to international trade. A country may be distressed on account of the fact that it is at a loss to sell abroad as many commodities as it would have to sell in order to buy all the food its citizens want. But this does not mean that foreign exchange is scarce. It means that the residents are poor. And domestic inflation is certainly not an appropriate means to remove this poverty. Neither has speculation any reference to the determination of foreign exchange rates. The speculators merely anticipate the expected alterations— if they err, if their opinion that an inflation is in progress is wrong, the structure of prices and foreign exchange rates will not correspond to their anticipations, and they will have to pay for their mistakes by losses.
The doctrine according to which foreign exchange rates are determined by the balance of payments is based upon an illicit generalization of a special case. If two places, A and B, use the same kind of money, and if the residents do not want to make any changes in the size of their cash holdings, over a given period of time the amount of money paid from the residents of A to those of B equals the amount paid from the residents of B to those of A, and all payments can be settled without shipping money from A to B or from B to A. Then the rate of cable transfer B in A cannot rise above a point slightly below the gold export point, and cannot drop below a point slightly above the gold import point, and vice versa. Within this margin, the daily state of the balance of payments determines the daily state of the foreign exchange rate. This is the case only because neither the residents of A nor those of B want to alter the amount of their cash holdings. If the residents of A want to decrease their cash holdings and those of B to increase theirs, money is shipped from A to B, and the cable rate B reaches in A, the gold export point. But money is not shipped because A's balance of payments has become unfavorable. What is called by the mercantilists an unfavorable balance of payments is the effect of a deliberate restriction of cash holdings on the part of the citizens of A, and a deliberate increase in cash holdings on the part of the citizens of B. If no resident of A were ready to reduce his cash holding, such an outflow of money from A could never materialize. The difference between the trade in money and that in the vendable commodities is this. As a rule, commodities move on a one-way road, namely from the places of surplus production to those of surplus consumption. Consequently, the price of a certain commodity in the places of surplus production is, as a rule, lower by the amount of shipping costs than in the places of surplus consumption. Things are different with money if we do not take into account the conditions of the gold-mining countries and of those countries whose residents deliberately aim at altering the size of their cash holdings. Money moves now this way, now that. At one time a country exports money, at another time it imports money. Every exporting country very soon becomes an importing country, precisely on account of its previous exports. For this reason alone, it is possible to save the costs of shipping money by the interplay of the market for foreign exchange. 16. Interest Rates and the Money Relation Money plays in credit transactions the same role it plays in all other business transactions. As a rule, loans are granted in money, and interest and principal are paid in money. The payments resulting from such dealings influence the size of cash holding only temporarily. The recipients of loans, interest, and principal spend the sums received either for consumption or for investment. They increase their cash holdings only if definite considerations, independent of the inflow of the money received, motivate them to act in this way.
The final state of the market rate of interest is the same for all loans of the same character. Differences in the rate of interest are caused either by differences in the soundness and trustworthiness of the debtor, or by differences in the terms of the contract. Differences in interest rates which are not brought about by these differences in conditions tend to disappear. The applicants for credits approach the lenders who ask a lower rate of interest. The lenders are eager to cater to people who are ready to pay higher interest rates. Things on the money market are the same as on all other markets. With regard to interlocal credit transactions, the interlocal exchange rates are to be taken into account, as well as differences in the monetary standard, if there are any. Let us contemplate the case of two countries, A and B. A is under the gold standard, B under the silver standard. The lender who considers lending money from A to B must first sell gold against silver, and later, at the termination of the loan, silver against gold. If at that later date the price of silver has dropped as against gold, the principal repaid by the debtor in silver will buy a smaller amount of gold than that expended by the creditor when he previously embarked upon the transaction. He will therefore only venture lending in B if the difference in the market rate of interest between A and B is large enough to cover an expected fall in the price of silver as against gold. The tendency toward an equalization of the market rate of interest for short-term loans which prevails if A and B are both under the same monetary standard is seriously impaired under a diversity of standards. If A and B are both under the same standard, it is impossible for the banks of A to expand credit if those of B do not espouse the same policy. Credit expansion in A makes prices rise, and short-term interest rates drop in A, while prices and interest rates in B remain unchanged. Consequently, exports from A drop, and imports to A increase. In addition, the moneylenders of A become eager to lend on the short-term loan market of B. The result is an external drain from A, which makes the money reserves of A's banks dwindle. If the banks of A do not abandon their expansionist policy, they will become insolvent. This process has been entirely misinterpreted. People speak of an important and vital function which a country's central bank has to fulfill on behalf of the nation. It is, they say, the central bank's sacred duty to preserve the stability of foreign exchange rates and to protect the nation's gold reserve against attacks on the part of foreign speculators and their domestic abettors. The truth is that all that a central bank does lest its gold reserve evaporate is done for the sake of the preservation of its own solvency. It has jeopardized its financial position by embarking upon credit expansion and must now undo its previous action in order to avoid its disastrous consequences. Its expansionist policy has encountered the obstacles limiting the issuance of fiduciary media. The use of the terminology of warfare is inappropriate in dealing with monetary matters, as it is in the treatment of all other catalactic problems. 
There is no such thing as a war between the central banks. No sinister forces are attacking a bank's position and threatening the stability of foreign exchange rates. No defender is needed to protect a nation's currency system. It is, moreover, not true that what prevents a nation's central bank or its private banks from lowering the domestic market rate of interest is considerations of the preservation of the gold standard and of foreign exchange stability and of frustrating the machinations of an international combine of capitalistic moneylenders. The market rate of interest cannot be lowered by a credit expansion except for a short time, and even then it brings about all those effects which the theory of the trade cycle describes. When the Bank of England redeemed a banknote issued according to the terms of the contract, it did not render unselfishly a vital service to the British people. It simply did what every housewife does in paying the grocer's bill. The idea that there is some special merit in a central bank's fulfillment of its voluntarily assumed responsibilities could originate only because, again and again, governments granted to these banks the privilege of denying to their clients the payments to which they had a legal title. In fact, the central banks became more and more subordinate offices of the treasuries, mere tools for the performance of credit expansion and inflation. It does not make any difference practically whether they are or are not owned by the government and directly managed by government officials. In effect, the banks granting circulation credit are, in every country today, only affiliates of the treasuries. There is but one means of keeping a local and national currency permanently at par with gold and foreign exchange, unconditional redemption. The central bank has to buy at the parity rate any amount of gold and foreign exchange offered against domestic banknotes and deposit currency. On the other hand, it has to sell, without discrimination, any amount of gold and foreign exchange asked for by people ready to pay the parity price in domestic banknotes, coins, or deposit currency. Such was the policy of central banks under the gold standard. Such was also the policy of those governments and central banks which had adopted the currency system commonly known under the name of the gold exchange standard. The only difference between the orthodox or classical gold standard, as it existed in Great Britain from the early twenties of the nineteenth century until the outbreak of the First World War, and in other countries, on the one hand, and the gold exchange standard, on the other, concerned the use of gold coins on the domestic market. Under the classical gold standard, a part of the cash holdings of the citizens consisted in gold coins, and the rest in money substitutes. Under the gold exchange standard, the cash holdings consisted entirely in money substitutes. Pegging a certain rate of foreign exchange is tantamount to redemption at this rate. A foreign exchange equalization account, too, can succeed in its operations only as far as it clings to the same methods. The reasons why European governments in the last few years have preferred foreign exchange equalization accounts to the operation of central banks are obvious. 
Central bank legislation was an achievement of liberal governments, or of governments which did not dare to challenge openly, at least in the conduct of financial policies, public opinion of the liberal countries. The operations of central banks were therefore adjusted to economic freedom. For that reason, they were considered unsatisfactory in this age of rising totalitarianism. The main characteristics of the operation of a foreign exchange equalization account, as distinguished from central bank policy, are 1. The authorities keep the transactions of the account secret. The laws have obliged the central banks to publicize their actual status at short intervals, as a rule, every week. But the status of the foreign exchange equalization accounts is known only to the initiated. Officialdom renders a report to the public only after a lapse of time, when the figures are of interest to historians alone, and of no use whatever to the businessman. 2. This secrecy makes it possible to discriminate against people not in great favor with the authorities. In many continental countries of Europe, it resulted in scandalous corruption. Other governments used the power to discriminate to the detriment of businessmen belonging to linguistic or religious minorities or supporting opposition parties. 3. A parity is no longer fixed by a law duly promulgated by Parliament, and therefore known to every citizen. The determination depends upon the arbitrariness of bureaucrats. From time to time the newspapers reported, the Ruritanian currency is weak. A more correct description would have been, the Ruritanian authorities have decided to raise the price of foreign exchange. A foreign exchange equalization account is not a magic wand for remedying the evils of inflation. It cannot apply any means other than those available to orthodox central banks, and it must, like the central banks, fail in the endeavors to keep foreign exchange rates at par if there is domestic inflation and credit expansion. It has been asserted that the orthodox methods of fighting an external drain by raising the rate of discount no longer work because nations are no longer prepared to comply with the rules of the game. Now the gold standard is not a game, but a social institution. Its working does not depend on the preparedness of any people to observe some arbitrary rules. It is controlled by the operation of inexorable economic law. The critics give point to their objection by citing the fact that in the interwar period a rise in the rate of discount failed to stop the external drain, that is, the outflow of specie and the transfer of deposits into foreign countries. But this phenomenon was caused by the government's anti-gold and pro-inflation policies. If a man expects that he will lose 40% of his balance by an impending devaluation, he will try to transfer his deposit into another country, and will not change his mind if the bank rate in the country planning a devaluation rises 1 or 2%. Such a rise in the rate of discount is obviously not a compensation for a loss 10 or 20 or even 40 times greater. Of course, the gold standard cannot work if governments are eager to sabotage its operations. 17. 
secondary media of exchange. The use of money does not remove the differences which exist between the various non-monetary goods with regard to their marketability. In the money economy, there is a very substantial difference between the marketability of money and that of the vendable goods, but there remain differences between the various specimens of this latter group. For some of them, it is easier to find without delay a buyer ready to pay the highest price which, under the state of the market, can possibly be attained. With others, it is more difficult. A first-class bond is more marketable than a house in a city's main street, and an old fur coat is more marketable than an autograph of an 18th-century statesman. One no longer compares the marketability of the various vendable goods with the perfect marketability of money. One merely compares the degree of marketability of the various commodities. One may speak of the secondary marketability of the vendable goods. He who owns a stock of goods of a high degree of secondary marketability is in a position to restrict his cash holding. He can expect that when one day it is necessary for him to increase his cash holding, he will be in a position to sell these goods of a high degree of secondary marketability without delay at the highest price attainable at the market. Thus the size of a man's or a firm's cash holding is influenced by whether or not he owns a stock of goods with a high degree of secondary marketability. The size of cash holding and the expense incurred in keeping it can be reduced if income-producing goods of a high degree of secondary marketability are available. Consequently, there emerges a specific demand for such goods on the part of people eager to keep them in order to reduce the costs of cash holding. The prices of these goods are partly determined by this specific demand. They would be lower in its absence. These goods are secondary media of exchange, as it were, and their exchange value is the resultant of two kinds of demand. The demand related to their services as secondary media of exchange, and the demand related to the other services they render. The costs incurred by holding cash are equal to the amount of interest which the sum concerned would have borne when invested. The cost incurred by holding a stock of secondary media of exchange consists in the difference between the interest yield of the securities employed for this purpose and the higher yield of other securities which differ from the former only in regard to their lower marketability and are therefore not suited for the role of secondary media of exchange. From time immemorial, jewels have been used as secondary media of exchange. Today, the secondary media of exchange commonly used are, one, claims against banks, bankers, and savings banks, which, although not money substitutes, are daily maturing or can be withdrawn on short notice. For instance, demand deposits not subject to check. Two, Bonds, whose volume and popularity are so great that it is, as a rule, possible to sell moderate quantities of them without depressing the market. 3. Finally, sometimes even certain especially marketable stocks, or even commodities. 
Of course, the advantages to be expected from lowering the costs of holding cash must be confronted with certain hazards incurred. The sale of securities, and still more that of commodities, may only be feasible with a loss. This danger is not present with bank balances, and the hazard of the bank's insolvency is usually negligible. Therefore, interest-bearing claims against banks and bankers, which can be withdrawn at short notice, are the most popular secondary media of exchange. One must not confuse secondary media of exchange with money substitutes. Money substitutes are in the settlement of payments given away and received like money. But the secondary media of exchange must first be exchanged against money, or money substitutes, if one wants to use them, in a roundabout way, for paying or for increasing cash holdings. Claims employed as secondary media of exchange have, because of this employment, a broader market and a higher price. The outcome of this is that they yield lower interest than claims of the same kind which are not fit to serve as secondary media of exchange. Government bonds and treasury bills which can be used as secondary media of exchange can be floated on conditions more favorable to the debtor than loans not suitable for this purpose. The debtors concerned are therefore eager to organize the market for their certificates of indebtedness in such a way as to make them attractive for those in search of secondary media of exchange. They are intent upon making it possible for every holder of such securities to sell them or to use them as collateral in borrowing under the most reasonable terms. In advertising their bond issues to the public, they stress these opportunities as a special boon. In the same way, banks and bankers are intent upon attracting demand for secondary media of exchange. They offer convenient terms to their customers. They try to outdo one another by shortening the time allowed for notice. Sometimes they pay interest even for money maturing without notice. In this rivalry, some banks have gone too far and endangered their solvency. Political conditions of the last decades have given to bank balances which can be used as secondary media of exchange an increased importance. The governments of almost all countries are engaged in a campaign against the capitalists. They are intent upon expropriating them by means of taxation and monetary measures. The capitalists are eager to protect their property by keeping a part of their funds liquid in order to evade confiscatory measures in time. They keep balances with the banks of those countries in which the danger of confiscation or currency devaluation is, for the moment, less than in other countries. As soon as the prospects change, they transfer their balances into countries which temporarily seem to offer more security. It is these funds which people have in mind when speaking of hot money. The significance of hot money for the constellation of monetary affairs is the outcome of the one-reserve system. In order to make it easier for the central banks to embark upon credit expansion, the European governments aimed long ago at a concentration of their country's gold reserves with the central banks. 
The other banks, the private banks, that is, those not endowed with special privileges and not entitled to issue banknotes, restricted their cash holdings to the requirements of their daily transactions. They no longer keep a reserve against their daily maturing liabilities. They do not consider it necessary to balance the maturity dates of their liabilities and their assets in such a way as to be any day ready to comply unaided with their obligations to their creditors. They rely upon the central bank. When the creditors want to withdraw more than the normal amount, the private banks borrow the funds needed from the central bank. A private bank considers itself liquid if it owns a sufficient amount either of collateral against which the central bank will lend, or of bills of exchange which the central bank will rediscount. All this refers to European conditions. American conditions differ only technically, but not economically. However, the hot money problem is not an American problem, as there is, under the present state of affairs, no country which a capitalist could deem a safer refuge than the United States. When the inflow of hot money began, the private banks of the countries in which it was temporarily deposited saw nothing wrong in treating these funds in the usual way. They employed the additional funds entrusted to them in increasing their loans to business. They did not worry about the consequences, although they knew that these funds would be withdrawn as soon as any doubts about their country's fiscal or monetary policy emerged. The illiquidity of the status of these banks was manifest. On the one hand, large sums which the customers had the right to withdraw at short notice, and, on the other hand, loans to business which could be recovered only at a later date. The only cautious method of dealing with hot money would have been to keep a reserve of gold and foreign exchange big enough to pay back the whole amount in case of a sudden withdrawal. Of course, this method would have required the banks to charge the customers a commission for keeping their funds safe. The showdown came for the Swiss banks on the day in September 1936 on which France devalued the French franc. The depositors of hot money became frightened. They feared that Switzerland might follow the French example. It was to be expected that they would all try to transfer their funds immediately to London, or New York, or even to Paris, which for the immediate coming weeks seemed to offer a smaller hazard of currency depreciation. But the Swiss commercial banks were not in a position to pay back these funds without the aid of the National Bank. They had lent them to business a great part to business in countries which, by foreign exchange control, had blocked their balances. The only way out would have been for them to borrow from the National Bank. Then they would have maintained their own solvency. But the depositors paid would have immediately asked the National Bank for the redemption, in gold or foreign exchange, of the banknotes received. If the National Bank were not to comply with this request, it would thereby have actually abandoned the gold standard and devalued the Swiss franc. If, on the other hand, the bank had redeemed the notes, it would have lost the greater part of its reserve. A panic would have resulted. 
the Swiss themselves would have tried to procure as much gold and foreign exchange as possible, the whole monetary system of the country would have collapsed. The only alternative for the Swiss National Bank would have been not to assist the private banks at all, but this would have been equivalent to the insolvency of the country's most important credit institutions. Thus, for the Swiss government, no choice was left. It had only one means to prevent an economic catastrophe, to follow suit forthwith and to devalue the Swiss franc. The matter did not brook delay. By and large, Great Britain, at the outbreak of the war in September 1939, had to face similar conditions. The city of London was once the world's banking center. It has long since lost this function. But foreigners and citizens of the Dominions still kept, on the eve of the war, considerable short-term balances in the British banks. Besides, there were the large deposits due to the central banks in the Sterling area. If the British government had not frozen all these balances by means of foreign exchange restrictions, the insolvency of the British banks would have become manifest. Foreign exchange control was a disguised moratorium for the banks. It relieved them from the plight of having to confess publicly their inability to fulfill their obligations. 18. The Inflationist View of History a very popular doctrine maintains that progressive lowering of the monetary unit's purchasing power played a decisive role in historical evolution. It is asserted that mankind would not have reached its present state of well-being if the supply of money had not increased to a greater extent than the demand for money. The resulting fall in purchasing power, it is said, was a necessary condition of economic progress. The intensification of the division of labor and the continuous growth of capital accumulation, which have centupled the productivity of labor, could ensue only in a world of progressive price rises. Inflation creates prosperity and wealth, deflation, distress, and economic decay. A survey of political literature and of the ideas that guided for centuries the monetary and credit policies of the nations reveals that this opinion is almost generally accepted. In spite of all warnings on the part of economists, it is still today the core of the layman's economic philosophy. It is no less the essence of the teachings of Lord Keynes and his disciples in both hemispheres. The popularity of inflationism is in great part due to deep-rooted hatred of creditors. Inflation is considered just because it favors debtors at the expense of creditors. However, the inflationist view of history which we have to deal with in this section is only loosely related to this anti-creditor argument. Its assertion that expansionism is the driving force of economic progress and that restrictionism is the worst of all evils is mainly based on other arguments. It is obvious that the problems raised by the inflationist doctrine cannot be solved by a recourse to the teachings of historical experience. It is beyond doubt that the history of prices shows, by and large, a continuous, although sometimes for short periods interrupted, upward trend. 
It is, of course, impossible to establish this fact otherwise than by historical understanding. Catalactic precision cannot be applied to historical problems. The endeavors of some historians and statisticians to trace back the changes in the purchasing power of the precious metals for centuries and to measure them are futile. It has been shown already that all attempts to measure economic magnitudes are based on entirely fallacious assumptions and display ignorance of the fundamental principles both of economics and of history. But what history, by means of its specific methods, can tell us in this field is enough to justify the assertion that the purchasing power of money has for centuries shown a tendency to fall. With regard to this point, all people agree. But this is not the problem to be elucidated. The question is whether the fall in purchasing power was or was not an indispensable factor in the evolution which led from the poverty of ages gone by to the more satisfactory conditions of modern Western capitalism. This question must be answered without reference to the historical experience, which can be and always is interpreted in different ways, and to which supporters and adversaries of every theory and of every explanation of history refer as a proof of their mutually contradictory and incompatible statements. What is needed is a clarification of the effects of changes in purchasing power on the division of labor, the accumulation of capital, and technological improvement. In dealing with this problem, one cannot satisfy oneself with the refutation of the arguments advanced by the inflationists in support of their thesis. The absurdity of these arguments is so manifest that their refutation and exposure is easy indeed. From its very beginnings, economics has shown again and again that assertions concerning the alleged blessings of an abundance of money and the alleged disasters of a scarcity of money are the outcome of crass errors in reasoning. The endeavors of the apostles of inflationism and expansionism to refute the correctness of the economists' teachings have failed utterly. The only relevant question is this. Is it possible or not to lower the rate of interest lastingly by means of credit expansion? This problem will be treated exhaustively in the chapter dealing with the interconnection between the money relation and the rate of interest. There it will be shown what the consequences of booms created by credit expansion must be. But we must ask ourselves at this point of our inquiries whether it is not possible that there are other reasons which could be advanced in favor of the inflationary interpretation of history. Is it not possible that the champions of inflationism have neglected to resort to some valid arguments which could support their stand? It is certainly necessary to approach the issue from every possible avenue. Let us think of a world in which the quantity of money is rigid. At an early stage of history, the inhabitants of this world have produced the whole quantity of the commodity employed for the monetary service which can possibly be produced. A further increase in the quantity of money is out of the question. Fiduciary media are unknown. All money substitutes, the subsidiary coins included, are money certificates. 
On these assumptions, the intensification of the division of labor, the evolution from the economic self-sufficiency of households, villages, districts, and countries to the world-embracing market system of the 19th century, the progressive accumulation of capital and the improvement of technological methods of production would have resulted in a continuous trend toward falling prices. Would such a rise in the purchasing power of the monetary unit have stopped the evolution of capitalism? The average businessman will answer this question in the affirmative. Living and acting in an environment in which a slow but continuous fall in the monetary unit's purchasing power is deemed normal, necessary, and beneficial, he simply cannot comprehend a different state of affairs. He associates the notions of rising prices and profits on the one hand, and of falling prices and losses on the other. The fact that there are bear operations, too, and that great fortunes have been made by bears, does not shake his dogmatism. These are, he says, merely speculative transactions of people eager to profit from the fall in the prices of goods already produced and available. Creative innovations, new investments, and the application of improved technological methods require the inducement brought about by the expectation of price rises. Economic progress is possible only in a world of rising prices. This opinion is untenable. In a world of a rising purchasing power for the monetary unit, everybody's mode of thinking would have adjusted itself to this state of affairs, just as in our actual world it has adjusted itself to a falling purchasing power of the monetary unit. Today, everybody is prepared to consider a rise in his nominal or monetary income as an improvement of his material well-being. People's attention is directed more toward the rise in nominal wage rates and the money equivalent of wealth than to the increase in the supply of commodities. In a world of rising purchasing power for the monetary unit, they would concern themselves more with the fall in living costs. This would bring into clearer relief the fact that economic progress consists primarily in making the amenities of life more easily accessible. In the conduct of business, reflections concerning the secular trend of prices do not play any role whatever. Entrepreneurs and investors do not bother about secular trends. What guides their actions is their opinion about the movement of prices in the coming weeks months, or, at most, years. They do not heed the general movement of all prices. What matters for them is the existence of discrepancies between the prices of the complementary factors of production and the anticipated prices of the products. No businessman embarks upon a definite production project because he believes that the prices, that is, the prices of all goods and services, will rise. He engages himself if he believes that he can profit from a difference between the prices of goods of various orders. In a world with a secular tendency toward falling prices, such opportunities for earning profit will appear in the same way in which they appear in a world with a secular trend toward rising prices. 
The expectation of a general progressive upward movement of all prices does not bring about intensified production and improvement in well-being. It results in the flight to real values, in the crack-up boom, and the complete breakdown of the monetary system. If the opinion that the prices of all commodities will drop becomes general, the short-term market rate of interest is lowered by the amount of the negative price premium. Thus, the entrepreneur employing borrowed funds is secured against the consequences of such a drop in prices to the same extent to which, under conditions of rising prices, the lender is secured through the price premium against the consequences of falling purchasing power. A secular tendency toward a rise in the monetary unit's purchasing power would require rules of thumb on the part of businessmen and investors other than those developed under the secular tendency toward a fall in its purchasing power. But it would certainly not influence substantially the course of economic affairs. It would not remove the urge of people to improve their material well-being as far as possible by an appropriate arrangement of production. It would not deprive the economic system of the factors making for material improvement, namely the striving of enterprising promoters after profit and the readiness of the public to buy those commodities which are apt to provide them the greatest satisfaction at the lowest costs. Such observations are certainly not a plea for a policy of deflation. They imply merely a refutation of the ineradicable inflationist fables. They unmask the elusiveness of Lord Keynes' doctrine that the source of poverty and distress, of depression of trade, and of unemployment is to be seen in a contractionist pressure. It is not true that a deflationary pressure would have prevented the development of modern industry. It is not true that credit expansion brings about the miracle of turning a stone into bread. Economics recommends neither inflationary nor deflationary policy. It does not urge the governments to tamper with the market's choice of a medium of exchange. It establishes only the following truths. 1. By committing itself to an inflationary or deflationary policy, a government does not promote the public welfare, the commonweal, or the interests of the whole nation. It merely favors one or several groups of the population at the expense of other groups. 2. It is impossible to know in advance which group will be favored by a definite inflationary or deflationary measure and to what extent. These effects depend on the whole complex of the market data involved. They also depend largely on the speed of the inflationary or deflationary movements and may be completely reversed with the progress of these movements. 3. At any rate, an expansion results in misinvestment of capital and overconsumption. It leaves the nation as a whole poorer, not richer. These problems are dealt with in Chapter 20. 4. Continued inflation must finally end in the crack-up boom, the complete breakdown of the currency system. 5. Deflationary policy is costly for the Treasury and unpopular with the masses. 
but inflationary policy is a boon for the treasury and very popular with the ignorant. Practically, the danger of deflation is but slight, and the danger of inflation tremendous. 19. The Gold Standard Men have chosen the precious metals gold and silver for the money service on account of their mineralogical, physical, and chemical features. The use of money in a market economy is a praxeologically necessary fact. That gold, and not something else, is used as money is merely a historical fact, and as such cannot be conceived by catalactics. In monetary history, too, as in all other branches of history, one must resort to historical understanding. If one takes pleasure in calling the gold standard a barbarous relic, one cannot object to the application of the same term to every historically determined institution. Then the fact that the British speak English, and not Danish, German, or French, is a barbarous relic, too and every Briton who opposes the substitution of Esperanto for English is no less dogmatic and orthodox than those who do not wax rapturous about the plans for a managed currency. The demonetization of silver and the establishment of gold monometallism was the outcome of deliberate government interference with monetary matters. It is pointless to raise the question concerning what would have happened in the absence of these policies but it must not be forgotten that it was not the intention of the governments to establish the gold standard. What the governments aimed at was the double standard. They wanted to substitute a rigid government-decreed exchange ratio between gold and silver for the fluctuating market ratios between the independently coexistent gold and silver coins. The monetary doctrines underlying these endeavors misconstrued the market phenomena in that complete way in which only bureaucrats can misconstrue them. The attempts to create a double standard of both metals, gold and silver, failed lamentably. It was this failure which generated the gold standard. The emergence of the gold standard was the manifestation of a crushing defeat of the governments and their cherished doctrines. In the seventeenth century the rates at which the English government tariffed the coins overvalued the guinea with regard to silver, and thus made the silver coins disappear. Only those silver coins which were much worn by usage, or in any other way defaced or reduced in weight, remained in current use. It did not pay to export and to sell them on the bullion market. Thus England got the gold standard against the intention of its government. Only much later the laws made the de facto gold standard a de jure standard. The government abandoned further fruitless attempts to pump silver standard coins into the market and minted silver only as subsidiary coins with a limited legal tender power. These subsidiary coins were not money, but money substitutes. Their exchange value depended not on their silver content, but on the fact that they could be exchanged at every instant, without delay and without cost, at their full face value against gold. They were de facto silver-printed notes, claims against a definite amount of gold. 
Later in the course of the 19th century, the double standard resulted in a similar way in France and in the other countries of the Latin Monetary Union in the emergence of de facto gold monometallism. When the drop in the price of silver in the later 70s would automatically have effected the replacement of the de facto gold standard by the de facto silver standard, these governments suspended the coinage of silver in order to preserve the gold standard. In the United States, the price structure on the bullion market had already, before the outbreak of the Civil War, transformed the legal bimetallism into de facto gold monometallism. After the greenback period, there ensued a struggle between the friends of the gold standard on the one hand and those of silver on the other hand. The result was a victory for the gold standard. Once the economically most advanced nations had adopted the gold standard, all other nations followed suit. After the great inflationary adventures of the First World War, most countries hastened to return to the gold standard or the gold exchange standard. The gold standard was the world standard of the age of capitalism, increasing welfare, liberty, and democracy, both political and economic. In the eyes of the free traders, its main eminence was precisely the fact that it was an international standard, as required by international trade and the transactions of the international money and capital market. It was the medium of exchange by means of which Western industrialism and Western capital had borne Western civilization into the remotest parts of the Earth's surface everywhere destroying the fetters of age-old prejudices and superstitions, sowing the seeds of new life and new well-being, freeing minds and souls, and creating riches unheard of before. It accompanied the triumphal, unprecedented progress of Western liberalism, ready to unite all nations into a community of free nations, peacefully cooperating with one another. It is easy to understand why people viewed the gold standard as the symbol of this greatest and most beneficial of all historical changes. All those intent upon sabotaging the evolution toward welfare, peace, freedom, and democracy loathed the gold standard, and not only on account of its economic significance. In their eyes, the gold standard was the labyrinth, the symbol of all those doctrines and policies they wanted to destroy. In the struggle against the gold standard, much more was at stake than commodity prices and foreign exchange rates. The nationalists are fighting the gold standard because they want to sever their countries from the world market and to establish national autarky as far as possible. Interventionist governments and pressure groups are fighting the gold standard because they consider it the most serious obstacle to their endeavors to manipulate prices and wage rates. But the most fanatical attacks against gold are made by those intent upon credit expansion. With them, credit expansion is the panacea for all economic ills. It could lower or even entirely abolish interest rates raise wages and prices for the benefit of all except the parasitic capitalists and the exploiting employers, free the state from the necessity of balancing its budget, in short, make all decent people prosperous and happy. 
Only the gold standard, that devilish contrivance of the wicked and stupid orthodox economists, prevents mankind from attaining everlasting prosperity. The gold standard is certainly not a perfect or ideal standard. There is no such thing as perfection in human things. But nobody is in a position to tell us how something more satisfactory could be put in place of the gold standard. The purchasing power of gold is not stable, but the very notions of stability and unchangeability of purchasing power are absurd. In a living and changing world there cannot be any such thing as stability of purchasing power. In the imaginary construction of an evenly rotating economy there is no room left for a medium of exchange. It is an essential feature of money that its purchasing power is changing. In fact, the adversaries of the gold standard do not want to make money's purchasing power stable. They want rather to give to the governments the power to manipulate purchasing power without being hindered by an external factor, namely the money relation of the gold standard. The main objection raised against the gold standard is that it makes operative in the determination of prices a factor which no government can control, the vicissitudes of gold production. Thus an external or automatic force restrains a national government's power to make its subjects as prosperous as it would like to make them. The international capitalists dictate, and the nation's sovereignty becomes a sham. However, the futility of interventionist policies has nothing at all to do with monetary matters. It will be shown later why all isolated measures of government interference with market phenomena must fail to attain the ends sought. If the interventionist government wants to remedy the shortcomings of its first interferences by going further and further, it finally converts its country's economic system into socialism of the German pattern. Then it abolishes the domestic market altogether, and with it money and all monetary problems, even though it may retain some of the terms and labels of the market economy. In both cases, it is not the gold standard that frustrates the good intentions of the benevolent authority. The significance of the fact that the gold standard makes the increase in the supply of gold depend upon the profitability of producing gold is, of course, that it limits the government's power to resort to inflation. The gold standard makes the determination of money's purchasing power independent of the changing ambitions and doctrines of political parties and pressure groups. This is not a defect of the gold standard, it is its main excellence. Every method of manipulating purchasing power is by necessity arbitrary. All methods recommended for the discovery of an allegedly objective and scientific yardstick for monetary manipulation are based on the illusion that changes in purchasing power can be measured. The gold standard removes the determination of cash-induced changes in purchasing power from the political arena. Its general acceptance requires the acknowledgment of the truth that one cannot make all people richer by printing money. The abhorrence of the gold standard is inspired by the superstition that omnipotent governments can create wealth out of little scraps of paper. 
It has been asserted that the gold standard, too, is a manipulated standard. The governments may influence the height of gold's purchasing power, either by credit expansion, even if it is kept within the limits drawn by considerations of preserving the redeemability of the money substitutes, or indirectly by furthering measures which induce people to restrict the size of their cash holdings. This is true. It cannot be denied that the rise in commodity prices which occurred between 1896 and 1914 was to a great extent provoked by such government policies. But the main thing is that the gold standard keeps all such endeavors toward lowering money's purchasing power within narrow limits. The inflationists are fighting the gold standard precisely because they consider these limits a serious obstacle to the realization of their plans. What the expansionists call the defects of the gold standard are indeed its very eminence and usefulness. It checks large-scale inflationary ventures on the part of governments. The gold standard did not fail. The governments were eager to destroy it because they were committed to the fallacies that credit expansion is an appropriate means of lowering the rate of interest and of improving the balance of trade. No government is, however, powerful enough to abolish the gold standard. Gold is the money of international trade and of the supranational economic community of mankind. It cannot be affected by measures of governments whose sovereignty is limited to definite countries. As long as a country is not economically self-sufficient in the strict sense of the term, as long as there are still some loopholes left in the walls by which nationalistic governments try to isolate their countries from the rest of the world, gold is still used as money. It does not matter that governments confiscate the gold coins and bullion they can seize and punish those holding gold as felons. The language of bilateral clearing agreements by means of which governments are intent upon eliminating gold from international trade avoids any reference to gold. But the turnovers performed on the ground of those agreements are calculated on gold prices. He who buys or sells on a foreign market calculates the advantages and disadvantages of such transactions in gold. In spite of the fact that a country has severed its local currency from any link with gold, its domestic structure of prices remains closely connected with gold and the gold prices of the world market. If a government wants to sever its domestic price structure from that of the world market, it must resort to other measures, such as prohibitive import and export duties and embargoes. Nationalization of foreign trade, whether effected openly or directly by foreign exchange control, does not eliminate gold. The government's qua traders are trading by the use of gold as a medium of exchange. The struggle against gold, which is one of the main concerns of all contemporary governments, must not be looked upon as an isolated phenomenon. It is but one item in the gigantic process of destruction which is the mark of our time. People fight the gold standard because they want to substitute national autarky for free trade, war for peace, totalitarian government omnipotence for liberty. 
It may happen one day that technology will discover a method of enlarging the supply of gold at such a low cost that gold will become useless for the monetary service. Then people will have to replace the gold standard by another standard. It is futile to bother today about the way in which this problem will be solved. We do not know anything about the conditions under which the decision will have to be made. International Monetary Cooperation The international gold standard works without any action on the part of governments. It is effective, real cooperation of all members of the world-embracing market economy. There is no need for any government to interfere in order to make the gold standard work as an international standard. What governments call international monetary cooperation is concerted action for the sake of credit expansion. They have learned that credit expansion, when limited to one country only, results in an external drain. They believe that it is only the external drain that frustrates their plans of lowering the rate of interest and thus of creating an everlasting boom. If all governments were to cooperate in their expansionist policies, they think, they could remove this obstacle. What is required is an international bank issuing fiduciary media which are dealt with as money substitutes by all people in all countries. There is no need to stress again here the point that what makes it impossible to lower the rate of interest by means of credit expansion is not merely the external drain. This fundamental issue is dealt with exhaustively in other chapters and sections of this book. But there is another important question to be raised. Let us assume that there exists an international bank issuing fiduciary media, the clientele of which is the world's whole population. It does not matter whether these money substitutes go directly into the cash holdings of the individuals and firms, or are only kept by the various nations' central banks as reserves against their issuance of national money substitutes. The deciding point is that there is a uniform world currency. The national banknotes and checkbook money are redeemable in money substitutes issued by the international bank. The necessity of keeping its national currency at par with the international currency limits the power of every nation's central banking system to expand credit. But the World Bank is restrained only by those factors which limit credit expansion on the part of a single bank operating in an isolated economic system or in the whole world. We may as well assume that the international bank is not a bank issuing money substitutes, a part of which are fiduciary media, but a world authority issuing international fiat money. Gold has been entirely demonetized. The only money in use is that created by the international authority. The international authority is free to increase the quantity of this money, provided it does not go so far as to bring about the crack-up boom and the breakdown of the currency. Then the ideal of the Keynesians is realized. There is an institution operating which can exercise an expansionist pressure on world trade. It is free to pour a horn of plenty over the world.
However, the champions of such plans have neglected a fundamental problem, namely that of the distribution of the additional quantities of this credit money or of this paper money. Let us assume that the international authority increases the amount of its issuance by a definite sum, all of which goes to one country, Ruritania. The final result of this inflationary action will be a rise in prices of commodities and services all over the world. But while this process is going on, the conditions of the citizens of various countries are affected in a different way. The Ruritanians are the first group blessed by the additional manna. They have more money in their pockets, while the rest of the world's inhabitants have not yet got a share of the new money. They can bid higher prices, while the others cannot. Therefore, the Ruritanians withdraw more goods from the world market than they did before. The non-Ruritanians are forced to restrict their consumption because they cannot compete with the higher prices paid by the Ruritanians. While the process of adjusting prices to the altered money relation is still in progress, the Ruritanians are in an advantageous position against the non-Ruritanians. When the process finally comes to an end, the Ruritanians have been enriched at the expense of the non-Ruritanians. The main problem in such expansionist ventures is the proportion according to which the additional money is to be allotted to the various nations. Each nation will be eager to advocate a mode of distribution which will give it the greatest possible share in the additional currency. The industrially backward nations of the East will, for instance, probably recommend equal distribution per capita of population, a mode which would obviously favor them at the expense of the industrially advanced nations. Whatever mode may be adopted, all nations would be dissatisfied and would complain of unfair treatment. Serious conflicts would ensue and would disrupt the whole scheme. It would be irrelevant to object that this problem did not play an important role in the negotiations which preceded the establishment of the International Monetary Fund, and that it was easy to reach an agreement concerning the use of the fund's resources. The Bretton Woods Conference was held under very particular circumstances. Most of the participating nations were, at that time, entirely dependent on the benevolence of the United States. They would have been doomed if the United States had stopped fighting for their freedom and aiding them materially by lend-lease. The government of the United States, on the other hand, looked upon the monetary agreement as a scheme for a disguised continuation of lend-lease after the cessation of hostilities. The United States was ready to give, and the other participants, especially those of the European countries, most of them at that time still entirely occupied by the German armies and those of the Asiatic countries, were ready to take whatever was offered to them. The problems involved will become discernible as soon as the wartime attitude in the United States toward financial and trade matters is replaced by a more realistic mentality. Chapter 18 Action in the Passing of Time 1. Perspective in the Valuation of Time Periods Acting man distinguishes the time before satisfaction of a want is attained and the time for which the satisfaction continues.
Action always aims at the removal of future uneasiness, be it only the future of the impending instant. Between the setting in of action and the attainment of the end sought, there always elapses a fraction of time, namely the maturing time, in which the seed sown by the action grows to maturity. The most obvious example is provided by agriculture. Between the tilling of the soil and the ripening of the fruit, there passes a considerable period of time. Another example is the improvement of the quality of wine by aging. In some cases, however, the maturing time is so short that ordinary speech may assert that the success appears instantly. As far as action requires the employment of labor, it is concerned with the working time. The performance of every kind of labor absorbs time. In some cases, the working time is so short that people say the performance requires no time at all. Only in rare cases does a simple, indivisible, and non-repeated act suffice to attain the end aimed at. As a rule, what separates the actor from the goal of his endeavors is more than one step only. He must make many steps and every further step to be added to those previously made raises anew the question whether or not he should continue marching toward the goal once chosen. Most goals are so far away that only determined persistence leads to them. Persevering action, unflinchingly directed to the end sought, is needed in order to succeed. The total expenditure of time required that is, working time plus maturing time, may be called the period of production. The period of production is long in some cases, and short in other cases. It is sometimes so short that it can be entirely neglected in practice. The increment in want satisfaction which the attainment of the end brings about is temporally limited. The result produced extends services only over a period of time which we may call the duration of serviceableness. The duration of serviceableness is shorter with some products and longer with other goods, which are commonly called durable goods. Hence, acting man must always take into account the period of production and the duration of serviceableness of the product. In estimating the disutility of a project considered, he is not only concerned with the expenditure of material factors and labor required, but also with the period of production. In estimating the utility of the expected product, he is concerned with the duration of its serviceableness. Of course, the more durable a product is, the greater is the amount of services it renders. But if these services are not cumulatively available on the same date, but extended piecemeal over a certain period of time, the time element, as will be shown, plays a particular role in their evaluation. It makes a difference whether n units of service are rendered on the same date, or whether they are stretched over a period of n days, in such a way that only one unit is available daily.
It is important to realize that the period of production as well as the duration of serviceableness are categories of human action and not concepts constructed by philosophers, economists, and historians as mental tools for their interpretation of events. They are essential elements present in every act of reasoning that precedes and directs action. It is necessary to stress this point because Böhm-Bawerk, to whom economics owes the discovery of the role played by the period of production, failed to comprehend the difference. Acting man does not look at his condition with the eyes of a historian. He is not concerned with how the present situation originated. His only concern is to make the best use of the means available today for the best possible removal of future uneasiness. The past does not count for him. He has at his disposal a definite quantity of material factors of production. He does not ask whether these factors are nature-given or the product of production processes accomplished in the past. It does not matter for him how great a quantity of nature-given, that is, original material factors of production and labor, was expended in their production, and how much time these processes of production have absorbed. He values the available means exclusively from the aspect of the services they can render him in his endeavors to make future conditions more satisfactory. The period of production and the duration of serviceableness are, for him, categories in planning future action, not concepts of academic retrospection and historical research. They play a role insofar as the actor has to choose between periods of production of different length and between the production of more durable and less durable goods. Action is not concerned with the future in general, but always with a definite and limited fraction of the future. This fraction is limited on the one side by the instant in which the action must take place. Where its other end lies depends on the actor's decision and choice. There are people who are concerned with only the impending instant. There are other people whose provident care stretches far beyond the prospective length of their own life. We may call the fraction of future time for which the actor in a definite action wants to provide in some way and to some extent the period of provision. In the same way in which acting man chooses among various kinds of want satisfaction within the same fraction of future time, he chooses also between want satisfaction in the nearer and in the remoter future. Every choice implies also a choice of a period of provision. In making up his mind how to employ the various means available for the removal of uneasiness, man also determines implicitly the period of provision. In the market economy, the demand of the consumers also determines the length of the period of provision. There are various methods available for a lengthening of the period of provision. 1. The accumulation of larger stocks of consumers' goods destined for later consumption. 2. The production of goods which are more durable. 3. 
the production of goods requiring a longer period of production. 4. The choice of methods of production consuming more time for the production of goods, which could also be produced within a shorter period of production. The first two methods do not require any further comment. The third and the fourth methods must be scrutinized more closely. It is one of the fundamental data of human life and action that the shortest processes of production, that is, those with the shortest period of production, do not remove felt uneasiness entirely. If all those goods which these shortest processes can provide are produced, unsatisfied wants remain, and incentive to further action is still present. As acting man prefers those processes which, other things being equal, produce the products in the shortest time, only such processes are left for further action which consume more time. People embark upon these more time-consuming processes because they value the increment in satisfaction expected more highly than the disadvantage of waiting longer for their fruits. Bumbaverk speaks of the higher productivity of roundabout ways of production requiring more time. It is more appropriate to speak of the higher physical productivity of production processes requiring more time. The higher productivity of these processes does not always consist in the fact that they produce, with the same quantity of factors of production expended, a greater quantity of products. More often, it consists in the fact that they produce products which could not be produced at all in shorter periods of production. These processes are not roundabout processes. They are the shortest and quickest way to the goal chosen. If one wants to catch more fish, there is no other method available than the substitution of fishing with the aid of nets and canoes for fishing without the aid of this equipment. There is no better, shorter, and cheaper method for the production of aspirin known than that adopted by the chemical plants. If one disregards error and ignorance, there cannot be any doubt about the highest productivity and expediency of the processes chosen. If people had not considered them the most direct processes, namely those leading by the shortest way to the end sought, they would not have adopted them. The lengthening of the period of provision through the mere accumulation of stocks of consumers' goods is the outcome of the desire to provide in advance for a longer period of time. The same is valid for the production of goods, the durability of which is greater in proportion to the greater expenditure of factors of production required. If the lengthening of durability were not at least proportionate to the increment in expenditure needed, it would be more advantageous to increase the quantity of units of a shorter durability. But if temporally remoter goals are aimed at, lengthening of the period of production is a necessary corollary of the venture. The end sought cannot be attained in a shorter period of production. The postponement of an act of consumption means that the individual prefers the satisfaction which later consumption will provide to the satisfaction which immediate consumption could provide.
The choice of a longer period of production means that the actor values the product of the process bearing fruit only at a later date, more highly than the products which a process consuming less time could provide. In such deliberations and the resulting choices, the period of production appears as waiting time. It was the great contribution of Jevons and Bermbaberk to have shown the role played by taking account of waiting time. If acting men were not to pay heed to the length of the waiting time, they would never say that a goal is temporally so distant that one cannot consider aiming at it. Faced with the alternative of choosing between two processes of production which render different output with the same input, they would always prefer that process which renders the greater quantity of the same products, or better products in the same quantity, even if this result could be attained only by lengthening the period of production. Increments in input which result in a more than proportionate increase in the product's duration of serviceableness would unconditionally be deemed advantageous. The fact that men do not act in this way evidences that they value fractions of time of the same length in a different way, according as they are nearer or remoter from the instant of the actor's decision. Other things being equal, satisfaction in a nearer period of the future is preferred to satisfaction in a more distant period. Disutility is seen in waiting. This fact is already implied in the statement stressed in the opening of this chapter that man distinguishes the time before satisfaction is attained and the time for the duration of which there is satisfaction. If any role at all is played by the time element in human life, there cannot be any question of equal valuation of nearer and remoter periods of the same length. Such an equal valuation would mean that people do not care whether success is attained sooner or later. It would be tantamount to a complete elimination of the time element from the process of valuation. The mere fact that goods with a longer duration of serviceableness are valued more highly than those with a shorter duration does not yet in itself imply a consideration of time. A roof that can protect a house against the weather during a period of ten years is more valuable than a roof which renders this service only for a period of five years. The quantity of service rendered is different in both cases. But the question which we have to deal with is whether or not an actor, in making his choices, attaches to a service to be available in a later period of the future the same value he attaches to a service available at an earlier period. 2. Time Preference as an Essential Requisite of Action the answer to this question is that acting man does not appraise time periods merely with regard to their dimension. His choices regarding the removal of future uneasiness are directed by the categories sooner and later. Time for man is not a homogeneous substance of which only length counts. It is not a more or a less in dimension. 
It is an irreversible flux, the fractions of which appear in different perspective according to whether they are nearer to or remoter from the instant of valuation and decision. Satisfaction of a want in the nearer future is, other things being equal, preferred to that in the farther distant future. Present goods are more valuable than future goods. Time preference is a categorial requisite of human action. No mode of action can be thought of in which satisfaction within a nearer period of the future is not, other things being equal, preferred to that in a later period. The very act of gratifying a desire implies that gratification at the present instant is preferred to that at a later instant. He who consumes a non-perishable good instead of postponing consumption for an indefinite later moment, thereby reveals a higher valuation of present satisfaction as compared with later satisfaction. If he were not to prefer satisfaction in a nearer period of the future to that in a remoter period, he would never consume and so satisfy once. He would always accumulate he would never consume and enjoy. He would not consume today, but he would not consume tomorrow either, as the morrow would confront him with the same alternative. Not only the first step toward want satisfaction, but also any further step is guided by time preference. Once the desire A, to which the scale of values assigns the rank 1, is satisfied, one must choose between the desire B, to which the rank 2 is assigned, and C, that desire of tomorrow, to which, in the absence of time preference, the rank 1 would have been assigned. If B is preferred to C, the choice clearly involves time preference. Purposive striving after want satisfaction must needs be guided by a preference for satisfaction in the nearer future over that in a remoter future. The conditions under which modern man of the capitalist West must act are different from those under which his primitive ancestors lived and acted. As a result of the providential care of our forebears, we have at our disposal an ample stock of intermediate products, capital goods or produced factors of production, and of consumers' goods. Our activities are designed for a longer period of provision, because we are the lucky heirs of a past which has lengthened, step by step, the period of provision, and has bequeathed to us the means to expand the waiting period. In acting, we are concerned with longer periods, and are aiming at an even satisfaction in all parts of the period chosen as the period of provision. We are in a position to rely upon a continuing influx of consumers' goods, and have at our disposal not only stocks of goods ready for consumption, but also stocks of producers' goods, out of which our continuous efforts again and again make new consumers' goods mature. In our dealing with this increasing stream of income, says the superficial observer, there is no heed paid to any considerations related to a different valuation of present and of future goods. We synchronize, he asserts, and thus the time element loses any importance for the conduct of affairs. 
It is, therefore, pointless, he continues, in the interpretation of modern conditions to resort to time preference. The fundamental error involved in this popular objection is caused, like so many other errors, by a lamentable misapprehension of the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy. In the frame of this imaginary construction, no change occurs. There prevails an unvarying course of all affairs. In the evenly rotating economy, consequently, nothing is altered in the allocation of goods for the satisfaction of wants in nearer and in remoter periods of the future. No one plans any change, because, according to our assumptions, the prevailing allocation best serves him, and because he does not believe that any possible rearrangement could improve his condition. No one wants to increase his consumption in a nearer period of the future at the expense of his consumption in a more distant period, or vice versa because the existing mode of allocation pleases him better than any other thinkable and feasible mode. The praxeological distinction between capital and income is a category of thought based on a different valuation of want satisfaction in various periods of the future. In the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy, it is implied that the whole income, but not more than the income, is consumed, and that therefore the capital remains unchanged. An equilibrium is reached in the allocation of goods for want satisfaction in different periods of the future. It is permissible to describe this state of affairs by asserting that nobody wants to consume tomorrow's income today. We have precisely designed the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy in such a way as to make it fit just this condition. But it is necessary to realize that we can assert with the same apodictic assurance that in the evenly rotating economy nobody wants to have more of any commodity than he really has. These statements are true with regard to the evenly rotating economy because they are implied in our definition of this imaginary construction. They are nonsensical when asserted with regard to a changing economy, which alone is real. As soon as a change in the data occurs, the individuals are faced anew with the necessity of choosing both between various modes of want satisfaction in the same period, and between want satisfaction in different periods. An increment can be either employed for immediate consumption or invested for further production. No matter how the actors employ it, their choice must needs be the result of a weighing of the advantages expected from want satisfaction in different periods of the future. In the world of reality, in the living and changing universe, each individual in each of his actions is forced to choose between satisfaction in various periods of time. Some people consume all that they earn, others consume a part of their capital, others save a part of their income. Those contesting the universal validity of time preference fail to explain why a man does not always invest a sum of $100 available today, 
although these $100 would increase to $104 within a year's time. It is obvious that this man, in consuming this sum today, is determined by a judgment of value which values $100 present dollars higher than $104 available a year later. But even in case he chooses to invest these one hundred dollars, the meaning is not that he prefers satisfaction in a later period to that of today. It means that he values one hundred dollars today less than one hundred four dollars a year later. Every penny spent today is, precisely under the conditions of a capitalist economy in which institutions make it possible to invest even the smallest sums, a proof of the higher valuation of present satisfaction as compared with later satisfaction. The theorem of time preference must be demonstrated in a double way. First, for the case of plain saving, in which people must choose between the immediate consumption of a quantity of goods and the later consumption of the same quantity. Second, for the case of capitalist saving, in which the choice is to be made between the immediate consumption of a quantity of goods and the later consumption either of a greater quantity or of goods which are fit to provide a satisfaction which, except for the difference in time, is valued more highly. The proof has been given for both cases. No other case is thinkable. It is possible to search for a psychological understanding of the problem of time preference. Impatience and the pains caused by waiting are certainly psychological phenomena. One may approach their elucidation by referring to the temporal limitations of human life, to the individual's coming into existence, his growth and maturing, and his inevitable decay and passing away. There is in the course of man's life a right moment for everything, as well as a too early and a too late. However, the praxeological problem is in no way related to psychological issues. We must conceive, not merely understand, we must conceive that a man who does not prefer satisfaction within a nearer period of the future to that in a remoter period would never achieve consumption and enjoyment at all. Neither must the praxeological problem be confused with the physiological. He who wants to live to see the later day must first of all care for the preservation of his life in the intermediate period. Survival and appeasement of vital needs are thus requirements for the satisfaction of any wants in the remoter future. This makes us understand why, in all those situations in which bare life, in the strict sense of the term, is at stake, satisfaction in the nearer future is preferred to that in later periods. But we are dealing with action as such, not with the motives directing its course. In the same way in which, as economists, we do not ask why albumin, carbohydrates, and fat are demanded by man, we do not inquire why the satisfaction of vital needs appears imperative, and does not brook any delay. 
we must conceive that consumption and enjoyment of any kind presuppose a preference for present satisfaction to later satisfaction. The knowledge provided by this insight far exceeds the orbit for which the psychological facts concerned provide explanation. It refers to every kind of want satisfaction, not only to the satisfaction of the vital necessities of mere survival. It is important to stress this point because the term supply of subsistence available for advances of subsistence, as used by Bernbawerk, can easily be misinterpreted. It is certainly one of the tasks of this stock to provide the means for a satisfaction of the bare necessities of life, and thus to secure survival. But besides, it must be large enough to satisfy, beyond the requirements of necessary maintenance for the waiting time, all those wants and desires which, apart from mere survival, are considered more urgent than the harvesting of the physically more abundant fruits of production processes consuming more time. Bermbaverk declared that every lengthening of the period of production depends on the condition that a sufficient quantity of present goods is available to make it possible to overbridge the lengthened average interval between the starting of preparatory work and the harvesting of its product. The expression sufficient quantity needs elucidation. It does not mean a quantity sufficient for necessary sustenance. The quantity in question must be large enough to secure the satisfaction of all those wants, the satisfaction of which, during the waiting time, is considered more urgent than the advantages which a still greater lengthening of the period of production would provide. If the quantity in question were smaller, a shortening of the period of production would appear advantageous. The increase in the quantity of products, or the improvement of their quality to be expected from the preservation of the longer period of production, would no longer be considered a sufficient remuneration for the restriction of consumption enjoined during the waiting time. Whether or not the supply of subsistence is sufficient does not depend on any physiological or other facts open to objective determination by the methods of technology and physiology. The metaphorical term overbridge, suggesting a body of water, the breadth of which poses to the bridge-builder an objectively determined task, is misleading. The quantity in question is valued by men, and their subjective judgments decide whether or not it is sufficient. Even in a hypothetical world in which nature provides every man with the means for the preservation of biological survival, in the strict sense of the term, in which the most important foodstuffs are not scarce, and action is not concerned with the provision for bare life, the phenomenon of time preference would be present and direct all actions. Time preference is not specifically human. It is an inherent feature of the behavior of all living things. The distinction of man consists in the very fact that with him time preference is not inexorable, and the lengthening of the period of provision not merely instinctive, as with certain animals that store food, but the result of a process of valuation.
Observations on the Evolution of the Time Preference Theory It seems plausible to assume that the mere fact that interest is graduated in reference to periods of time should have directed the attention of the economists, intent upon developing a theory of interest, upon the role played by time. However, the classical economists were prevented by their faulty theory of value and their misconstruction of the cost concept from recognizing the importance of the time element. Economics owes the time preference theory to William Stanley Jevons and its elaboration, most of all, to Eugen von Böhm-Bawerk. Böhm-Bawerk was the first to formulate correctly the problem to be solved the first to unmask the fallacies implied in the productivity theories, and the first to stress the role played by the period of production. But he did not entirely succeed in avoiding the pitfalls in the elucidation of the interest problem. His demonstration of the universal validity of time preference is inadequate because it is based on psychological considerations. However, psychology can never demonstrate the validity of a praxeological theorem. It may show that some people or many people let themselves be influenced by certain motives. It can never make evident that all human action is necessarily dominated by a definite categorial element which, without any exception, is operative in every instance of action. The second shortcoming of Brumbaverk's reasoning was his misconstruction of the concept of the period of production. He was not fully aware of the fact that the period of production is a praxeological category, and that the role it plays in action consists entirely in the choices acting man makes between periods of production of different length. The length of time expended in the past for the production of capital goods available today does not count at all. These capital goods are valued only with regard to their usefulness for future want satisfaction. The average period of production is an empty concept. What determines action is the fact that in choosing among various ways which can remove future uneasiness, the length of the waiting time in each case is a necessary element. It was an outcome of these two errors that Barmbaverk, in the elaboration of his theory, did not entirely avoid the productivity approach which he himself had so brilliantly refuted in his critical history of the doctrines of capital and interest. These observations do not detract at all from the imperishable merits of Bernbaverk's contributions. It was on the foundation laid by him that later economists, foremost among them Newt Wicksell, Frank Albert Fetter, and Irving Fisher, were successful in perfecting the time preference theory. It is customary to express the essence of the time preference theory by saying that there prevails a preference for present over future goods. In dealing with this mode of expression, some economists have been puzzled by the fact that in some cases present uses are worth less than future uses. However, the problem raised by these apparent exceptions is caused merely by a misapprehension of the true state of affairs. 
There are enjoyments which cannot be had at the same time. A man cannot on the same evening attend performances of Carmen and of Hamlet. In buying a ticket, he must choose between the two performances. If tickets to both theaters for the same evening are presented to him as a gift, he must likewise choose. He may think with regard to the ticket which he refuses, I don't care for it just now, or if only it had been later. However, this does not mean that he prefers future goods to present goods. He does not have to choose between future goods and present goods. He must choose between two enjoyments, both of which he cannot have together. This is the dilemma in every instance of choosing. In the present state of his affairs he may prefer Hamlet to Carmen. The different conditions of a later date may possibly result in another decision. The second seeming exception is presented by the case of perishable goods. They may be available in abundance in one season of the year, and may be scarce in other seasons. However, the difference between ice in winter and ice in summer is not that between a present good and a future good. It is the difference between a good that loses its specific usefulness, even if not consumed, and another good which requires a different process of production. Ice available in winter can only be used in summer when subjected to a special process of conservation. It is, in respect to ice utilizable in summer, at best one of the complementary factors required for production. It is impossible to increase the quantity of ice available in summer simply by restricting the consumption of ice in winter. The two things are, for all practical purposes, different commodities. The case of the miser does not contradict the universal validity of time preference. The miser, too, in spending some of his means for a scanty livelihood, prefers some amount of satisfaction in the nearer future to that in the remoter future. Extreme instances in which the miser denies himself even the indispensable minimum of food represent a pathological withering away of vital energy, as is the case with the man who abstains from eating out of fear of morbific germs, the man who commits suicide rather than meet a dangerous situation, and the man who cannot sleep because he is afraid of undetermined accidents which could befall him while asleep. 3. Capital Goods As soon as those present wants are sated, the satisfaction of which is considered more urgent than any provision for the morrow, people begin to save a part of the available supply of consumers' goods for later use. This postponement of consumption makes it possible to direct action toward temporally remoter ends. It is now feasible to aim at goals which could not be thought of before on account of the length of the period of production required. It is furthermore feasible to choose methods of production in which the output of products is greater per unit of input than in other methods requiring a shorter period of production. The sine qua non of any lengthening of the processes of production adopted is saving, that is, an excess of current production over current consumption.
Saving is the first step on the way toward improvement of material well-being and toward every further progress on this way. The postponement of consumption and the accumulation of stocks of consumers' goods destined for later consumption would be practiced even in the absence of the stimulus offered by the technological superiority of processes with a longer period of production. The higher productivity of such processes, consuming more time, strengthens considerably the propensity to save. The sacrifice made by restricting consumption in nearer periods of the future is henceforth not only counterbalanced by the expectation of consuming the saved goods in remoter periods, it also opens the way to a more ample supply in the remoter future, and to the attainment of goods which could not be procured at all without this sacrifice. If acting man, other conditions being equal, were not to prefer, without exception, consumption in the nearer future to that in the remoter future, he would always save, never consume. What restricts the amount of saving and investment is time preference. People eager to embark upon processes with a longer period of production must first accumulate, by means of saving, that quantity of consumers' goods which is needed to satisfy, during the waiting time, all those wants the satisfaction of which they consider more urgent than the increment in well-being expected from the more time-consuming process. Accumulation of capital begins with the formation of stocks of consumers' goods, the consumption of which is postponed for later days. If these surpluses are merely stored and kept for later consumption, they are simply wealth, or, more precisely, a reserve for rainy days and emergencies. They remain outside the orbit of production. They become integrated economically, not physically, into production activities only when employed as means of subsistence of workers engaged in more time-consuming processes. If expended in this way, they are physically consumed. But economically, they do not disappear. They are replaced first by the intermediary products of a process with a longer period of production, and then, later, by the consumer's goods which are the final product of these processes. All these ventures and processes are intellectually controlled by capital accounting, the acme of economic calculation in monetary terms. Without the aid of monetary calculation, men could not even learn whether, apart from the length of the period of production, a definite process promises a higher productivity than another. The expenditures required by various processes cannot be weighed against one another without the aid of monetary terms. Capital accounting starts with the market prices of the capital goods available for further production the sum of which it calls capital. It records every expenditure from this fund and the price of all incoming items induced by such expenditure. It establishes finally the ultimate outcome of all these transformations in the composition of the capital, and thereby the success or the failure of the whole process. It shows not only the final result, 
it mirrors also every one of its intermediary stages. It produces interim balances for every day such a balance may be required, and statements of profit and loss for every part or stage of the process. It is the indispensable compass of production in the market economy. In the market economy, production is a continuous, never-ending pursuit, split up into an immense variety of partial processes. Innumerable processes of production with different periods of production are in progress simultaneously. They complement one another, and at the same time are in rivalry with one another in competing for scarce factors of production. Continuously, either new capital is accumulated by saving, or previously accumulated capital is eaten up by overconsumption. Production is distributed among numerous individual plants, farms, workshops, and enterprises, each of which serves only limited purposes. The intermediary products, or capital goods, the produced factors of further production, change hands in the course of events. They pass from one plant to another, until finally the consumer's goods reach those who use and enjoy them. The social process of production never stops. At each instant, numberless processes are in progress, some of which are nearer to, some remoter from, the achievement of their special tasks. Every single performance in this ceaseless pursuit of wealth production is based upon the saving and the preparatory work of earlier generations. We are the lucky heirs of our fathers and forefathers, whose saving has accumulated the capital goods with the aid of which we are working today. We favorite children of the age of electricity still derive advantage from the original saving of the primitive fishermen, who, in producing the first nets and canoes, devoted a part of their working time to provision for a remoter future. If the sons of these legendary fishermen had worn out these intermediary products, nets and canoes, without replacing them by new ones, they would have consumed capital, and the process of saving and capital accumulation would have had to start afresh. We are better off than earlier generations because we are equipped with the capital goods they have accumulated for us. The businessman, the acting man, is entirely absorbed in one task only, to take best advantage of all the means available for the improvement of future conditions. He does not look at the present state of affairs with the aim of analyzing and comprehending it. In classifying the means for further production and appraising their importance, he adopts superficial rules of thumb. He distinguishes three classes of factors of production, the nature-given material factors, the human factor, labor, and capital goods, the intermediary factors produced in the past. He does not analyze the nature of the capital goods. They are, in his eyes, means of increasing the productivity of labor. Quite naively, he ascribes to them productive power of their own, he does not trace their instrumentality back to nature and labor. He does not ask how they came into existence. 
they count only as far as they may contribute to the success of his efforts. This mode of reasoning is all right for the businessman, but it was a serious mistake for the economists to agree with the businessman's superficial view. They erred in classifying capital as an independent factor of production along with the nature-given material resources and labor. The capital goods, the factors of further production produced in the past, are not an independent factor. They are the joint products of the cooperation of the two original factors, nature and labor, expended in the past. They have no productive power of their own. Neither is it correct to call the capital goods labor and nature stored up. They are rather labor, nature, and time stored up. The difference between production without the aid of capital goods and that assisted by the employment of capital goods consists in time. Capital goods are intermediary stations on the way leading from the very beginning of production to its final goal, the turning out of consumers' goods. He who produces with the aid of capital goods enjoys one great advantage over the man who starts without capital goods. He is nearer in time to the ultimate goal of his endeavors. There is no question of an alleged productivity of capital goods. The difference between the price of a capital good, for example, a machine, and the sum of the prices of the complementary original factors of production required for its reproduction is entirely due to the time difference. He who employs the machine is nearer the goal of production. The period of production is shorter for him than for a competitor who must start from the beginning. In buying a machine, he buys the original factors of production to be expended in its reproduction plus time, that is, the time by which his period of production is shortened. The value of time, that is, Time preference, or the higher valuation of want satisfaction in nearer periods of the future, as against that in remoter periods, is an essential element in human action. It determines every choice and every action. There is no man for whom the difference between sooner and later does not count. The time element is instrumental in the formation of all prices, of all commodities and services. 4. Period of Production, Waiting Time, and Period of Provision If one were to measure the length of the period of production spent in the fabrication of the various goods available now, one would have to trace back their history to the point at which the first expenditure of original factors of production took place. One would have to establish when natural resources and labor were first employed for processes which, besides contributing to the production of other goods, also contributed ultimately to the production of the good in question. The solution of this problem would require the solubility of the problem of physical imputation. It would be necessary to establish in quantitative terms to what extent tools, raw materials, and labor, which directly or indirectly were used in the production of the good concerned, contributed to the result.
One would have to go back in these inquiries to the very origins of capital accumulation by saving on the part of people who previously lived from hand to mouth. It is not only practical difficulties which prevent such historical studies. The very insolubility of the problem of physical imputation stops us at the first step of such ventures. Neither acting man himself nor economic theory needs a measurement of the time expended in the past for the production of goods available today. They would have no use for such data, even if they knew them. Acting man is faced with the problem of how to take best advantage of the available supply of goods. He makes his choices in employing each part of this supply in such a way as to satisfy the most urgent of the not yet satisfied wants. For the achievement of this task, he must know the length of the waiting time which separates him from the attainment of the various goals among which he has to choose. As has been pointed out and must be emphasized again, there is no need for him to look backward to the history of the various capital goods available. Acting man counts waiting time and the period of production always from today on. In the same way in which there is no need to know whether more or less labor and material factors of production have been expended in the production of the products available now, there is no need to know whether their production has absorbed more or less time. Things are valued exclusively from the point of view of the services they can render for the satisfaction of future wants. The actual sacrifices made and the time absorbed in their production are beside the point. These things belong to the dead past. It is necessary to realize that all economic categories are related to human action and have nothing at all to do directly with the physical properties of things. Economics is not about goods and services. It is about human choice and action. The praxeological concept of time is not the concept of physics or biology. It refers to the sooner or the later as operative in the actor's judgments of value. The distinction between capital goods and consumer's goods is not a rigid distinction based on the physical and physiological properties of the goods concerned. It depends on the position of the actors and the choices they have to make. The same goods can be looked upon as capital goods and as consumers' goods. A supply of goods ready for immediate enjoyment is capital goods, from the point of view of a man who looks upon it as a means for his own sustenance and that of hired workers during a waiting time. An increase in the quantity of capital goods available is a necessary condition for the adoption of processes in which the period of production and therefore waiting time are longer. If one wants to attain ends which are temporally farther away, one must resort to a longer period of production, because it is impossible to attain the end sought in a shorter period of production. If one wants to resort to methods of production with which the quantity of output is higher per unit of input expended, one must lengthen the period of production. 
for the processes with which output is smaller per unit of input have been chosen only on account of the shorter period of production they require. But, on the other hand, not every employment chosen for the utilization of capital goods accumulated by means of additional saving requires a process of production in which the period of production from today on to the maturing of the product is longer than with all processes already adopted previously. It may be that people, having satisfied their more urgent needs, now want goods which can be produced within a comparatively short period. The reason why these goods have not been produced previously was not that the period of production required for them alone was deemed too long, but that there was a more urgent employment open for the factors required. If one chooses to assert that every increase in the supply of capital goods available results in a lengthening of the period of production and of waiting time, one reasons in the following way. If A are the goods already previously produced, and B the goods produced in the new processes started with the aid of the increase in capital goods, it is obvious that people had to wait longer for A and B than they had to wait for A alone. In order to produce A and B, it was not only necessary to acquire the capital goods required for the production of A, but also those required for the production of B. If one had expended for an increase of immediate consumption the means of sustenance saved to make workers available for the production of B, one would have attained the satisfaction of some wants sooner. The treatment of the capital problem customary with those economists who are opposed to the so-called Austrian view assumes that the technique employed in production is unalterably determined by the given state of technological knowledge. The Austrian economists, on the other hand, show that it is the supply of capital goods available at each moment that determines which of the many known technological methods of production will be employed. The correctness of the Austrian point of view can easily be demonstrated by a scrutiny of the problem of scarcity of capital. Let us look at the condition of a country suffering from scarcity of capital. Take, for instance, the state of affairs in Romania, about 1860. What was lacking was certainly not technological knowledge. There was no secrecy concerning the technological methods practiced by the advanced nations of the West. They were described in innumerable books and taught at many schools. The elite of Romanian youth had received full information about them at the technological universities of Austria, Switzerland, and France. Hundreds of foreign experts were ready to apply their knowledge and skill in Romania, what was wanting was the capital goods needed for a transformation of the backward Romanian apparatus of production, transportation, and communication according to Western patterns. If the aid granted to the Romanians on the part of the advanced foreign nations had consisted merely in providing them with technological knowledge— they would have had to realize that it would take a very long time until they caught up with the West. 
The first thing for them to have done would have been to save in order to make workers and material factors of production available for the performance of more time-consuming processes. Only then could they successively produce the tools required for the construction of those plants, which, in the further course, were to produce the equipment needed for the construction and operation of modern plants, farms, mines, railroads, telegraph lines, and buildings. Scores of decades would have passed until they had made up for the time lost, there would not have been any means of accelerating this process than by restricting current consumption as far as physiologically possible for the intermediary period. However, things developed in a different way. The capitalist West lent to the backward countries the capital goods needed for an instantaneous transformation of a great part of their methods of production. It saved them time and made it possible for them to multiply very soon the productivity of their labor. The effect for the Romanians was that they could immediately enjoy the advantages derived from the modern technological procedures. It was as if they had started at a much earlier date to save and to accumulate capital goods. Shortage of capital means that one is further away from the attainment of a goal sought than if one had started to aim at it at an earlier date. Because one neglected to do this in the past, the intermediary products are wanting, although the nature-given factors from which they are to be produced are available. Capital shortage is dearth of time. It is the effect of the fact that one was late in beginning the march toward the aim concerned. It is impossible to describe the advantages derived from capital goods available and the disadvantages resulting from the paucity of capital goods without resorting to the time element of sooner and later. To have capital goods at one's disposal is tantamount to being nearer to a goal aimed at. An increment in capital goods available makes it possible to attain temporally remoter ends without being forced to restrict consumption. A loss in capital goods, on the other hand, makes it necessary either to abstain from striving after certain goals which one could aim at before, or to restrict consumption. To have capital goods means, other things being equal, a temporal gain. As against those who lack capital goods, the capitalist, under the given state of technological knowledge, is in a position to reach a definite goal sooner, without restricting consumption, and without increasing the input of labor and nature-given material factors of production. His head start is in time. A rival endowed with a smaller supply of capital goods can catch up only by restricting his consumption. The start which the peoples of the West have gained over the other peoples consists in the fact that they have long since created the political and institutional conditions required for a smooth and, by and large, uninterrupted progress of the process of larger-scale saving, capital accumulation, and investment. 
Thus, by the middle of the nineteenth century, they had already attained a state of well-being which far surpassed that of poorer races and nations, less successful in substituting the ideas of acquisitive capitalism for those of predatory militarism. Left alone and unaided by foreign capital, these backward peoples would have needed much more time to improve their methods of production, transportation, and communication. It is impossible to understand the course of world affairs and the development of the relations between West and East in the last centuries if one does not comprehend the importance of this large-scale transfer of capital. The West has given to the East not only technological and therapeutical knowledge, but also the capital goods needed for an immediate practical application of this knowledge. These nations of Eastern Europe, Asia, and Africa have been able, thanks to the foreign capital imported, to reap the fruits of modern industry at an earlier date. They were, to some extent, relieved from the necessity of restricting their consumption in order to accumulate a sufficient stock of capital goods. This was the true nature of the alleged exploitation of the backward nations on the part of Western capitalism, about which their nationalists and the Marxians lament. It was a fecundation of the economically backward nations by the wealth of the more advanced nations. The benefits derived were mutual. What impelled the capitalists of the West to embark upon foreign investment was the demand of the consumers. Consumers asked for goods which could not be produced at all at home, and for a cheapening of goods which could be produced at home only with rising costs. If the consumers of the capitalist West had behaved in a different way, or if the institutional obstacles to capital export had proved insurmountable, no capital export would have occurred. There would have been more longitudinal expansion of domestic production instead of lateral expansion abroad. It is not the task of catalactics, but of history, to deal with the consequences of the internationalization of the capital market, its working, and its final disintegration brought about by the expropriation policies adopted by the receiving countries. Catalactics has only to scrutinize the effects of a richer or poorer supply of capital goods. We compare the conditions of two isolated market systems, A and B. Both are equal in size and population figures, the state of technological knowledge, and in natural resources. They differ from one another only in the supply of capital goods, this supply being larger in A than in B. This enjoins that in A, many processes of production are employed with which the output is greater per unit of input than with those employed in B. In B, one cannot consider the adoption of these processes on account of the comparative scarcity of capital goods. Their adoption would require a restriction of consumption, in B, many manipulations are performed by manual labor, which in A are performed by labor-saving machines. In A, goods are produced with a longer durability. 
In B, one must abstain from producing them, although the lengthening of durability is obtained by a less than a proportionate increase in input. In A, the productivity of labor, and consequently wage rates and the standard of living of the wage earners, are higher than in B. Prolongation of the period of provision beyond the expected duration of the actor's life. The judgments of value which determine the choice between satisfaction in nearer and in remoter periods of the future are expressive of present valuation and not of future valuation. They weigh the significance attached today to satisfaction in the nearer future against the significance attached today to satisfaction in the remoter future. The uneasiness which acting man wants to remove as far as possible is always present uneasiness, that is, uneasiness felt in the very moment of action, and it always refers to future conditions. The actor is discontented today with the expected state of affairs in various periods of the future, and tries to alter it through purposive conduct. If action is primarily directed toward the improvement of other people's conditions, and is therefore commonly called altruistic, the uneasiness the actor wants to remove is his own present dissatisfaction with the expected state of other people's affairs in various periods of the future. In taking care of other people, he aims at alleviating his own dissatisfaction. It is therefore not surprising that acting man often is intent upon prolonging the period of provision beyond the expected duration of his own life. Some Applications of the Time Preference Theory Every part of economics is open to intentional misrepresentation and misinterpretation on the part of people eager to excuse or to justify fallacious doctrines underlying their party programs. To prevent such misuse as far as possible, it seems expedient to add some explanatory remarks to the exposition of the time preference theory. There are schools of thought which flatly deny that men differ with regard to innate characteristics inherited from their ancestors. In the opinion of these authors, the only difference between the white men of Western civilization and Eskimos is that the latter are in arrears in their progress toward modern industrial civilization. This merely temporal difference of a few thousand years is insignificant when compared with the many hundreds of thousands of years which were absorbed by man's evolution from the simian state of his ape-like forebears to the conditions of present-day Homo sapiens. It does not support the assumption that racial differences prevail between the various specimens of mankind. Praxeology and economics are foreign to the issues raised by this controversy, but they must take precautionary measures, lest they become implicated by partisan spirit in this clash of antagonistic ideas. If those fanatically rejecting the teachings of modern genetics were not entirely ignorant of economics, they would certainly try to turn the time-preference theory to their advantage. 
They would refer to the circumstance that the superiority of the Western nations consists merely in their having started earlier in endeavors to save and to accumulate capital goods. They would explain this temporal difference by accidental factors, the better opportunity offered by environment. Against such possible misinterpretations, one must emphasize the fact that the temporal head start gained by the Western nations was conditioned by ideological factors, which cannot be reduced simply to the operation of environment. What is called human civilization has up to now been a progress from cooperation by virtue of hegemonic bonds to cooperation by virtue of contractual bonds. But while many races and peoples were arrested at an early stage of this movement, others kept on advancing. The eminence of the Western nations consisted in the fact that they succeeded better in checking the spirit of predatory militarism than the rest of mankind, and that they thus brought forth the social institutions required for saving and investment on a broader scale. Even Marx did not contest the fact that private initiative and private ownership of the means of production were indispensable stages in the progress from primitive man's penury to the more satisfactory conditions of 19th century Western Europe and North America. What the East Indies, China, Japan, and the Mohammedan countries lacked were institutions of safeguarding the individual's rights. The arbitrary administration of pashas, kadis, rajas, mandarins, and daimyos was not conducive to large-scale accumulation of capital. The legal guarantees effectively protecting the individual against expropriation and confiscation were the foundations upon which the unprecedented economic progress of the West came into flower, these laws were not an outgrowth of chance, historical accidents, and geographical environment. They were the product of reason. We do not know what course the history of Asia and Africa would have taken if these peoples had been left alone. What happened was that some of these peoples were subject to European rule, and others, like China and Japan, were forced by the display of naval power to open their frontiers. The achievements of Western industrialism came to them from abroad. They were ready to take advantage of the foreign capital lent to them and invested in their territories but they were rather slow in the reception of the ideologies from which modern industrialism had sprung. Their assimilation to Western ways of life is superficial. We are in the midst of a revolutionary process, which will very soon do away with all varieties of colonialism. This revolution is not limited to those countries which were subject to the rule of the British, the French, and the Dutch. Even nations which, without any infringement of their political sovereignty, had profited from foreign capital, are intent upon throwing off what they call the yoke of foreign capitalists. They are expropriating the foreigners by various devices, discriminatory taxation, repudiation of debts, undisguised confiscation, foreign exchange restrictions. We are on the eve of the complete disintegration of the international capital market. 
The economic consequences of this event are obvious. Its political repercussions are unpredictable. In order to appreciate the political consequences of the disintegration of the international capital market, it is necessary to remember what effects were brought about by the internationalization of the capital market. Under the conditions of the later 19th century, it did not matter whether or not a nation was prepared and equipped with the required capital in order to utilize adequately the natural resources of its territory. There was practically free access for everybody to every area's natural wealth. In searching for the most advantageous opportunities for investment, capitalists and promoters were not stopped by national borderlines. As far as investment for the best possible utilization of the known natural resources was concerned, the greater part of the Earth's surface could be considered as integrated into a uniform, world-embracing market system. It is true that this result was attained in some areas, like the British and the Dutch East Indies and Malaya, only by colonial regimes, and that autochthonous governments of these territories would probably not have created the institutional setting indispensable for the importation of capital. But Eastern and Southern Europe and the Western Hemisphere had, of their own accord, joined the community of the international capital market. The Marxians were intent upon indicting foreign loans and investments for the lust for war, conquest, and colonial expansion. In fact, the internationalization of the capital market, together with free trade and the freedom of migration, was instrumental in removing the economic incentives to war and conquest. It no longer mattered for a man where the political boundaries of his country were drawn. The entrepreneur and the investor were not checked by them. Precisely those nations which, in the age preceding the First World War, were paramount in foreign lending and investment, were committed to the ideas of peace-loving, decadent liberalism. Of the foremost aggressor nations, Russia, Italy, and Japan were not capital exporters. They themselves needed foreign capital for the development of their own natural resources. Germany's imperialistic adventures were not supported by its big business and finance. The disappearance of the international capital market alters conditions entirely. It abolishes the freedom of access to natural resources. If one of the socialist governments of the economically backward nations lacks the capital needed for the utilization of its natural resources, there will be no means to remedy this situation. If this system had been adopted a hundred years ago, it would have been impossible to exploit the oil fields of Mexico, Venezuela, and Iran to establish the rubber plantations in Malaya, or to develop the banana production of Central America. It is illusory to assume that the advanced nations will acquiesce in such a state of affairs. They will resort to the only method which gives them access to badly needed raw materials. They will resort to conquest. War is the alternative to freedom of foreign investment, as realized by the international capital market. The inflow of foreign capital did not harm the receiving nations. 
It was European capital that accelerated considerably the marvelous economic evolution of the United States and the British dominions. Thanks to foreign capital, the countries of Latin America and Asia are today equipped with facilities for production and transportation which they would have had to forego for a very long time if they had not received this aid. Real wage rates and farm yields are higher today in those areas than they would have been in the absence of foreign capital. The mere fact that almost all nations are vehemently asking today for American credits explodes the fables of the Marxians and the Nationalists. However, the mere lust for imported capital goods does not resuscitate the international capital market. Investment and lending abroad are only possible if the receiving nations are unconditionally and sincerely committed to the principle of private property, and do not plan to expropriate the foreign capitalists at a later date. It was such expropriations that destroyed the international capital market. Intergovernmental loans are no substitute for the functioning of an international capital market. If they are granted on business terms, they presuppose no less than private loans the full acknowledgment of property rights. If they are granted, as is usually the case, as virtual subsidies without any regard for payment of principal and interest, they impose restrictions upon the debtor nation's sovereignty. In fact, such loans are, for the most part, the price paid for military assistance in coming wars. Such military considerations already played an important role in the years in which the European powers prepared the great wars of our age. The outstanding example was provided by the huge sums which the French capitalists, pressed hard by the government of the Third Republic, lent to Imperial Russia. The Tsars used the capital borrowed for armaments, not for an improvement of the Russian apparatus of production. They did not invest it. They consumed a great part of it. 5. The Convertibility of Capital Goods Capital goods are intermediary steps on the way toward a definite goal. If, in the course of the period of production, the goal is changed, it is not always possible to use the intermediary products already available for the pursuit of the new goal. Some of the capital goods become absolutely useless, and all expenditure made in their production appears now as waste. Other capital goods can be utilized for the new project, but only after having been subjected to a process of adjustment. It would have been possible to spare the costs required by this alteration if one had, from the start, aimed at the new goal. A third group of capital goods can be employed for the new process without any alteration, but if it had been known at the time they were produced that they would be used in the new way, it would have been possible to manufacture at smaller cost other goods which could render the same service. Finally, there are also capital goods which can be employed for the new project just as well as for the original one. It would hardly be necessary to mention these obvious facts if it were not essential to refute popular misconceptions. 
There is no such thing as an abstract or ideal capital that exists apart from concrete capital goods. If we disregard the role cash-holding plays in the composition of capital, we will deal with this problem in one of the later sections. We must realize that capital is always embodied in definite capital goods and is affected by everything that happens with regard to them. The value of an amount of capital is a derivative of the value of the capital goods in which it is embodied. The money equivalent of an amount of capital is the sum of the money equivalents of the aggregate of capital goods to which one refers in speaking of capital in the abstract. There is nothing which could be called free capital. Capital is always in the form of definite capital goods. These capital goods are better utilizable for some purposes, less utilizable for others, and absolutely useless for still other purposes. Every unit of capital is therefore in some way or other fixed capital, that is, dedicated to definite processes of production. The businessman's distinction between fixed capital and circulating capital is a difference of degree, not of kind. Everything that is valid with regard to fixed capital is also valid, although to a smaller degree, with regard to circulating capital. All capital goods have a more or less specific character. Of course, with many of them, it is rather unlikely that a change in wants and plans will make them entirely useless. The more a definite process of production approaches its ultimate end, the closer becomes the tie between its intermediary products and the goal aimed at. Iron is less specific in character than iron tubes, and iron tubes less so than iron machine parts. The conversion of a process of production becomes, as a rule, the more difficult, the farther it has been pursued, and the nearer it has come to its termination, the turning out of consumers' goods. In looking at the process of capital accumulation from its very beginnings, one can easily recognize that there cannot be such a thing as free capital. There is only capital embodied in goods of a more specific character and in goods of a less specific character. When the wants or the opinions concerning the methods of want satisfaction change, the value of the capital goods is altered accordingly. Additional capital goods can come into existence only through making consumption lag behind current production. The additional capital is already, in the very moment of its coming into existence, embodied in concrete capital goods. These goods had to be produced before they could, as an excess of production over consumption, become capital goods. The role which the intraposition of money plays in the sequence of these events will be dealt with later. Here we need only recognize that even the capitalist whose whole capital consists in money and in claims to money does not own free capital. His funds are tied up with money. They are affected by changes in money's purchasing power, and as far as they are invested in claims to definite sums of money, also by changes in the debtor's solvency. 
It is expedient to substitute the notion of the convertibility of capital goods for the misleading distinction between fixed and free or circulating capital. The convertibility of capital goods is the opportunity offered to adjust their utilization to a change in the data of production. Convertibility is graduated. It is never perfect, that is, present with regard to all possible changes in the data. In the case of absolutely specific factors, it is entirely absent. As the conversion of capital goods from the employment originally planned to other employments becomes necessary through the emergence of unforeseen changes in the data, it is impossible to speak of convertibility in general without reference to changes in the data which have already occurred or are expected. A radical change in the data could make capital goods previously considered to be easily convertible, either not convertible at all, or convertible only with difficulty. It is obvious that in practice the problem of convertibility plays a greater role with goods, the serviceability of which consists in rendering a series of services over a period of time, than with capital goods, the serviceability of which is exhausted by rendering only one service in the process of production. The unused capacity of plants and transportation facilities, and the scrapping of equipment which, according to the plans underlying its production, was designed for longer use, are more momentous than the throwing away of fabrics and clothing out of fashion and of physically perishable goods. The problem of convertibility is peculiarly a problem of capital and capital goods only insofar as capital accounting makes it especially visible with regard to capital goods. Essentially, it is a phenomenon present also in the case of consumers' goods, which an individual has acquired for his own use and consumption. If the conditions which resulted in their acquisition change, the problem of convertibility becomes actual with them, too. Capitalists and entrepreneurs in their capacity as owners of capital are never perfectly free. They are never on the eve of the first decision and action which will bind them. They are always already engaged in some way or other. Their funds are not outside the social process of production, but invested in definite lines. If they own cash, this is, according to the state of the market, either a sound or an unsound investment, but it is always an investment. They have either let slip the right moment for the purchase of concrete factors of production which they must buy sooner or later, or the right moment to buy has not yet come. In the first case, their holding of cash is unsound, they have missed an opportunity. In the second case, their choice was correct. Capitalists and entrepreneurs in expending money for the purchase of concrete factors of production value the goods exclusively from the point of view of the anticipated future state of the market. They pay prices adjusted to future conditions as they themselves appraise them today. Errors committed in the past in the production of capital goods available today do not burden the buyer. Their incidence falls entirely on the seller. 
In this sense, the entrepreneur who proceeds to buy against money capital goods for future production crosses out the past. His entrepreneurial ventures are not affected by changes which, in the past, occurred in the valuation and the prices of the factors of production he acquires. In this sense alone, one may say that the owner of ready cash owns liquid funds and is free. 6. The Influence of the Past Upon Action The more the accumulation of capital goods proceeds, the greater becomes the problem of convertibility. The primitive methods of farmers and handicraftsmen of earlier ages could more easily be adjusted to new tasks than modern capitalist methods. But it is precisely modern capitalism that is faced with rapid changes in conditions. Changes in technological knowledge and in the demand of consumers as they occur daily in our time make obsolete many of the plans directing the course of production and raise the question whether or not one should pursue the path started on. The spirit of sweeping innovation may get hold of men, may triumph over the inhibitions of sluggishness and indolence, may incite the slothful slaves of routine to a radical rescission of traditional valuations, and may peremptorily urge people to enter upon new paths leading to new goals. Doctrinaires may try to forget that we are, in all our endeavors, the heirs of our fathers, and that our civilization, the product of a long evolution, cannot be transformed at one stroke. But however strong the propensity for innovation may be, it is kept in bounds by a factor that forces men not to deviate too hastily from the course chosen by their forebears. All material wealth is a residuum of past activities, and is embodied in concrete capital goods of limited convertibility. The capital goods accumulated direct the actions of the living into lines which they would not have chosen if their discretion had not been restricted by binding action accomplished in the past. The choice of ends and of the means for the attainment of those ends is influenced by the past. Capital goods are a conservative element. They force us to adjust our actions to conditions brought about by our own conduct in earlier days, and the thinking, choosing, and acting of bygone generations. We may picture to ourselves the image of how things would be if, equipped with our present knowledge of natural resources, geography, technology, and hygienics, we had arranged all processes of production and manufactured all capital goods accordingly. We would have located the centers of production in other places. We would have populated the earth's surface in a different way. Some areas which are today densely inhabited and full of plants and farms would be less occupied. We would have assembled more people and more shops and farms in other areas. All establishments would be equipped with the most efficient machines and tools. Each of them would be of the size required for the most economical utilization of its capacity of production. 
In the world of our perfect planning, there would be no technological backwardness, no unused capacity to produce, and no avoidable shipping of men or of goods. The productivity of human exertion would far surpass that prevailing in our actual imperfect state. The writings of the socialists are full of such utopian fancies. Whether they call themselves Marxian or non-Marxian socialists, technocrats or simply planners, they are all eager to show us how foolishly things are arranged in reality, and how happily men could live if they were to invest the reformers with dictatorial powers. It is only the inadequacy of the capitalist mode of production that prevents mankind from enjoying all the amenities which could be produced under the contemporary state of technological knowledge. The fundamental error involved in this rationalistic romanticism is the misconception of the character of the capital goods available and of their scarcity. The intermediary products available today were manufactured in the past by our ancestors and by ourselves. The plans which guided their production were an outgrowth of the then prevailing ideas concerning ends and technological procedures. If we consider aiming at different ends and choosing different methods of production, we are faced with an alternative. We must either leave unused a great part of the capital goods available and start afresh producing modern equipment, or we must adjust our production processes as far as possible to the specific character of the capital goods available. The choice rests, as it always does in the market economy, with the consumers. Their conduct in buying or not buying settles the issue. In choosing between old tenements and new ones equipped with all the gadgets of comfort, between railroad and motor car, between gas and electric light, between cotton and rayon goods, between silk and nylon hosiery, they implicitly choose between a continued employment of previously accumulated capital goods and their scrapping. When an old building, which could still be inhabited for years, is not prematurely demolished and replaced by a modern house because the tenants are not prepared to pay higher rents and prefer to satisfy other wants instead of living in more comfortable homes, it is obvious how present consumption is influenced by conditions of the past. The fact that not every technological improvement is instantly applied in the whole field is not more conspicuous than the fact that not everybody throws away his old car or his old clothes as soon as a better car is on the market or new patterns become fashionable. In all such things, people are motivated by the scarcity of goods available. A new machine, more efficient than those used previously, is constructed. Whether or not the plants equipped with the old, less efficient machines will discard them in spite of the fact that they are still utilizable and replace them by the new model depends on the degree of the new machine's superiority. Only if this superiority is great enough to compensate for the additional expenditure required is the scrapping of the old equipment economically sound. Let P be the price of the new machine. 
Q the price that can be realized by selling the old machine as scrap iron. A the cost of producing one unit of product by the old machine. B the cost of producing one unit of product by the new machine without taking into account the costs required for its purchase. Let us further assume that the eminence of the new machine consists merely in a better utilization of raw material and labor employed, and not in manufacturing a greater quantity of products, and that thus the annual output Z remains unchanged. Then the replacement of the old machine by the new one is advantageous if the yield Z, A minus B, is large enough to make good for the expenditure of P minus Q. We may disregard the writing off of depreciation in assuming that the annual quotas are not greater for the new machine than for the old one. The same considerations hold true also for the transfer of an already existing plant from a place in which conditions of production are less favorable to a location offering more favorable conditions. Technological backwardness and economic inferiority are two different things, and must not be confused. It can happen that a production aggregate, which, from a merely technological point of view, appears outclassed, is in a position to compete successfully with aggregates better equipped or located at more favorable sites. The degree of the superiority provided by the technologically more efficient equipment or by the more propitious location as compared with the surplus expenditure required for the transformation decides the issue. This relation depends on the convertibility of the capital goods concerned. The distinction between technological perfection and economic expediency is not as romantic engineers would have us believe, a feature of capitalism. It is true that only economic calculation as possible solely in a market economy gives the opportunity to establish all the computations required for the cognition of the relevant facts. A socialist management would not be in a position to ascertain the state of affairs by arithmetical methods. It would therefore not know whether or not what it plans and puts into operation is the most appropriate procedure to employ the means available for the satisfaction of what it considers to be the most urgent of the still unsatisfied wants of the people. But, if it were in a position to calculate, it would not proceed in a way different from that of the calculating businessman. It would not squander scarce factors of production for the satisfaction of wants deemed less urgent if this would prevent the satisfaction of more urgent wants. It would not hurry to scrap still utilizable production facilities if the investment required would impair the expansion of the production of more urgently needed goods. If one takes the problem of convertibility into proper account, one can easily explode many widespread fallacies. Take, for instance, the infant industries argument advanced in favor of protection. Its supporters assert that temporary protection is needed in order to develop processing industries in places in which natural conditions for their operation are more favorable 
or at least no less favorable than in the areas in which the older established competitors are located. These older industries have acquired an advantage by their early start. They are now fostered by a merely historical, accidental, and manifestly irrational factor. This advantage prevents the establishment of competing plants in areas the conditions of which give promise of becoming able to produce more cheaply than, or at least as cheaply as, the old ones. It may be admitted that protection for infant industries is temporarily expensive, but the sacrifices made will be more than repaid by the gains to be reaped later. The truth is that the establishment of an infant industry is advantageous from the economic point of view only if the superiority of the new location is so momentous that it outweighs the disadvantages resulting from the abandonment of non-convertible and non-transferable capital goods invested in the older established plants. If this is the case, the new plants will be able to compete successfully with the old ones, without any aid given by the government. If it is not the case, the protection granted to them is wasteful, even if it is only temporary and enables the new industry to hold its own at a later period. The tariff amounts virtually to a subsidy, which the consumers are forced to pay as a compensation for the employment of scarce factors of production for the replacement of still utilizable capital goods to be scrapped, and the withholding of these scarce factors from other employments in which they could render services valued higher by the consumers. The consumers are deprived of the opportunity to satisfy certain wants, because the capital goods required are directed toward the production of goods which were already available for them in the absence of tariffs. There prevails a universal tendency for all industries to move to those locations in which the potentialities for production are most propitious. In the unhampered market economy, this tendency is slowed down as much as due consideration to the inconvertibility of scarce capital goods requires. This historical element does not give a permanent superiority to the old industries. It only prevents the waste originating from investments which bring about unused capacity of still utilizable production facilities on the one hand, and a restriction of capital goods available for the satisfaction of unsatisfied wants, on the other hand. In the absence of tariffs, the migration of industries is postponed until the capital goods invested in the old plants are worn out or become obsolete by technological improvements which are so momentous as to necessitate their replacement by new equipment. The industrial history of the United States provides numerous examples of the shifting, within the boundaries of the country, of centers of industrial production, which was not fostered by any protective measures on the part of the authorities. The infant industries argument is no less spurious than all the other arguments advanced in favor of protection. Another popular fallacy refers to the alleged suppression of useful patents. 
A patent is a legal monopoly granted for a limited number of years to the inventor of a new contrivance. At this point, we are not concerned with the question whether or not it is a good policy to grant such exclusive privileges to inventors. We have to deal only with the assertion that big business misuses the patent system to withhold from the public benefits it could derive from technological improvement. In granting a patent to an inventor, the authorities do not investigate the invention's economic significance. They are concerned merely with the priority of the idea and limit their examination to technological problems. They deal with the same impartial scrupulousness with an invention which revolutionizes a whole industry and with some trifling gadget, the uselessness of which is obvious. Thus, patent protection is provided to a vast number of quite worthless inventions. Their authors are ready to overrate the importance of their contribution to the progress of technological knowledge and build exaggerated hopes upon the material gain it could bring them. Disappointed, they grumble about the absurdity of an economic system that deprives the people of the benefit of technological progress. The conditions under which it is economical to substitute new improved equipment for still utilizable older tools have been pointed out above. If these conditions are absent, it does not pay, either for private enterprise in a market economy or for the socialist management of a totalitarian system, to adopt the new technological process immediately. The new machinery to be produced for new plants, the expansion of already existing plants, and the replacement of old equipment torn out will be effected according to the new design. But the still utilizable equipment will not be scrapped. The new process will be adopted only step by step. The plants equipped with the old devices are, for some time still, in a position to stand the competition of those equipped with the new ones. Those questioning the correctness of this statement should ask themselves whether they always throw away their vacuum cleaners or radio sets as soon as better models are offered for sale. It does not make any difference in this regard whether the new invention is or is not protected by a patent. A firm that has acquired a license has already expended money for the new invention. If it nonetheless does not adopt the new method, the reason is that its adoption does not pay. It is of no avail that the government-created monopoly which the patent provides prevents competitors from applying it. What counts alone is the degree of superiority secured by the new invention as against old methods. Superiority means reduction in the cost of production per unit, or such an improvement in the quality of the product that buyers are ready to pay adequately higher prices. The absence of a sufficient degree of superiority to make the cost of transformation profitable is proof of the fact that consumers are more intent upon acquiring other goods than upon enjoying the benefits of the new invention. It is the consumers with whom the ultimate decision rests.
Superficial observers sometimes fail to see these facts because they are deluded by the practice of many big enterprises of acquiring the rights granted by a patent in their field regardless of its usefulness. This practice stems from various considerations. 1. The economic significance of the innovation is not yet recognizable. 2. The innovation is obviously useless, but the firm believes that it could develop it in such a way as to make it useful. 3. The immediate application of the innovation does not pay, but the firm intends to apply it later when replacing its worn-out equipment. 4. The firm wants to encourage the inventor to continue his research in spite of the fact that up to now his endeavors have not resulted in a practically utilizable innovation. 5. The firm wants to placate litigious inventors in order to spare the money, time, and nervous strain which frivolous infringement suits bring about. 6. The firm resorts to hardly disguised bribery or yields to veiled blackmail when paying for quite useless patents to officers, engineers, or other influential personnel of firms or institutions which are its customers or potential customers. If an invention is so superior to the old processes that it makes the old equipment obsolete and peremptorily demands its immediate replacement by new machines, the transformation will be effected, no matter whether the privilege conferred by the patent is in the hands of the owners of the old equipment or of an independent firm. The assertions to the contrary are based on the assumption that not only the inventor and his attorneys, but also all people already active in the field of production concerned, or prepared to enter into it if an opportunity is offered to them, fail entirely to grasp the importance of the invention. The inventor sells his rights to the old firm for a trifle because no one else wants to acquire them and this old firm is also too dull to see the advantages that it could derive from the application of the invention. Now, it is true that a technological improvement cannot be adopted if people are blind to its usefulness. Under a socialist management, the incompetence or stubbornness of the officers in charge of the department concerned would be enough to prevent the adoption of a more economical method of production. The same is the case with regard to inventions in fields dominated by the government. The most conspicuous examples are provided by the failure of eminent military experts to comprehend the significance of new devices. The great Napoleon did not recognize the help which steamboats could give to his plans to invade Great Britain. Both Foch and the German general staff underestimated on the eve of the First World War the importance of aviation, and later the eminent pioneer of air power, General Billy Mitchell, had very unpleasant experiences. But things are entirely different in the orbit in which the market economy is not hampered by bureaucratic narrow-mindedness. There, a tendency to overrate rather than to underestimate the potentialities of an innovation prevails.
The history of modern capitalism shows innumerable instances of abortive attempts to push innovations which proved futile. Many promoters have paid heavily for unfounded optimism. It would be more realistic to blame capitalism for its propensity to overvalue useless innovations than for its alleged suppression of useful innovations. It is a fact that large sums have been wasted for the purchase of quite useless patent rights and for fruitless ventures to apply them in practice. It is absurd to speak of an alleged bias of modern big business against technological improvement. The great corporations spend huge sums in the search for new processes and new devices. Those lamenting an alleged suppression of inventions on the part of free enterprise must not think that they have proved their case by referring to the fact that many patents are either never utilized at all or only used after a long delay. It is manifest that numerous patents, perhaps the far greater number of them, are quite useless. Those alleging suppression of useful innovations do not cite a single instance of such an innovation's being unused in the countries protecting it by a patent while it is used by the Soviets. No respecters of patent privileges. The limited convertibility of capital goods plays an important role in human geography. The present distribution of human abodes and industrial centers over the Earth's surface is to a certain degree determined by historical factors. The fact that definite sites were chosen in a distant past is still operative. There prevails, it is true, a universal tendency for people to move to those areas which offer the most propitious potentialities for production. However, this tendency is restrained not only by institutional factors, such as migration barriers. A historical factor also plays a momentous role. Capital goods of limited convertibility have been invested in areas which, from the point of view of our present knowledge, offer less favorable opportunities. Their immobilization counteracts the tendency to locate plants, farms, and dwelling places according to the state of our contemporary information about geography, geology, plant and animal physiology, climatology, and other branches of science. Against the advantages of moving toward sites offering better physical opportunities, one must weigh the disadvantages of leaving unused capital goods of limited convertibility and transferability. Thus the degree of convertibility of the supply of capital goods available affects all decisions concerning production and consumption. The smaller the degree of convertibility, the more realization of technological improvement is delayed. Yet it would be absurd to refer to this retarding effect as irrational and anti-progressive. To consider, in planning action, all the advantages and disadvantages expected, and to weigh them against one another, is a manifestation of rationality. Not the soberly calculating businessman, but the romantic technocrat is to blame for a delusive incomprehension of reality. What slows down technological improvement is not the imperfect convertibility of capital goods, but their scarcity 
We are not rich enough to renounce the services which still utilizable capital goods could provide. The fact that a supply of capital goods is available does not check progress. It is, on the contrary, the indispensable condition of any improvement and progress. The heritage of the past embodied in our supply of capital goods is our wealth and the foremost means of further advancement in well-being. It is true, we would be still better off if our ancestors and we ourselves in our past actions had succeeded in better anticipating the conditions under which we must act today. The cognizance of this fact explains many phenomena of our time but it does not cast any blame upon the past, nor does it show any imperfection inherent in the market economy. 7. Accumulation, Maintenance, and Consumption of Capital Capital goods are intermediary products, which, in the further course of production activities, are transformed into consumers' goods. All capital goods, including those not called perishable, perish, either in wearing out their serviceableness in the performance of production processes, or in losing their serviceableness, even before this happens, through a change in the market data. There is no question of keeping a stock of capital goods intact. They are transient. The notion of wealth constancy is an outgrowth of deliberate planning and acting. It refers to the concept of capital as applied in capital accounting, not to the capital goods as such. The idea of capital has no counterpart in the physical universe of tangible things. It is nowhere but in the minds of planning men. It is an element in economic calculation. Capital accounting serves one purpose only. It is designed to make us know how our arrangement of production and consumption acts upon our power to satisfy future wants. The question it answers is whether a certain course of conduct increases or decreases the productivity of our future exertion. The intention of preserving the available supply of capital goods in full power, or of increasing it, could also direct the actions of men who did not have the mental tool of economic calculation. Primitive fishermen and hunters were certainly aware of the difference between maintaining their tools and devices in good shape and serviceableness, and wearing them out without providing for adequate replacements. An old-fashioned peasant, committed to traditional routine and ignorant of accountancy, knows very well the significance of maintaining intact his live and dead stock. Under the simple conditions of a stationary or slowly progressing economy, it is feasible to operate successfully even in the absence of capital accounting. There, the maintenance of a by-and-large unchanged supply of capital goods can be effected, either by current production of pieces destined to replace those worn out, or by the accumulation of a fund of consumers' goods, which makes it possible to devote effort at a later time toward the replacement of such capital goods without being forced to restrict consumption temporarily. 
but a changing industrial economy cannot do without economic calculation and its fundamental concepts of capital and income. Conceptual realism has muddled the comprehension of the concept of capital. It has brought about a mythology of capital. An existence has been attributed to capital independent of the capital goods in which it is embodied. Capital, it is said, reproduces itself and thus provides for its own maintenance. Capital, says the Marxian, hatches out profit. All this is nonsense. Capital is a praxeological concept. If we were to resort to the terminology of traditional philosophy, which is characterized by neglect of all praxeological issues, we could call it a voluntaristic concept. It is a product of reasoning, and its place is in the human mind. It is a mode of looking at the problems of acting, a method of appraising them from the point of view of a definite plan. It determines the course of human action and is, in this sense only, a real factor. It is inescapably linked with capitalism, the market economy. It is a mere shadow in economic systems in which there is no market exchange and no money prices of goods of all orders. The capital concept is operative as far as men in their actions let themselves be guided by capital accounting. If the entrepreneur has employed factors of production in such a way that the money equivalent of the products at least equals the money equivalent of the factors expended, he is in a position to replace the capital goods expended by new capital goods, the money equivalent of which equals the money equivalent of those expended. But the employment of the gross proceeds, their allotment to the maintenance of capital, consumption, and the accumulation of new capital, is always the outcome of purposive action on the part of the entrepreneurs and capitalists. It is not automatic. It is, by necessity, the result of deliberate action. And it can be frustrated if the computation on which it is based was vitiated by negligence, error, or misjudgment of future conditions. Additional capital can be accumulated only by saving, that is, a surplus of production over consumption. Saving may consist in a restriction of consumption, but it can also be brought about without a further restriction in consumption and without a change in the input of capital goods by an increase in net production. Such an increase can appear in different ways. 1. Natural conditions have become more propitious. Harvests are more plentiful. People have access to more fertile soil and have discovered mines yielding higher returns per unit of input. Cataclysms and catastrophes which, in repeated occurrence, frustrated human effort have become less frequent. Epidemics and cattle plagues have subsided. 2. People have succeeded in rendering some production processes more fruitful without investing more capital goods and without a further lengthening of the period of production. 3. Institutional disturbances of production activities have become less frequent. The losses caused by war, 
revolutions, strikes, sabotage, and other crimes have been reduced. If the surpluses thus brought about are employed as additional investment, they further increase future net proceeds. Then it becomes possible to expand consumption without prejudice to the supply of capital goods available and the productivity of labor. Capital is always accumulated by individuals or groups of individuals acting in concert, never by the Volkswirtschaft or the society. The state and the municipalities in the market economy are also merely actors, representing concerted action on the part of definite groups of individuals. It may happen that while some actors are accumulating additional capital, others are at the same time consuming capital previously accumulated. If these two processes are equal in amount, the sum of the capital funds available in the market system remains unaltered, and it is as if no change in the total amount of capital goods available had occurred. The accumulation of additional capital on the part of some people merely removes the necessity of shortening the period of production of some processes, but no further adoption of processes with a longer period of production becomes feasible. If we look at affairs from this angle, we may say that a transfer of capital took place. But one must guard oneself against confusing this notion of capital transfer with the conveyance of property from one individual or group of individuals to others. The sale and purchase of capital goods and the loans granted to business are not, as such, capital transfer. They are transactions which are instrumental in conveying the concrete capital goods into the hands of those entrepreneurs who want to employ them for the performance of definite projects. They are only ancillary steps in the course of a long-range sequence of acts. Their composite effect decides the success or failure of the whole project. But neither profit nor loss directly brings about either capital accumulation or capital consumption. It is the way in which those in whose fortune profit or loss occurs arrange their consumption that alters the amount of capital available. Capital transfer can be effected both without and with a conveyance in the ownership of capital goods. The former is the case when one man consumes capital while another man independently accumulates capital in the same amount. The latter is the case if the seller of capital goods consumes the proceeds while the buyer pays the price out of a non-consumed, saved surplus of net proceeds over consumption. Capital consumption and the physical extinction of capital goods are two different things. All capital goods sooner or later enter into final products and cease to exist through use, consumption, wear and tear. What can be preserved by an appropriate arrangement of consumption is only the value of a capital fund, never the concrete capital goods. 
It may sometimes happen that acts of God or man-made destruction result in so great an extinction of capital goods that no possible restriction of consumption can bring about in a short time a replenishment of the capital funds to its previous level. But what brings about such a depletion is always the fact that the net proceeds of current production devoted to the maintenance of capital are not sufficiently large. 8. THE MOBILITY OF THE INVESTOR The limited convertibility of the capital goods does not immovably bind their owner. The investor is free to alter the investment of his funds. If he is able to anticipate the future state of the market more correctly than other people, he can succeed in choosing only investments whose price will rise, and in avoiding investments whose price will drop. Entrepreneurial profit and loss emanate from the dedication of factors of production to definite projects. Stock exchange speculation and analogous transactions outside the securities market determine on whom the incidence of these profits and losses shall fall. A tendency prevails to make a sharp distinction between such purely speculative ventures and genuinely sound investment. The distinction is one of degree only. There is no such thing as a non-speculative investment. In a changing economy, action always involves speculation. Investments may be good or bad, but they are always speculative. A radical change in conditions may render bad even investments commonly considered perfectly safe. Stock speculation cannot undo past action and cannot change anything with regard to the limited convertibility of capital goods already in existence. What it can do is prevent additional investment in branches and enterprises in which, according to the opinion of the speculators, it would be misplaced. It points the specific way for a tendency prevailing in the market economy to expand profitable production ventures and to restrict the unprofitable. In this sense, the stock exchange becomes simply the market, the focal point of the market economy, the ultimate device to make the anticipated demand of the consumers supreme in the conduct of business. The mobility of the investor manifests itself in the phenomenon called capital flight. Individual investors can go away from investments which they consider unsafe, provided that they are ready to take the loss already discounted by the market. Thus, they can protect themselves against anticipated further losses and shift them to people who are less realistic in their appraisal of the future prices of the goods concerned. Capital flight does not withdraw inconvertible capital goods from the lines of their investment. It consists merely in a change of ownership. It makes no difference in this regard whether the capitalist flees into another domestic investment or into a foreign investment. One of the main objectives of foreign exchange control is to prevent capital flight into foreign countries. 
However, foreign exchange control only succeeds in preventing the owners of domestic investments from restricting their losses by exchanging in time a domestic investment they consider unsafe for a foreign investment they consider safer. If all or certain classes of domestic investment are threatened by partial or total expropriation, the market discounts the unfavorable consequences of this policy by an adequate change in their prices. When this happens, it is too late to resort to flight in order to avoid being victimized. Only those investors can come off with a small loss who are keen enough to forecast the disaster at a time when the majority is still unaware of its approach and its significance. Whatever the various capitalists and entrepreneurs may do, they can never make mobile and transferable inconvertible capital goods. While this, at least, is admitted by and large with regard to fixed capital, it is denied with regard to circulating capital. It is asserted that a businessman can export products and fail to re-import the proceeds. People do not see that an enterprise cannot continue its operations when deprived of its circulating capital. If a businessman exports his own funds employed for the current purchase of raw materials, labor, and other essential requirements, he must replace them by funds borrowed. The grain of truth in the fable of the mobility of circulating capital is the fact that it is possible for an investor to avoid losses menacing his circulating capital independently of the avoidance of such losses menacing his fixed capital. However, the process of capital flight is in both instances the same. It is a change in the person of the investor. The investment itself is not affected. The capital concerned does not emigrate. Capital flight into a foreign country presupposes the propensity of foreigners to exchange their investments abroad against those in the country from which capital flees. A British capitalist cannot flee from his British investments if no foreigner buys them. It follows that capital flight can never result in the much-talked-about deterioration of the balance of payments. Neither can it make foreign exchange rates rise. If many capitalists, whether British or foreign, want to get rid of British securities, a drop in their prices will ensue but it will not affect the exchange ratio between the sterling and foreign currencies. The same is valid with regard to capital invested in ready cash. The owner of French francs, who anticipates the consequences of the French government's inflationary policy, can either flee into real goods by the purchase of goods or into foreign exchange but he must find people who are ready to take francs in exchange. He can flee only as long as there are still people left who appraise the future of the franc more optimistically than he himself does. What makes commodity prices and foreign exchange rates rise is not the conduct of those ready to give away francs, but the conduct of those refusing to take them except at a low rate of exchange.
Governments pretend that in resorting to foreign exchange restrictions to prevent capital flight, they are motivated by consideration of the nation's vital interests. What they really bring about is contrary to the material interests of many citizens without any benefit to any citizen or to the phantom of the Volkswirtschaft. If there is inflation going on in France, it is certainly not to the advantage either of the nation as a whole or of any citizen that all the disastrous consequences should affect Frenchmen only. If some Frenchmen were to unload the burden of these losses on foreigners by selling them French banknotes or bonds redeemable in such banknotes, a part of these losses would fall upon foreigners. The manifest outcome of the prevention of such transactions is to make some Frenchmen poorer without making any Frenchmen richer. From the nationalist point of view, this hardly seems desirable. Popular opinion finds something objectionable in every possible aspect of stock market transactions. If prices are rising, the speculators are denounced as profiteers who appropriate to themselves what by rights belongs to other people. If prices drop, the speculators are denounced for squandering the nation's wealth. The profits of the speculators are vilified as robbery and theft at the expense of the rest of the nation. It is insinuated that they are the cause of the public's poverty. It is customary to draw a distinction between this dishonest bounty of the jobbers and the profits of the manufacturer, who does not merely gamble, but supplies the consumers. Even financial writers fail to realize that stock exchange transactions produce neither profits nor losses, but are only the consummation of profits and losses arising in trading and manufacturing. These profits and losses, the outgrowth of the buying public's approval or disapproval of the investments effected in the past, are made visible by the stock market. The turnover on the stock market does not affect the public. It is, on the contrary, the public's reaction to the mode in which investors arranged production activities that determines the price structure of the securities market. It is ultimately the consumer's attitude that makes some stocks rise, others drop. Those not saving and investing neither profit nor lose on account of fluctuations in stock exchange quotations. The trade on the securities market merely decides which investors shall earn profits and which shall suffer losses. 9. Money and Capital Saving and Investment Capital is computed in terms of money, and represents in such accounting a definite sum of money. But capital can also consist of amounts of money. As capital goods also are exchanged, and as such exchanges are effected under the same conditions as the exchange of all other goods, here too indirect exchange and the use of money become peremptory. In the market economy, no participant can forego the advantages which cash holding conveys, not only in their capacity as consumers, but also in their capacity as capitalists and entrepreneurs. Individuals are under the necessity of keeping cash holdings. 
Those who have seen in this fact something puzzling and contradictory have been misled by a misconstruction of monetary calculation and capital accounting. They attempt to assign to capital accounting tasks which it can never achieve. Capital accounting is a mental tool of calculating and computing, suitable for individuals and groups of individuals acting in the market economy. Only in the frame of monetary calculation can capital become computable. The sole task that capital accounting can perform is to show to the various individuals acting within a market economy whether the money equivalent of their funds devoted to acquisitive action has changed, and to what extent. For all other purposes, capital accounting is quite useless. If one tries to ascertain a magnitude called the Volkswirtschaftliche Capital, or the Social Capital, as distinct both from the acquisitive capital of various individuals and from the meaningless concept of the sum of the various individuals' acquisitive capital funds, then, of course, one is troubled by a spurious problem. What is the role of money, one asks, in such a concept of social capital? One discovers a momentous difference between capital as seen from the individual's point of view and as seen from the standpoint of society. However, this whole reasoning is utterly fallacious. It is obviously contradictory to eliminate reference to money from the computation of a magnitude which cannot be computed otherwise than in terms of money. It is nonsensical to resort to monetary calculation in an attempt to ascertain a magnitude which is meaningless in an economic system in which there cannot be any money and no money prices for factors of production. As soon as our reasoning passes beyond the frame of a market society, it must renounce every reference to money and money prices. The concept of social capital can only be thought of as a collection of various goods. It is impossible to compare two collections of this type otherwise than by declaring that one of them is more serviceable in removing the uneasiness felt by the whole of society than the other. Whether or not such a comprehensive judgment can be pronounced by any mortal man is another question. No monetary expression can be applied to such collections. Monetary terms are void of any meaning in dealing with the capital problems of a social system in which there is no market for factors of production. In recent years, economists have paid special attention to the role cash-holding plays in the process of saving and capital accumulation. Many fallacious conclusions have been advanced about this role. If an individual employs a sum of money not for consumption, but for the purchase of factors of production, saving is directly turned into capital accumulation. If the individual saver employs his additional savings for increasing his cash holding, because this is in his eyes the most advantageous mode of using them, he brings about a tendency toward a fall in commodity prices and a rise in the monetary unit's purchasing power. 
If we assume that the supply of money in the market system does not change, this conduct on the part of the saver will not directly influence the accumulation of capital and its employment for an expansion of production. Indirectly, capital accumulation is affected by the changes in wealth and incomes which every instance of cash-induced change in the purchasing power of money brings about. The effect of our saver's saving, that is, the surplus of goods produced over goods consumed, does not disappear on account of his hoarding. The prices of capital goods do not rise to the height they would have attained in the absence of such hoarding. But the fact that more capital goods are available is not affected by the striving of a number of people to increase their cash holdings. If nobody employs the goods, the non-consumption of which brought about the additional saving for an expansion of his consumptive spending, they remain as an increment in the amount of capital goods available, whatever their prices may be. The two processes, increased cash holding and increased capital accumulation, take place side by side. A drop in commodity prices, other things being equal, causes a drop in the money equivalent of the various individuals' capital. But this is not tantamount to a reduction in the supply of capital goods, and does not require an adjustment of production activities to an alleged impoverishment. It merely alters the money items to be applied in monetary calculation. Now let us assume that an increase in the quantity of credit money or of fiat money or credit expansion produces the additional money required for an expansion of the individual's cash holdings. Then three processes take their course independently. A tendency toward a fall in commodity prices brought about by the increase in the amount of capital goods available and the resulting expansion of production activities. A tendency toward a fall in prices brought about by an increased demand of money for cash holding. And finally, a tendency toward a rise in prices brought about by the increase in the supply of money in the broader sense. The three processes are, to some extent, synchronous. Each of them brings about its particular effects, which, according to the circumstances, may be intensified or weakened by the opposite effects originating from one of the other two. But the main thing is that the capital goods resulting from the additional saving are not destroyed by the coincident monetary changes changes in the demand for and the supply of money, in the broader sense. Whenever an individual devotes a sum of money to saving instead of spending it for consumption, the process of saving agrees perfectly with the process of capital accumulation and investment. It does not matter whether the individual saver does or does not increase his cash holding. The act of saving always has its counterpart in a supply of goods produced and not consumed, of goods available for further production activities. A man's savings are always embodied in concrete capital goods. The idea that hoarded money is a barren part of the total amount of wealth, 
the increase of which causes shrinkage in that part of wealth that is devoted to production, is correct only to the extent that the rise in the monetary unit's purchasing power results in the employment of additional factors of production for the mining of gold and in the transfer of gold from industrial to monetary employment. But this is brought about by the striving after increased cash holdings and not by saving. Saving in the market economy is possible only through abstention from the consumption of a part of income. The individual saver's employment of his savings for hoarding influences the determination of money's purchasing power, and may thus reduce the nominal amount of capital, that is, its money equivalent. It does not render any part of the accumulated capital sterile. Chapter 20. Interest, Credit Expansion, and the Trade Cycle 1. The Problems In the market economy in which all acts of interpersonal exchange are performed by the intermediary of money, the category of originary interest manifests itself primarily in the interest on money loans. It has been pointed out already that in the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy, the rate of originary interest is uniform. There prevails in the whole system only one rate of interest. The rate of interest on loans coincides with the rate of originary interest as manifested in the ratio between prices of present and of future goods. We may call this rate the neutral rate of interest. The evenly rotating economy presupposes neutral money. As money can never be neutral, special problems arise. If the money relation, that is, the ratio between the demand for and the supply of money for cash holding, changes, all prices of goods and services are affected. These changes, however, do not affect the prices of the various goods and services at the same time and to the same extent. The resulting modifications in the wealth and income of various individuals can also alter the data determining the height of originary interest. The final state of the rate of originary interest to the establishment of which the system tends after the appearance of changes in the money relation is no longer that final state toward which it had tended before. Thus, the driving force of money has the power to bring about lasting changes in the final rate of originary interest and neutral interest. Then there is a second, even more momentous problem, which, of course, may also be looked upon as another aspect of the same problem. Changes in the money relation may, under certain circumstances, first affect the loan market, in which the demand for and supply of loans influences the market rate of interest on loans, which we may call the gross money, or market rate of interest. Can such changes in the gross money rate cause the net rate of interest included in it to deviate lastingly from the height which corresponds to the rate of originary interest, that is, the difference between the valuation of present and future goods? Can events on the loan market partially or totally eliminate originary interest? No economist will hesitate to answer these questions in the negative. But then a further problem arises. 
How does the interplay of the market factors readjust the gross money rate to the height conditioned by the rate of originary interest? These are great problems. These were the problems economists tried to solve in discussing banking, fiduciary media, and circulation credit, credit expansion, gratuitousness or non-gratuitousness of credit, the cyclical movements of trade, and all other problems of indirect exchange. 2. The Entrepreneurial Component in the Gross Market Rate of Interest The market rates of interest on loans are not pure interest rates. Among the components contributing to their determination, there are also elements which are not interest. The moneylender is always an entrepreneur. Every grant of credit is a speculative entrepreneurial venture, the success or failure of which is uncertain. The lender is always faced with the possibility that he may lose a part or the whole of the principal lent. His appraisal of this danger determines his conduct in bargaining with the prospective debtor about the terms of the contract. There can never be perfect safety, either in money lending or in other classes of credit transactions and deferred payments. Debtors, guarantors, and warrantors may become insolvent. Collateral and mortgages may become worthless. The creditor is always a virtual partner of the debtor, or a virtual owner of the pledged and mortgaged property. He can be affected by changes in the market data concerning them. He has linked his fate with that of the debtor, or with the changes occurring in the price of the collateral. Capital as such does not bear interest. It must be well employed and invested not only in order to yield interest, but also lest it disappear entirely. The dictum, money cannot beget money, is meaningful in this sense, which, of course, differs radically from the sense which ancient and medieval philosophers attached to it. Gross interest can be reaped only by creditors who have been successful in their lending, If they earn any net interest at all, it is included in a yield which contains more than merely net interest. Net interest is a magnitude which only analytical thinking can extract from the gross proceeds of the creditor. The entrepreneurial component included in the creditor's gross proceeds is determined by all those factors which are operative in every entrepreneurial venture. It is, moreover, co-determined by the legal and institutional setting. The contracts which place the debtor and his fortune or the collateral as a buffer between the creditor and the disastrous consequences of malinvestment of the capital lent are conditioned by laws and institutions. The creditor is less exposed to loss and failure than the debtor only insofar as this legal and institutional framework makes it possible for him to enforce his claims against refractory debtors. There is, however, no need for economics to enter into a detailed scrutiny of the legal aspects involved in bonds and debentures, preferred stock, mortgages, and other kinds of credit transactions. The entrepreneurial component is present in all species of loans. It is customary to distinguish between consumption or personal loans on the one hand and productive or business loans on the other. 
The characteristic mark of the former class is that it enables the borrower to spend expected future proceeds. In acquiring a claim to a share in these future proceeds, the lender becomes an entrepreneur, as in acquiring a claim to a share in the future proceeds of a business. The particular uncertainty of the outcome of his lending consists in the uncertainty about these future proceeds. It is furthermore customary to distinguish between private and public loans, that is, loans to governments and subdivisions of governments. The particular uncertainty inherent in such loans concerns the life of secular power. Empires may crumble, and governments may be overthrown by revolutionaries, who are not prepared to assume responsibility for the debts contracted by their predecessors. That there is, besides, something basically vicious in all kinds of long-term government debts has been pointed out already. Over all species of deferred payments hangs, like a sword of Damocles, the danger of government interference. Public opinion has always been biased against creditors. It identifies creditors with the idle rich and debtors with the industrious poor. It abhors the former as ruthless exploiters and pities the latter as innocent victims of oppression. It considers government action designed to curtail the claims of the creditors as measures extremely beneficial to the immense majority at the expense of a small minority of hard-boiled usurers. It did not notice at all that nineteenth-century capitalist innovations have wholly changed the composition of the classes of creditors and debtors. In the days of Solon the Athenian, of ancient Rome's agrarian laws, and of the Middle Ages, the creditors were, by and large, the rich, and the debtors the poor. But in this age of bonds and debentures, mortgage banks, savings banks, life insurance policies, and social security benefits, the masses of people with more moderate income are rather themselves creditors. On the other hand, the rich, in their capacity as owners of common stock, of plants, farms, and real estate, are more often debtors than creditors. In asking for the expropriation of creditors, the masses are unwittingly attacking their own particular interests. With public opinion in this state, the creditor's unfavorable chance of being harmed by anti-creditor measures is not balanced by a favorable chance of being privileged by anti-debtor measures. This unbalance would bring about a unilateral tendency toward a rise of the entrepreneurial component contained in the gross rate of interest, if the political danger were limited to the loan market, and would not in the same way affect today all kinds of private ownership of the means of production. As things are in our day, no kind of investment is safe against the political dangers of a general expropriation of all private property. A capitalist cannot reduce the vulnerability of his wealth by preferring direct investment in business to lending his capital to business or to the government. The political risks involved in money lending do not affect the height of originary interest. They affect the entrepreneurial component included in the gross market rate. In the limiting case, that is, in a situation in which the impending nullification of all contracts concerning deferred payments is generally expected,
they would cause the entrepreneurial component to increase beyond all measure. 3. The price premium as a component of the gross market rate of interest. Money is neutral if the cash-induced changes in the monetary unit's purchasing power affect at the same time and to the same extent the prices of all commodities and services. With neutral money, a neutral rate of interest would be conceivable, provided there were no deferred payments. If there were deferred payments, and if we disregard the entrepreneurial position of the creditor and the ensuing entrepreneurial component in the gross rate of interest, we must furthermore assume that the eventuality of future changes in purchasing power is taken into account in stipulating the terms of the contract. The principal is to be multiplied periodically by the index number, and thus to be increased or decreased in accordance with the changes that have come to pass in purchasing power. With the adjustment of the principal, the amount from which the rate of interest is to be calculated changes too. Thus, this rate is a neutral rate of interest. With neutral money, neutralization of the rate of interest could also be attained by another stipulation, provided the parties are in a position to anticipate correctly the future changes in purchasing power. They could stipulate a gross rate of interest containing an allowance for such changes, a percentile addendum to, or subtrahendum from, the rate of originary interest. We may call this allowance the positive or negative price premium. In the case of a quickly progressing deflation, the negative price premium could not only swallow the whole rate of originary interest, but even reverse the gross rate into a minus quantity, a rate to be passed on the debtor's account. If the price premium is correctly calculated, neither the creditor's nor the debtor's position is affected by intervening changes in purchasing power. The rate of interest is neutral. However, all these assumptions are not only imaginary, they cannot even hypothetically be thought of without contradictions. In the changing economy, the rate of interest can never be neutral. In the changing economy, there is no uniform rate of originary interest. There only prevails a tendency toward the establishment of such uniformity. Before the final state of originary interest is attained, new changes in the data emerge which divert anew the movement of interest rates toward a new final state. Where everything is unceasingly in flux, no neutral rate of interest can be established. In the world of reality, all prices are fluctuating, and acting men are forced to take full account of these changes. Entrepreneurs embark upon business ventures, and capitalists change their investments only because they anticipate such changes and want to profit from them. The market economy is essentially characterized as a social system in which there prevails an incessant urge toward improvement. The most provident and enterprising individuals are driven to earn profit by readjusting again and again the arrangement of production activities so as to fill in the best possible way the needs of the consumers, 
both those needs of which the consumers themselves are already aware, and those latent needs of the satisfaction of which they have not yet thought themselves. These speculative ventures of the promoters revolutionize afresh each day the structure of prices, and thereby also the height of the gross market rate of interest. He who expects a rise in certain prices enters the loan market as a borrower, and is ready to allow a higher gross rate of interest than he would allow if he were to expect a less momentous rise in prices, or no rise at all. On the other hand, the lender, if he himself expects a rise in prices, grants loans only if the gross rate is higher than it would be under a state of the market in which less momentous or no upward changes in prices are anticipated. The borrower is not deterred by a higher rate if his project seems to offer such good chances that it can afford higher costs. The lender would abstain from lending, and would himself enter the market as an entrepreneur and bidder for commodities and services, if the gross rate of interest were not to compensate him for the profits he could reap this way. The expectation of rising prices thus has the tendency to make the gross rate of interest rise, while the expectation of dropping prices makes it drop. If the expected changes in the price structure concern only a limited group of commodities and services, and are counterbalanced by the expectation of an opposite change in the prices of other goods, as is the case in the absence of changes in the money relation, the two opposite trends by and large counterpoise each other. But, if the money relation is sensibly altered, and a general rise or fall in the prices of all commodities and services is expected, one tendency carries on. A positive or negative price premium emerges in all deals concerning deferred payments. The role of the price premium in the changing economy is different from that we ascribe to it in the hypothetical and unrealizable scheme developed above. It can never entirely remove, even as far as credit operations alone are concerned, the effects of changes in the money relation. It can never make interest rates neutral. It cannot alter the fact that money is essentially equipped with a driving force of its own. Even if all actors were to know correctly and completely the quantitative data concerning the changes in the supply of money, in the broader sense, in the whole economic system, the dates on which such changes were to occur and what individuals were to be first affected by them, they would not be in a position to know beforehand whether and to what extent the demand for money for cash holding would change, and in what temporal sequence, and to what extent the prices of the various commodities would change. The price premium could counterpoise the effects of changes in the money relation upon the substantial importance and the economic significance of credit contracts, only if its appearance were to precede the occurrence of the price changes generated by the alteration in the money relation. 
It would have to be the result of a reasoning by virtue of which the actors try to compute in advance the date and the extent of such price changes with regard to all commodities and services which directly or indirectly count for their own state of satisfaction. However, such computations cannot be established because their performance would require a perfect knowledge of future conditions and valuations. The emergence of the price premium is not the product of an arithmetical operation which could provide reliable knowledge and eliminate the uncertainty concerning the future. It is the outcome of the promoter's understanding of the future and their calculations based on such an understanding. It comes into existence step by step, as soon as first a few, and then successively more and more actors, become aware of the fact that the market is faced with cash-induced changes in the money relation, and consequently with a trend oriented in a definite direction. Only when people begin to buy or to sell in order to take advantage of this trend does the price premium come into existence. It is necessary to realize that the price premium is the outgrowth of speculations having regard for anticipated changes in the money relation. What induces it, in the case of the expectation that an inflationary trend will keep on going, is already the first sign of that phenomenon, which, later, when it becomes general, is called flight into real values, and finally produces the crack-up boom and the crash of the monetary system concerned. As in every case of the understanding of future developments, it is possible that the speculators may err, that the inflationary or deflationary movement will be stopped or slowed down, and that prices will differ from what they expected. The increased propensity to buy or to sell, which generates the price premium, affects as a rule short-term loans sooner and to a greater extent than long-term loans. As far as this is the case, the price premium affects the market for short-term loans first, and only later, by virtue of the concatenation of all parts of the market, also the market for long-term loans. However, there are instances in which a price premium in long-term loans appears independently of what is going on with regard to short-term loans. This was especially the case in international lending in the days in which there was still a live international capital market. It happened occasionally that lenders were confident with regard to the short-term development of a foreign country's national currency. In short-term loans stipulated in this currency, there was no price premium at all, or only a slight one. But the appraisal of the long-term aspects of the currency concerned was less favorable, and in long-term contracts a considerable price premium was taken into account. The result was that long-term loans stipulated in this currency could be floated only at a higher rate than the same debtor's loans stipulated in terms of gold or a foreign currency. We have shown one reason why the price premium can at best practically deaden but never eliminate entirely the repercussions of cash-induced changes in the money relation upon the content of credit transactions. 
A second reason will be dealt with in the next section. The price premium always lags behind the changes in purchasing power because what generates it is not the change in the supply of money in the broader sense, but the necessarily later occurring effects of these changes upon the price structure. Only in the final state of a ceaseless inflation do things become different. The panic of the currency catastrophe, the crack-up boom, is not only characterized by a tendency for prices to rise beyond all measure, but also by a rise beyond all measure of the positive price premium. No gross rate of interest, however great, appears to a prospective lender high enough to compensate for the losses expected from the progressing drop in the monetary unit's purchasing power. He abstains from lending and prefers to buy himself real goods. The loan market comes to a standstill. 4. The Loan Market The gross rates of interest as determined on the loan market are not uniform. The entrepreneurial component, which they always include, varies according to the peculiar characteristics of the specific deal. It is one of the most serious shortcomings of all historical and statistical studies devoted to the movement of interest rates that they neglect this factor. It is useless to arrange data concerning interest rates of the open market or the discount rates of the central banks in time series. The various data available for the construction of such time series are incommensurable. The same central bank's rate of discount meant something different in various periods of time. The institutional conditions affecting the activities of various nations' central banks, their private banks, and their organized loan markets are so different that it is entirely misleading to compare the nominal interest rates without paying full regard to these diversities. We know a priori that, other things being equal, the lenders are intent upon preferring high interest rates to low ones, and the debtors upon preferring low rates to high ones. But these other things are never equal. There prevails upon the loan market a tendency toward the equalization of gross interest rates for loans for which the factors determining the height of the entrepreneurial component and the price premium are equal. This knowledge provides a mental tool for the interpretation of the facts concerning the history of interest rates. Without the aid of this knowledge, the vast historical and statistical material available would be merely an accumulation of meaningless figures. In arranging time series of the prices of certain primary commodities, empiricism has at least an apparent justification in the fact that the price data dealt with refer to the same physical object. It is a spurious excuse indeed, as prices are not related to the unchanging physical properties of things, but to the changing values which acting men attach to them. But in the study of interest rates, even this lame excuse cannot be advanced. Gross interest rates, as they appear in reality, have nothing else in common than those characteristics which catalactic theory sees in them. They are complex phenomena and can never be used for the construction of an empirical or a posteriori theory of interest. 
They can neither verify nor falsify what economics teaches about the problems involved. They constitute, if carefully analyzed with all the knowledge economics conveys, invaluable documentation for economic history. They are of no avail for economic theory. It is customary to distinguish the market for short-term loans, money market, from the market for long-term loans, capital market. A more penetrating analysis must even go further in classifying loans according to their duration. Besides, there are differences with regard to the legal characteristics which the terms of the contract assign to the lender's claim. In short, the loan market is not homogeneous. But the most conspicuous differences arise from the entrepreneurial component included in the gross rates of interest. It is this that people refer to when asserting that credit is based on trust or confidence. The connexity between all sectors of the loan market and the gross rates of interest determined on them is brought about by the inherent tendency of the net rates of interest included in these gross rates toward the final state of originary interest. With regard to this tendency, catalactic theory is free to deal with the market rate of interest as if it were a uniform phenomenon, and to abstract from the entrepreneurial component, which is necessarily always included in the gross rates, and from the price premium, which is occasionally included. The prices of all commodities and services are, at any instant, moving toward a final state. If this final state were ever to be reached, it would show in the ratio between the prices of present goods and future goods the final state of originary interest. However, the changing economy never reaches the imaginary final state. New data emerge again and again and divert the trend of prices from the previous goal of their movement toward a different final state, to which a different rate of originary interest may correspond. In the rate of originary interest, there is no more permanence than in prices and wage rates. Those people whose provident action is intent upon adjusting the employment of the factors of production to the changes occurring in the data, namely the entrepreneurs and promoters, base their calculations upon the prices, wage rates, and interest rates as determined on the market. They discover discrepancies between the present prices of the complementary factors of production and the anticipated prices of the products minus the market rate of interest, and are eager to profit from them. The role which the rate of interest plays in these deliberations of the planning businessman is obvious. It shows him how far he can go in withholding factors of production from employment for want satisfaction in nearer periods of the future, and in dedicating them to want satisfaction in remoter periods. It shows him what period of production conforms in every concrete case to the difference which the public makes in the ratio of valuation between present goods and future goods. It prevents him from embarking upon projects, the execution of which would not agree with the limited amount of capital goods provided by the saving of the public. 
It is in influencing this primordial function of the rate of interest that the driving force of money can become operative in a particular way. Cash-induced changes in the money relation can, under certain circumstances, affect the loan market before they affect the prices of commodities and of labor. The increase or decrease in the supply of money in the broader sense can increase or decrease the supply of money offered on the loan market, and thereby lower or raise the gross market rate of interest, although no change in the rate of original interest has taken place. If this happens, the market rate deviates from the height which the state of originary interest and the supply of capital goods available for production would require. Then, the market rate of interest fails to fulfill the function it plays in guiding entrepreneurial decisions. It frustrates the entrepreneur's calculation and diverts his actions from those lines in which they would, in the best possible way, satisfy the most urgent needs of the consumers. Then there is a second important fact to realize. If, other things being equal, the supply of money in the broader sense increases or decreases and thus brings about a general tendency for prices to rise or to drop, a positive or negative price premium would have to appear and to raise or lower the gross rate of market interest. But if such changes in the money relation affect first the loan market, they bring about just the opposite changes in the configuration of the gross market rates of interest. While a positive or negative price premium would be required to adjust the market rates of interest to the changes in the money relation, Gross interest rates are, in fact, dropping or rising. This is the second reason why the instrumentality of the price premium cannot entirely eliminate the repercussions of cash-induced changes in the money relation upon the content of contracts concerning deferred payments. Its operation begins too late. It lags behind the changes in purchasing power, as has been shown above. Now we see that under certain circumstances, the forces that push in the opposite direction manifest themselves sooner on the market than the price premium. 5. The Effects of Changes in the Money Relation Upon Originary Interest Like every change in the market data, changes in the money relation can possibly influence the rate of originary interest. According to the inflationist view of history, inflation by and large tends to increase the earnings of the entrepreneurs. Commodity prices rise sooner and to a steeper level than wage rates. On the one hand, wage earners and salaried people, classes who spend the greater part of their income for consumption and save little, are adversely affected, and must accordingly restrict their expenditures. On the other hand, the proprietary strata of the population, whose propensity to save a considerable part of their income is much greater, are favored. They do not increase their consumption in proportion, but also increase their savings. Thus, in the community as a whole, there arises a tendency toward an intensified accumulation of new capital. 
Additional investment is the corollary of the restriction of consumption imposed upon that part of the population which consumes the much greater part of the annual produce of the economic system. This forced saving lowers the rate of originary interest. It accelerates the pace of economic progress and the improvement in technological methods. It is important to realize that such forced saving can originate from an inflationary movement, and actually often did so originate in the past. In dealing with the effects of changes in the money relation upon the height of interest rates, one must not neglect the fact that such changes can, under certain circumstances, really alter the rate of originary interest. But several other facts must be taken into account, too. First, one must realize that forced saving can result from inflation, but need not necessarily. It depends on the particular data of each instance of inflation, whether or not the rise in wage rates lags behind the rise in commodity prices. A tendency for real wage rates to drop is not an inescapable consequence of a decline in the monetary unit's purchasing power. It could happen that nominal wage rates rise more than or sooner than commodity prices. Furthermore, it is necessary to remember that the greater propensity of the wealthier classes to save and to accumulate capital is merely a psychological and not a praxeological fact. It could happen that these people to whom the inflationary movement conveys additional proceeds do not save and invest their boon, but employ it for an increase in their consumption. It is impossible to predict with the apodictic definiteness which characterizes all theorems of economics in what way those profiting from the inflation will act. History can tell us what happened in the past, but it cannot assert that it must happen in the future. It would be a serious blunder to neglect the fact that inflation also generates forces which tend toward capital consumption. One of its consequences is that it falsifies economic calculation and accounting. It produces the phenomenon of imaginary or apparent profits. If the annual depreciation quotas are determined in such a way as not to pay full regard to the fact that the replacement of worn-out equipment will require higher costs than the amount for which it was purchased in the past, they are obviously insufficient. If, in selling inventories and products, the whole difference between the price spent for their acquisition and the price realized in the sale is entered in the books as a surplus, the error is the same. If the rise in the prices of stocks and real estate is considered as a gain, the illusion is no less manifest. What makes people believe that inflation results in general prosperity is precisely such illusory gains. They feel lucky and become open-handed in spending and enjoying life. They embellish their homes, they build new mansions and patronize the entertainment business. In spending apparent gains, the fanciful result of false reckoning, they are consuming capital. It does not matter who these spenders are. They may be businessmen or stock jobbers. They may be wage earners whose demand for higher pay is satisfied by the easygoing employers who think that they are getting richer from day to day. 
They may be people supported by taxes, which usually absorb a great part of the apparent gains. Finally, with the progress of inflation, more and more people become aware of the fall in purchasing power. For those not personally engaged in business and not familiar with the conditions of the stock market, the main vehicle of saving is the accumulation of savings deposits, the purchase of bonds and life insurance. All such savings are prejudiced by inflation. Thus, saving is discouraged and extravagance seems to be indicated. The ultimate reaction of the public... The flight into real values is a desperate attempt to salvage some debris from the ruinous breakdown. It is, viewed from the angle of capital preservation, not a remedy, but merely a poor emergency measure. It can, at best, rescue a fraction of the saver's funds. The main thesis of the champions of inflationism and expansionism is thus rather weak, It may be admitted that in the past inflation often, but not always, resulted in forced saving and an increase in capital available. However, this does not mean that it must produce the same effects in the future, too. On the contrary, one must realize that under modern conditions the forces driving toward capital consumption are more likely to prevail under inflationary conditions than those driving toward capital accumulation. At any rate, the final effect of such changes upon saving, capital, and the originary rate of interest depends upon the particular data of each instance. The same is valid with the necessary changes with regard to the analogous consequences and effects of a deflationist or restrictionist movement. 6. The Gross Market Rate of Interest as Affected by Inflation and Credit Expansion Whatever the ultimate effects of an inflationary or deflationary movement upon the height of the rate of originary interest may be, There is no correspondence between them and the temporary alterations which a cash-induced change in the money relation can bring about in the gross market rate of interest. If the inflow of money and money substitutes into the market system, or the outflow from it, affects the loan market first, it temporarily disarranges the congruity between the gross market rates of interest and the rate of originary interest. The market rate rises or drops on account of the decrease or increase in the amount of money offered for lending, with no correlation to changes in the originary rate of interest, which in the later course of events can possibly occur from the changes in the money relation. The market rate deviates from the height determined by that of the originary rate of interest, and forces come into operation which tend to adjust it anew to the ratio which corresponds to that of originary interest. It may happen that in the period of time which this adjustment requires, the height of originary interest varies, and this change can also be caused by the inflationary or deflationary processes which brought about the deviation. Then, the final rate of originary interest determining the final market rate toward which the readjustment tends is not the same rate which prevailed on the eve of the disarrangement. Such an occurrence may affect the data of the process of adjustment, but it does not affect its essence. 
The phenomenon to be dealt with is this. The rate of originary interest is determined by the discount of future goods as against present goods. It is essentially independent of the supply of money and money substitutes, notwithstanding the fact that changes in the supply of money and money substitutes can indirectly affect its height. But the gross market rate of interest can be affected by changes in the money relation. A readjustment must take place. What is the nature of the process which brings it about? In this section we are concerned only with inflation and credit expansion. For the sake of simplicity we assume that the whole additional amount of money and money substitutes flows into the loan market and reaches the rest of the market only via the loans granted. This corresponds precisely to the conditions of an expansion of circulation credit. Our scrutiny thus amounts to an analysis of the process caused by credit expansion. In dealing with this analysis, we must refer again to the price premium. It has been mentioned already that at the very beginning of a credit expansion, no positive price premium arises. A price premium cannot appear until the additional supply of money, in the broader sense, has already begun to affect the prices of commodities and services. But as long as credit expansion goes on and additional quantities of fiduciary media are hurled on the loan market, there continues a pressure upon the gross market rate of interest the gross market rate would have to rise on account of the positive price premium, which, with the progress of the expansionist process, would have to rise continually. But as credit expansion goes on, the gross market rate continues to lag behind the height at which it would cover both originary interest plus the positive price premium. It is necessary to stress this point because it explodes the customary methods according to which people distinguish between what they consider low and high rates of interest. It is usual to take into account merely the arithmetical height of the rates, or the trend which appears in their movement. Public opinion has definite ideas about a normal rate, something between 3 and 5 percent. When the market rate rises above this height, or when the market rates, without regard to their arithmetical ratio, are rising above their previous height, people believe that they are right in speaking of high or rising interest rates. As against these errors, it is necessary to emphasize that under the conditions of a general rise in prices, drop in the monetary unit's purchasing power, the gross market rate of interest can be considered as unchanged with regard to conditions of a period of a by-and-large unchanging purchasing power only if it includes a by-and-large adequate positive price premium. In this sense, the German Reichsbank's discount rate of 90% was, in the fall of 1923, a low rate, indeed a ridiculously low rate as it considerably lagged behind the price premium and did not leave anything for the other components of the gross market rate of interest. Essentially, the same phenomenon manifests itself in every instance of a prolonged credit expansion. 
Gross market rates of interest rise in the further course of every expansion, but they are nonetheless low, as they do not correspond to the height required by the expected further general rise in prices. In analyzing the process of credit expansion, suppose we assume that the economic system's process of adjustment to the market data and of movement toward the establishment of final prices and interest rates is disturbed by the appearance of a new datum, namely an additional quantity of fiduciary media offered on the loan market. At the gross market rate which prevailed on the eve of this disturbance, all those who were ready to borrow money at this rate, due allowance being made for the entrepreneurial component of each instance, could borrow as much as they wanted. Additional loans can be placed only at a lower gross market rate. It does not matter whether this drop in the gross market rate expresses itself in an arithmetical drop in the percentage stipulated in the loan contracts. It could happen that the nominal interest rates remain unchanged and that the expansion manifests itself in the fact that at these rates loans are negotiated which would not have been made before on account of the height of the entrepreneurial component included. Such an outcome, too, amounts to a drop in gross market rates and brings about the same consequences. A drop in the gross market rate of interest affects the entrepreneur's calculation concerning the chances of the profitability of projects considered. Along with the prices of the material factors of production, wage rates, and the anticipated future prices of the products, Interest rates are items that enter into the planning businessman's calculation. The result of this calculation shows the businessman whether or not a definite project will pay. It shows him what investments can be made under the given state of the ratio in the public's valuation of future goods as against present goods. It brings his actions into agreement with this valuation. It prevents him from embarking upon projects the realization of which would be disapproved by the public because of the length of the waiting time they require. It forces him to employ the available stock of capital goods in such a way as to satisfy best the most urgent wants of the consumers. But now the drop in interest rates falsifies the businessman's calculation. Although the amount of capital goods available did not increase, the calculation employs figures which would be utilizable only if such an increase had taken place. The result of such calculations is therefore misleading. They make some projects appear profitable and realizable, which a correct calculation, based on an interest rate not manipulated by credit expansion, would have shown as unrealizable. Entrepreneurs embark upon the execution of such projects. Business activities are stimulated. A boom begins. The additional demand on the part of the expanding entrepreneurs tends to raise the prices of producers' goods and wage rates. With the rise in wage rates, the prices of consumers' goods rise too. Besides, the entrepreneurs are contributing a share to the rise in the prices of consumers' goods as they too, deluded by the illusory gains which their business accounts show, are ready to consume more.
the general upswing in prices spreads optimism. If only the prices of producers' goods had risen and those of consumers' goods had not been affected, the entrepreneurs would have become embarrassed. They would have had doubts concerning the soundness of their plans, as the rise in costs of production would have upset their calculations. But they are reassured by the fact that the demand for consumers' goods is intensified and makes it possible to expand sales in spite of rising prices. Thus they are confident that production will pay, notwithstanding the higher costs it involves. They are resolved to go on. Of course, in order to continue production on the enlarged scale brought about by the expansion of credit, all entrepreneurs, those who did expand their activities no less than those who produce only within the limits in which they produced previously, need additional funds, as the costs of production are now higher. If the credit expansion consists merely in a single, not repeated injection of a definite amount of fiduciary media into the loan market, and then ceases altogether, the boom must very soon stop. The entrepreneurs cannot procure the funds they need for the further conduct of their ventures. The gross market rate of interest rises because the increased demand for loans is not counterpoised by a corresponding increase in the quantity of money available for lending. Commodity prices drop because some entrepreneurs are selling inventories and others abstain from buying. The size of business activities shrinks again. The boom ends because the forces which brought it about are no longer in operation. The additional quantity of circulation credit has exhausted its operation upon prices and wage rates. Prices, wage rates, and the various individuals' cash holdings are adjusted to the new money relation. They move toward the final state which corresponds to this money relation, without being disturbed by further injections of additional fiduciary media. The rate of originary interest which is coordinated to this new structure of the market acts with full momentum upon the gross market rate of interest. The gross market rate is no longer subject to disturbing influences exercised by cash-induced changes in the supply of money in the broader sense. The main deficiency of all attempts to explain the boom, namely the general tendency to expand production and of all prices to rise, without reference to changes in the supply of money or fiduciary media, is to be seen in the fact that they disregard this circumstance. A general rise in prices can only occur if there is either a drop in the supply of all commodities or an increase in the supply of money in the broader sense. Let us, for the sake of argument, admit for the moment that the statements of these non-monetary explanations of the boom and the trade cycle are correct. Prices advance and business activities expand, although no increase in the supply of money has occurred. Then, very soon, a tendency toward a drop in prices must arise. The demand for loans must increase. The gross market rates of interest must rise, and the short-lived boom comes to an end. In fact, 
Every non-monetary trade cycle doctrine tacitly assumes, or ought logically to assume, that credit expansion is an attendant phenomenon of the boom. It cannot help admitting that in the absence of such a credit expansion, no boom could emerge, and that the increase in the supply of money in the broader sense is a necessary condition of the general upward movement of prices. Thus, on close inspection, the statements of the non-monetary explanations of cyclical fluctuations shrink to the assertion that credit expansion, while an indispensable requisite of the boom, is itself alone not sufficient to bring it about, and that some further conditions are required for its appearance. Yet even in this restricted sense, the teachings of the non-monetary doctrines are vain. It is evident that every expansion of credit must bring about the boom as described above. The boom-creating tendency of credit expansion can fail to come only if another factor simultaneously counterbalances its growth. If, for instance, while the banks expand credit, it is expected that the government will completely tax away the businessman's excess profits, or that it will stop the further progress of credit expansion as soon as pump priming will have resulted in rising prices, no boom can develop. The entrepreneurs will abstain from expanding their ventures with the aid of the cheap credits offered by the banks because they cannot expect to increase their gains. It is necessary to mention this fact because it explains the failure of the New Deal's pump-priming measures and other events of the thirties. The boom can last only as long as the credit expansion progresses at an ever-accelerated pace. The boom comes to an end as soon as additional quantities of fiduciary media are no longer thrown upon the loan market. But it could not last forever even if inflation and credit expansion were to go on endlessly. It would then encounter the barriers which prevent the boundless expansion of circulation credit. It would lead to the crack-up boom and the breakdown of the whole monetary system. The essence of monetary theory is the cognition that cash-induced changes in the money relation affect the various prices, wage rates, and interest rates, neither at the same time nor to the same extent. If this unevenness were absent, money would be neutral. Changes in the money relation would not affect the structure of business the size and direction of production in the various branches of industry, consumption, and the wealth and income of the various strata of the population. Then the gross market rate of interest, too, would not be affected, either temporarily or lastingly, by changes in the sphere of money and circulation credit. The fact that such changes can modify the rate of originary interest is caused by the changes which this unevenness brings about in the wealth and income of various individuals. The fact that, apart from these changes in the rate of originary interest, the gross market rate is temporarily affected is in itself a manifestation of this unevenness. 
If the additional quantity of money enters the economic system in such a way as to reach the loan market only at a date at which it has already made commodity prices and wage rates rise, these immediate temporary effects upon the gross market rate of interest will be either slight or entirely absent. The gross market rate of interest is the more violently affected the sooner the inflowing additional supply of money or fiduciary media reaches the loan market. When, under the conditions of credit expansion, the whole amount of the additional money substitutes is lent to businessmen, production is expanded. The entrepreneurs embark either upon lateral expansion of production, namely the expansion of production without lengthening the period of production in the individual industry, or upon longitudinal expansion, namely the lengthening of the period of production. In either case, the additional plants require the investment of additional factors of production, but the amount of capital goods available for investment has not increased. Neither does credit expansion bring about a tendency toward a restriction of consumption. It is true, as has been pointed out above in dealing with forced saving, that in the further progress of the expansion, a part of the population will be compelled to restrict its consumption but it depends on the particular conditions of each instance of credit expansion whether this forced saving of some groups of the people will overcompensate the increase in consumption on the part of other groups, and will thus result in a net increase in the total amount of saving in the whole market system. At any rate, the immediate consequence of credit expansion is a rise in consumption on the part of those wage earners whose wages have risen on account of the intensified demand for labor displayed by the expanding entrepreneurs. Let us, for the sake of argument, assume that the increased consumption of these wage earners, favored by the inflation, and the forced saving of other groups prejudiced by the inflation, are equal in amount and that no change in the total amount of consumption has occurred. Then the situation is this. Production has been altered in such a way that the length of waiting time has been extended, but the demand for consumers' goods has not dropped so as to make the available supply last for a longer period. Of course, this fact results in a rise in the prices of consumers' goods, and thus brings about the tendency toward forced saving. However, this rise in the prices of consumers' goods strengthens the tendency of business to expand. The entrepreneurs draw from the fact that demand and prices are rising the inference that it will pay to invest and to produce more. They go on, and their intensified activities bring about a further rise in the prices of producers' goods, in wage rates, and thereby again in the prices of consumers' goods. Business booms as long as the banks are willing to expand credit more and more. On the eve of the credit expansion, all those production processes were in operation which, under the given state of the market data, were deemed profitable. 
The system was moving toward a state in which all those eager to earn wages would be employed, and all non-convertible factors of production would be employed to the extent that the demand of the consumers and the available supply of non-specific material factors and of labor would permit. A further expansion of production is possible only if the amount of capital goods is increased by additional saving, that is, by surpluses produced and not consumed. The characteristic mark of the credit expansion boom is that such additional capital goods have not been made available. The capital goods required for the expansion of business activities must be withdrawn from other lines of production. We may call P the total supply of capital goods available on the eve of the credit expansion, and G the total amount of consumers' goods which these P could, over a definite period of time, make available for consumption without prejudice to further production. Now the entrepreneurs, enticed by credit expansion, embark upon the production of an additional quantity of G3 of goods of the same kind, which they already used to produce, and of a quantity of G4 of goods of a kind not produced by them before. For the production of G3, a supply of P3 of capital goods is needed and for the production of G4, a supply of P4. But, as according to our assumptions, the amount of capital goods available has remained unaltered, the quantities P3 and P4 are lacking. It is precisely this fact that distinguishes the artificial boom created by credit expansion from a normal expansion of production, which only the addition of P3 and P4 to P can bring about. Let us call R that amount of capital goods which, out of the gross proceeds of production over a definite period of time, must be reinvested for the replacement of those parts of P used up in the process of production. If R is employed for such replacement, one will be in a position to turn out G again in the following period of time. If R is withheld from this employment, P will be reduced by R, and P minus R will turn out in the following period of time only G minus A. We may further assume that the economic system affected by credit expansion is a progressing system. It produced normally, as it were, in the period of time preceding the credit expansion, a surplus of capital goods, P1 plus P2. If no credit expansion had intervened, P1 would have been employed for the production of an additional quantity of G1 of the kind of goods produced previously, and P2 for the production of the supply G2 of a kind of goods not produced before. The total amount of capital goods which are at the entrepreneur's disposal, and with regard to which they are free to make plans, is R plus P1 plus P2. However, deluded by the cheap money, they act as if R plus P1 plus P2 plus P3 plus P4 were available, 
and as if they were in a position to produce not only G plus G1 plus G2, but beyond this also G3 plus G4. They outbid one another in competing for a share of a supply of capital goods which is insufficient for the realization of their overambitious plans. The ensuing boom in the prices of producers' goods may at the beginning outrun the rise in the prices of consumers' goods. It may thus bring about a tendency toward a fall in the originary rate of interest. But with the further progress of the expansionist movement, the rise in the prices of the consumers' goods will outstrip the rise in the prices of producers' goods. The rise in wages and salaries and the additional gains of the capitalists, entrepreneurs, and farmers, although a great part of them is merely apparent, intensify the demand for consumers' goods. There is no need to enter into a scrutiny of the assertion of the advocates of credit expansion that the boom can, by means of forced saving, really increase the total supply of consumers' goods. At any rate, it is certain that the intensified demand for consumers' goods affects the market at a time when the additional investments are not yet in a position to turn out their products. The gulf between the prices of present goods and those of future goods widens again. A tendency toward a rise in the rate of originary interest is substituted for the tendency toward the opposite, which may have come into operation at the earlier stages of the expansion. This tendency toward a rise in the rate of originary interest and the emergence of a positive price premium explains some characteristics of the boom. The banks are faced with an increased demand for loans and advances on the part of business. The entrepreneurs are prepared to borrow money at higher gross rates of interest. They go on borrowing in spite of the fact that the banks charge more interest. Arithmetically, the gross rates of interest are rising above their height on the eve of the expansion. Nonetheless, they lag catalactically behind the height at which they would cover originary interest plus entrepreneurial component and price premium. The banks believe that they have done all that is needed to stop unsound speculation when they lend on more onerous terms. They think that those critics who blame them for fanning the flames of the boom frenzy of the market are wrong. They fail to see that in injecting more and more fiduciary media into the market, they are in fact kindling the boom. It is the continuous increase in the supply of the fiduciary media that produces, feeds, and accelerates the boom. The state of the gross market rates of interest is only an outgrowth of this increase. If one wants to know whether or not there is credit expansion, one must look at the state of the supply of fiduciary media, not at the arithmetical state of interest rates. It is customary to describe the boom as over-investment. However, additional investment is only possible to the extent that there is an additional supply of capital goods available. As, apart from forced saving, the boom itself does not result in a restriction, but rather in an increase in consumption, it does not procure more capital goods for new investment. 
The essence of the credit expansion boom is not overinvestment, but investment in wrong lines, that is, malinvestment. The entrepreneurs employ the available supply of R plus P1 plus P2 as if they were in a position to employ a supply of R plus P1 plus P2 plus P3 plus P4. They embark upon an expansion of investment on a scale for which the capital goods available do not suffice. Their projects are unrealizable on account of the insufficient supply of capital goods. They must fail sooner or later. The unavoidable end of the credit expansion makes the faults committed visible. There are plants which cannot be utilized because the plants needed for the production of the complementary factors of production are lacking. Plants the products of which cannot be sold because the consumers are more intent upon purchasing other goods, which, however, are not produced in sufficient quantities. Plants the construction of which cannot be continued and finished because it has become obvious that they will not pay. The erroneous belief that the essential feature of the boom is overinvestment and not malinvestment is due to the habit of judging conditions merely according to what is perceptible and tangible. The observer notices only the malinvestments which are visible and fails to recognize that these establishments are malinvestments only because of the fact that other plants, those required for the production of the complementary factors of production and those required for the production of consumers' goods more urgently demanded by the public, are lacking. Technological conditions make it necessary to start an expansion of production by expanding first the size of the plants producing the goods of those orders which are farthest removed from the finished consumers' goods. In order to expand the production of shoes, clothes, motor cars, furniture, houses, one must begin with increasing the production of iron, steel, copper, and other such goods. In employing the supply of R plus P1 plus P2, which would suffice for the production of A plus G1 plus G2, as if it were R plus P1 plus P2 plus P3 plus P4, and would suffice for the production of A plus G1 plus G2 plus G3 plus G4, one must first engage in increasing the output of those products and structures which, for physical reasons, are first required. The whole entrepreneurial class is, as it were, in the position of a master builder whose task it is to erect a building out of a limited supply of building materials. If this man overestimates the quantity of the available supply, he drafts a plan for the execution of which the means at his disposal are not sufficient. He oversizes the groundwork and the foundations, and only discovers later in the progress of the construction that he lacks the material needed for the completion of the structure. It is obvious that our master builder's fault was not over-investment, but an inappropriate employment of the means at his disposal.
It is no less erroneous to believe that the events which resulted in the crisis amounted to an undue conversion of circulating capital into fixed capital. The individual entrepreneur, when faced with the credit stringency of the crisis, is right in regretting that he has expended too much for an expansion of his plant and for the purchase of durable equipment. He would have been in a better situation if the funds used for these purposes were still at his disposal for the current conduct of business. However, raw materials, primary commodities, half-finished manufactures, and foodstuffs are not lacking at the turning point at which the upswing turns into the Depression. On the contrary, the crisis is precisely characterized by the fact that these goods are offered in such quantities as to make their prices drop sharply. The foregoing statements explain why an expansion in the production facilities and the production of the heavy industries, and in the production of durable producers' goods, is the most conspicuous mark of the boom. The editors of the Financial and Commercial Chronicles were right when, for more than a hundred years, they looked upon production figures of these industries, as well as of the construction trades, as an index of business fluctuations. They were only mistaken in referring to an alleged overinvestment. Of course, the boom affects also the consumers' goods industries. They, too, invest more and expand their production capacity. However, the new plants and the new annexes added to the already existing plants are not always those for the products of which the demand of the public is most intense. They may well have agreed with the whole plan aiming at the production of R plus G1 plus G2 plus G3 plus G4. The failure of this oversized plan discloses their inappropriateness. A sharp rise in commodity prices is not always an attending phenomenon of the boom. The increase of the quantity of fiduciary media certainly always has the potential effect of making prices rise. But it may happen that at the same time forces operating in the opposite direction are strong enough to keep the rise in prices within narrow limits, or even to remove it entirely. The historical period in which the smooth working of the market economy was again and again interrupted through expansionist ventures was an epoch of continuous economic progress. The steady advance in the accumulation of new capital made technological improvement possible. Output per unit of input was increased, and business filled the markets with increasing quantities of cheap goods. If the synchronous increase in the supply of money in the broader sense had been less plentiful than it really was, a tendency toward a drop in the prices of all commodities would have taken effect. As an actual historical event, credit expansion was always embedded in an environment in which powerful factors were counteracting its tendency to raise prices. As a rule, the resultant of the clash of opposite forces was a preponderance of those producing a rise in prices. But there were some exceptional instances, too, in which the upward movement of prices was only slight. The most remarkable example was provided by the American boom of 1926 to 1929. 
The essential features of a credit expansion are not affected by such a particular constellation of the market data. What induces an entrepreneur to embark upon definite projects is neither high prices nor low prices as such, but a discrepancy between the costs of production, inclusive of interest on the capital required, and the anticipated prices of the products. A lowering of the gross market rate of interest as brought about by credit expansion always has the effect of making some projects appear profitable which did not appear so before. It actuates business to employ R plus P1 plus P2 as if it were R plus P1 plus P2 plus P3 plus P4. It necessarily brings about a structure of investment and production activities which is at variance with the real supply of capital goods and must finally collapse. That sometimes the price changes involved are laid against a background of a general tendency toward a rise in purchasing power and do not convert this tendency into its manifest opposite, but only into something which may, by and large, be called price stability, modifies merely some accessories of the process. However conditions may be, it is certain that no manipulations of the banks can provide the economic system with capital goods. What is needed for a sound expansion of production is additional capital goods, not money or fiduciary media. The boom is built on the sands of banknotes and deposits. It must collapse. The breakdown appears as soon as the banks become frightened by the accelerated pace of the boom and begin to abstain from further expansion of credit. The boom could continue only as long as the banks were ready to grant freely all those credits which business needed for the execution of its excessive projects, utterly disagreeing with the real state of the supply of factors of production and the valuations of the consumers. These illusory plans, suggested by the falsification of business calculation as brought about by the cheap money policy, can be pushed forward only if new credits can be obtained at gross market rates which are artificially lowered below the height they would reach at an unhampered loan market. It is this margin that gives them the deceptive appearance of profitability, the change in the bank's conduct does not create the crisis. It merely makes visible the havoc spread by the faults which business has committed in the boom period. Neither could the boom last endlessly if the banks were to cling stubbornly to their expansionist policies. Any attempt to substitute additional fiduciary media for non-existing capital goods, namely the quantities P3 and P4, is doomed to failure. If the credit expansion is not stopped in time, the boom turns into the crack-up boom, the flight into real values begins, and the whole monetary system founders. However, as a rule, the banks in the past have not pushed things to extremes. They have become alarmed at a date when the final catastrophe was still far away.
One should not fall prey to the illusion that these changes in the credit policies of the banks were caused by the bankers and the monetary authorities' insight into the unavoidable consequences of a continued credit expansion. What induced the turn in the bank's conduct was certain institutional conditions to be dealt with further below. Among the champions of economics, some private bankers were prominent, in particular the elaboration of the early form of the theory of business fluctuations. The currency theory was, for the most part, an achievement of British bankers. But the management of central banks and the conduct of the various governments' monetary policies was, as a rule, entrusted to men who did not find any fault with boundless credit expansion and took offense at every criticism of their expansionist ventures. As soon as the afflux of additional fiduciary media comes to an end, the airy castle of the boom collapses. The entrepreneurs must restrict their activities because they lack the funds for their continuation on the exaggerated scale. Prices drop suddenly because these distressed firms try to obtain cash by throwing inventories on the market dirt cheap. Factories are closed. The continuation of construction projects in progress is halted. Workers are discharged. As, on the one hand, many firms badly need money in order to avoid bankruptcy, and, on the other hand, no firm any longer enjoys confidence, the entrepreneurial component in the gross market rate of interest jumps to an excessive height. Accidental institutional and psychological circumstances generally turn the outbreak of the crisis into a panic, the description of these awful events can be left to the historians. It is not the task of catalactic theory to depict in detail the calamities of panicky days and weeks and to dwell upon their sometimes grotesque aspects. Economics is not interested in what is accidental and conditioned by the individual historical circumstances of each instance. Its aim is, on the contrary, to distinguish what is essential and apodictically necessary from what is merely adventitious. It is not interested in the psychological aspects of the panic, but only in the fact that a credit expansion boom must unavoidably lead to a process which everyday speech calls the Depression. It must realize that the depression is in fact the process of readjustment, of putting production activities anew in agreement with the given state of the market data, the available supply of factors of production, the valuations of the consumers, and, particularly also, the state of originary interest as manifested in the public's valuations. These data, however, are no longer identical with those that prevailed on the eve of the expansionist process. A good many things have changed. Forced saving, and, to an even greater extent, regular voluntary saving, may have provided new capital goods, which were not totally squandered through malinvestment and overconsumption as induced by the boom. Changes in the wealth and income of various individuals and groups of individuals have been brought about by the unevenness inherent in every inflationary movement. 
Apart from any causal relation to the credit expansion, population may have changed with regard to figures and the characteristics of the individuals comprising them. Technological knowledge may have advanced. Demand for certain goods may have been altered. The final state, to the establishment of which the market tends, is no longer the same toward which it tended before the disturbances created by the credit expansion. Some of the investments made in the boom period appear, when appraised with the sober judgment of the readjustment period, no longer dimmed by the illusions of the upswing, as absolutely hopeless failures. They must simply be abandoned because the current means required for their further exploitation cannot be recovered in selling their products. This circulating capital is more urgently needed in other branches of want satisfaction. The proof is that it can be employed in a more profitable way in other fields. Other malinvestments offer somewhat more favorable chances. It is, of course, true that one would not have embarked upon putting capital goods into them if one had correctly calculated. The inconvertible investments made on their behalf are certainly wasted. But, as they are inconvertible, a fait accompli, they present further action with a new problem. If the proceeds which the sale of their products promises are expected to exceed the costs of current operation, it is profitable to carry on. Although the prices which the buying public is prepared to allow for their products are not high enough to make the whole of the inconvertible investment profitable, they are sufficient to make a fraction, however small, of the investment profitable. The rest of the investment must be considered as expenditure without any offset, as capital squandered and lost. If one looks at this outcome from the point of view of the consumers, the result is, of course, the same. The consumers would be better off if the illusions created by the easy money policy had not enticed the entrepreneurs to waste scarce capital goods, by investing them for the satisfaction of less urgent needs and withholding them from lines of production in which they would have satisfied more urgent needs. But, as things are now, they cannot but put up with what is irrevocable. They must, for the time being, renounce certain amenities which they could have enjoyed if the boom had not engendered malinvestment. But, on the other hand, they can find partial compensation in the fact that some enjoyments are now available to them which would have been beyond their reach if the smooth course of economic activities had not been disturbed by the orgies of the boom. It is slight compensation only, as their demand for those other things which they do not get because of inappropriate employment of capital goods is more intense than their demand for these substitutes, as it were. But it is the only choice left to them as conditions and data are now. The final outcome of the credit expansion is general impoverishment. Some people may have increased their wealth. They did not let their reasoning be obfuscated by the mass hysteria and took advantage in time of the opportunities offered by the mobility of the individual investor. 
Other individuals and groups of individuals may have been favored, without any initiative of their own, by the mere time lag between the rise in the prices of the goods they sell and those they buy. But the immense majority must foot the bill for the malinvestments and the overconsumption of the boom episode. One must guard oneself against a misinterpretation of this term, impoverishment. It does not mean impoverishment when compared with the conditions that prevailed on the eve of the credit expansion. Whether or not an impoverishment in this sense takes place depends on the particular data of each case. It cannot be predicated apodictically by catalactics. What catalactics has in mind when asserting that impoverishment is an unavoidable outgrowth of credit expansion is impoverishment as compared with the state of affairs which would have developed in the absence of credit expansion and the boom. The characteristic mark of economic history under capitalism is unceasing economic progress a steady increase in the quantity of capital goods available and a continuous trend toward an improvement in the general standard of living. The pace of this progress is so rapid that in the course of a boom period it may well outstrip the synchronous losses caused by malinvestment and overconsumption. Then the economic system as a whole is more prosperous at the end of the boom than it was at its very beginning. It appears impoverished only when compared with the potentialities which existed for a still better state of satisfaction. The Alleged Absence of Depressions Under Totalitarian Management Many socialist authors emphasize that the recurrence of economic crises and business depressions is a phenomenon inherent in the capitalist mode of production. On the other hand, a socialist system is safe against this evil. As has already become obvious and will be shown later again, the cyclical fluctuations of business are not an occurrence originating in the sphere of the unhampered market, but a product of government interference with business conditions designed to lower the rate of interest below the height at which the free market would have fixed it. At this point, we have only to deal with the alleged stability as secured by socialist planning. It is essential to realize that what makes the economic crisis emerge is the democratic process of the market. The consumers disapprove of the employment of the factors of production as effected by the entrepreneurs. They manifest their disapprobation by their conduct in buying and abstention from buying. The entrepreneurs, misled by the illusions of the artificially lowered gross market rate of interest, have failed to invest in those lines in which the most urgent needs of the public would have been satisfied in the best possible way. As soon as the credit expansion comes to an end, these faults become manifest. The attitudes of the consumers force the businessmen to adjust their activities anew to the best possible want satisfaction. It is this process of liquidation of the faults committed in the boom and of readjustment to the wishes of the consumers, which is called the depression. But in a socialist economy, it is only the government's value judgments that count and the people are deprived of any means of making their own value judgments prevail. 
A dictator does not bother about whether or not the masses approve of his decision concerning how much to devote for current consumption and how much for additional investment. If the dictator invests more and thus curtails the means available for current consumption, the people must eat less and hold their tongues. No crisis emerges because the subjects have no opportunity to utter their dissatisfaction. Where there is no business at all, business can be neither good nor bad. There may be starvation and famine, but no depression in the sense in which this term is used in dealing with the problems of a market economy. Where the individuals are not free to choose, they cannot protest against the methods applied by those directing the course of production activities. It is no answer to this to object that public opinion in the capitalist countries favors the policy of cheap money. The masses are misled by the assertions of the pseudo-experts that cheap money can make them prosperous at no expense whatever. They do not realize that investment can be expanded only to the extent that more capital is accumulated by saving. They are deceived by the fairy tales of monetary cranks. Yet what counts in reality is not fairy tales, but people's conduct. If men are not prepared to save more by cutting down their current consumption, the means for a substantial expansion of investment are lacking. These means cannot be provided by printing banknotes and by credit on the bank books. It is a common phenomenon that the individual in his capacity as a voter virtually contradicts his conduct on the market. Thus, for instance, he may vote for measures which will raise the price of one commodity or of all commodities, while, as a buyer, he wants to see these prices low. Such conflicts arise out of ignorance and error. As human nature is, they can happen. But in a social organization in which the individual is neither a voter nor a buyer, or in which voting and buying are merely a sham, they are absent. 7. The gross market rate of interest as affected by deflation and credit contraction. We assume that in the course of a deflationary process, the whole amount by which the supply of money in the broader sense is reduced is taken from the loan market. Then, the loan market and the gross market rate of interest are affected at the very beginning of the process at a moment at which the prices of commodities and services are not yet altered by the change going on in the money relation. We may, for instance, posit that a government aiming at deflation floats a loan and destroys the paper money borrowed. Such a procedure has been, in the last two hundred years, adopted again and again. The idea was to raise, after a prolonged period of inflationary policy, the national monetary unit to its previous metallic parity. Of course, in most cases the deflationary projects were soon abandoned, as their execution encountered increasing opposition and, moreover, heavily burdened the treasury. Or we may assume that the banks, frightened by their adverse experience in the crisis brought about by credit expansion, are intent upon increasing the reserves held against their liabilities, and therefore restrict the amount of circulation credit. 
A third possibility would be that the crisis has resulted in the bankruptcy of banks, which granted circulation credit, and that the annihilation of the fiduciary media issued by these banks reduces the supply of credit on the loan market. In all these cases, a temporary tendency toward a rise in the gross market rate of interest ensues. Projects which would have appeared profitable before appear so no longer. A tendency develops toward a fall in the prices of factors of production, and later toward a fall in the prices of consumers' goods also. Business becomes slack. The deadlock ceases only when prices and wage rates are, by and large, adjusted to the new money relation. Then the loan market, too, adapts itself to the new state of affairs, and the gross market rate of interest is no longer disarranged by a shortage of money offered for advances. Thus a cash-induced rise in the gross market rate of interest produces a temporary stagnation of business. Deflation and credit contraction, no less than inflation and credit expansion, are elements disarranging the smooth course of economic activities and sources of disturbance. However, it is a blunder to look upon deflation and contraction as if they were simply counterparts of inflation and expansion. Expansion produces first the illusory appearance of prosperity. It is extremely popular because it seems to make the majority, even everybody, more affluent. It has an enticing quality. A special moral effort is needed to stop it. On the other hand, contraction immediately produces conditions which everybody is ready to condemn as evil. Its unpopularity is even greater than the popularity of expansion. It creates violent opposition. Very soon, the political forces fighting it become irresistible. Fiat money inflation and cheap loans to the government convey additional funds to the Treasury. Deflation depletes the Treasury's vaults. Credit expansion is a boon for the banks. Contraction is a forfeiture. There is a temptation in inflation and expansion and a repellent in deflation and contraction. But the dissimilarity between the two opposite modes of money and credit manipulation not only consists in the fact that while one of them is popular, the other is universally loathed. Deflation and contraction are less likely to spread havoc than inflation and expansion, not merely because they are only rarely resorted to. They are less disastrous also on account of their inherent effects. Expansion squanders scarce factors of production by malinvestment and overconsumption. If it once comes to an end, a tedious process of recovery is needed in order to wipe out the impoverishment it has left behind. But contraction produces neither malinvestment nor overconsumption. The temporary restriction in business activities that it engenders may by and large be offset by the drop in consumption on the part of the discharged wage earners and the owners of the material factors of production, the sales of which drop. No protracted scars are left. 
When the contraction comes to an end, the process of readjustment does not need to make good for losses caused by capital consumption. Deflation and credit restriction never played a noticeable role in economic history. The outstanding examples were provided by Great Britain's return, both after the wartime inflation of the Napoleonic Wars and after that of the First World War, to the pre-war gold parity of the sterling. In each case, Parliament and Cabinet adopted the deflationist policy without having weighed the pros and cons of the two methods open for a return to the gold standard. In the second decade of the nineteenth century, they could be exonerated, as at that time monetary theory had not yet clarified the problems involved. More than a hundred years later, it was simply a display of inexcusable ignorance of economics, as well as of monetary history. Ignorance manifests itself also in the confusion of deflation and contraction, and of the process of readjustment into which every expansionist boom must lead. It depends on the institutional structure of the credit system which created the boom, whether or not the crisis brings about a restriction in the amount of fiduciary media. Such a restriction may occur when the crisis results in the bankruptcy of banks granting circulation credit, and the falling off is not counterpoised by a corresponding expansion on the part of the remaining banks. But it is not necessarily an attendant phenomenon of the Depression. It is beyond doubt that it has not appeared in the last eighty years in Europe and that the extent to which it occurred in the United States under the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 has been grossly exaggerated. The dearth of credit which marks the crisis is caused not by contraction, but by the abstention from further credit expansion. It hurts all enterprises, not only those which are doomed at any rate, but no less those whose business is sound and could flourish if appropriate credit were available. As the outstanding debts are not paid back, the banks lack the means to grant credits even to the most solid firms. The crisis becomes general and forces all branches of business and all firms to restrict the scope of their activities. But there is no means of avoiding these secondary consequences of the preceding boom. They are inevitable. As soon as the depression appears, there is a general lament over deflation, and people clamor for a continuation of the expansionist policy. Now it is true that even with no restrictions in the supply of money proper and fiduciary media available, the depression brings about a cash-induced tendency toward an increase in the purchasing power of the monetary unit. Every firm is intent upon increasing its cash holdings, and these endeavors affect the ratio between the supply of money in the broader sense and the demand for money in the broader sense for cash holding. This may be properly called deflation. But it is a serious blunder to believe that the fall in commodity prices is caused by this striving after greater cash holding. The causation is the other way round. Prices of the factors of production, both material and human, have reached an excessive height in the boom period. 
they must come down before business can become profitable again. The entrepreneurs enlarge their cash holding because they abstain from buying goods and hiring workers as long as the structure of prices and wages is not adjusted to the real state of the market data. Thus, any attempt of the government or the labor unions to prevent or to delay this adjustment merely prolongs the stagnation. Even economists often failed to comprehend this concatenation. They argued thus, The structure of prices as it developed in the boom was a product of the expansionist pressure. If the further increase in fiduciary media comes to an end, the upward movement of prices and wages must stop. But if there were no deflation, no drop in prices and wage rates could result. This reasoning would be correct if the inflationary pressure had not affected the loan market before it had exhausted its direct effects upon commodity prices. Let us assume that a government of an isolated country issues additional paper money in order to pay doles to the citizens of moderate income. The rise in commodity prices thus brought about would disarrange production. It would tend to shift production from the consumer's goods regularly bought by the non-subsidized groups of the nation to those which the subsidized groups are demanding. If the policy of subsidizing some groups in this way is later abandoned, the prices of the goods demanded by those formerly subsidized will drop, and the prices of the goods demanded by those formerly non-subsidized will rise more sharply. But there will be no tendency of the monetary unit's purchasing power to return to the state of the pre-inflation period. The structure of prices will be lastingly affected by the inflationary venture if the government does not withdraw from the market the additional quantity of paper money it has injected in the shape of subsidies. Conditions are different under a credit expansion which first affects the loan market. In this case, the inflationary effects are multiplied by the consequences of capital malinvestment and overconsumption. Overbidding one another in the struggle for a greater share in the limited supply of capital goods and labor, the entrepreneurs push prices to a height at which they can remain only as long as the credit expansion goes on at an accelerated pace. A sharp drop in the prices of all commodities and services is unavoidable as soon as the further inflow of additional fiduciary media stops. While the boom is in progress, there prevails a general tendency to buy as much as one can buy because a further rise in prices is anticipated. In the Depression, on the other hand, people abstain from buying because they expect that prices will continue to drop. The recovery and the return to normalcy can only begin when prices and wage rates are so low that a sufficient number of people assume that they will not drop still more. Therefore, the only means to shorten the period of bad business is to avoid any attempts to delay or to check the fall in prices and wage rates. Only when the recovery begins to take shape 
does the change in the money relation, as effected by the increase in the quantity of fiduciary media, begin to manifest itself in the structure of prices. The Difference Between Credit Expansion and Simple Inflation In dealing with the consequences of credit expansion, we assume that the total amount of additional fiduciary media enters the market system via the loan markets as advances to business. All that has been predicated with regard to the effects of credit expansion refers to this condition. There are, however, instances in which the legal and technical methods of credit expansion are used for a procedure catalactically utterly different from genuine credit expansion. Political and institutional convenience sometimes makes it expedient for a government to take advantage of the facilities of banking as a substitute for issuing government fiat money. The Treasury borrows from the bank, and the bank provides the funds needed by issuing additional banknotes or crediting the government on a deposit account. Legally, the bank becomes the Treasury's creditor. In fact, the whole transaction amounts to fiat money inflation. The additional fiduciary media enter the market by way of the Treasury as payment for various items of government expenditure. It is this additional government demand that incites business to expand its activities. The issuance of these newly created fiat money sums does not directly interfere with the gross market rate of interest, whatever the rate of interest may be which the government pays to the bank. They affect the loan market and the gross market rate of interest, apart from the emergence of a positive price premium, only if a part of them reaches the loan market at a time at which their effects upon commodity prices and wage rates have not yet been consummated. Such were, for example, the conditions in the United States in the Second World War, Apart from the credit expansion policy which the administration had already adopted before the outbreak of the war, the government borrowed heavily from the commercial banks. This was technically credit expansion. Essentially, it was a substitute for the issuance of greenbacks. Even more complicated techniques were resorted to in many countries. Thus, for instance, the German Reich in the First World War sold bonds to the public. The Reichsbank financed these purchases by lending the greater part of the funds needed to the buyers against the same bonds as collateral. Apart from the fraction which the buyer contributed from his own funds, the role that the bank and the public played in the whole transaction was merely formal. Virtually, the additional banknotes were inconvertible paper money. It is important to pay heed to these facts in order not to confuse the consequences of credit expansion proper and those of government-made fiat money inflation. 8. The Monetary or Circulation Credit Theory of the Trade Cycle the theory of the cyclical fluctuations of business as elaborated by the British Currency School was in two respects unsatisfactory. 
First, it failed to recognize that circulation credit can be granted not only by the issue of banknotes in excess of the bank's holding of cash reserves, but also by creating bank deposits subject to check in excess of such reserves. Checkbook money, deposit currency. Consequently, it did not realize that deposits payable on demand can also be used as a device of credit expansion. This error is of little weight, as it can be easily amended. It is enough to stress the point that all that refers to credit expansion is valid for all varieties of credit expansion, no matter whether the additional fiduciary media are banknotes or deposits. However, the teachings of the currency school inspired British legislation designed to prevent the return of credit expansion booms and their necessary consequence, depressions, at a time when this fundamental defect was not yet unmasked. Peel's Act of 1844 and its imitations in other countries did not attain the end sought, and this failure shook the prestige of the currency school. The banking school triumphed undeservedly. The second shortcoming of the currency theory was more momentous. It restricted its reasoning to the problem of the external drain. It dealt only with a particular case, namely credit expansion in one country only, while there is either no credit expansion or only credit expansion to a smaller extent in other areas. This was, by and large, sufficient to explain the British crisis of the first part of the 19th century. But it touched only the surface of the problem. The essential question was not raised at all. Nothing was done to clarify the consequences of a general expansion of credit not confined to a number of banks with a restricted clientele. The reciprocal relations between the supply of money in the broader sense and the rate of interest were not analyzed. The multifarious projects to lower or to abolish interest altogether by means of a banking reform were haughtily derided as quackery, but not critically dissected and refuted. The naive presumption of money's neutrality was tacitly ratified. Thus, a free hand was left to all futile attempts to interpret crises and business fluctuations by means of the theory of direct exchange. Many decades passed before the spell was broken. The hindrance that the monetary or circulation credit theory had to overcome was not merely theoretical error, but also political bias. Public opinion is prone to see in interest nothing but a merely institutional obstacle to the expansion of production. It does not realize that the discount of future goods as against present goods is a necessary and eternal category of human action, and cannot be abolished by bank manipulation. In the eyes of cranks and demagogues, interest is a product of the sinister machinations of rugged exploiters. The age-old disapprobation of interest has been fully revived by modern interventionism. It clings to the dogma that it is one of the foremost duties of good government to lower the rate of interest as far as possible, or to abolish it altogether. 
All present-day governments are fanatically committed to an easy-money policy. As has been mentioned already, the British government has asserted that credit expansion has performed the miracle of turning a stone into bread. A chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York has declared that final freedom from the domestic money market exists for every sovereign national state where there exists an institution which functions in the manner of a modern central bank and whose currency is not convertible into gold or into some other commodity. Many governments, universities, and institutes of economic research lavishly subsidize publications whose main purpose is to praise the blessings of unbridled credit expansion and to slander all opponents as ill-intentioned advocates of the selfish interests of usurers. The wave-like movement affecting the economic system, the recurrence of periods of boom which are followed by periods of depression, is the unavoidable outcome of the attempts, repeated again and again, to lower the gross market rate of interest by means of credit expansion. There is no means of avoiding the final collapse of a boom brought about by credit expansion. The alternative is only whether the crisis should come sooner as the result of a voluntary abandonment of further credit expansion, or later, as a final and total catastrophe of the currency system involved. The only objection ever raised against the circulation credit theory is lame indeed. It has been asserted that the lowering of the gross market rate of interest below the height it would have reached on an unhampered loan market may appear not as the outcome of an intentional policy on the part of the banks or the monetary authorities, but as the unintentional effect of their conservatism. Faced with a situation which would, when left alone, result in a raise in the market rate, the banks refrain from altering the interest they charge on advances, and thus, willy-nilly, tumble into expansion. These assertions are unwarranted. But if we are prepared to admit their correctness for the sake of argument, they do not affect at all the essence of the monetary explanation of the trade cycle. It is of no concern what the particular conditions are that induce the banks to expand credit and to underbid the gross market rate of interest which the unhampered market would have determined. What counts is solely that the banks and the monetary authorities are guided by the idea that the height of interest rates, as the free loan market determines it, is an evil that it is the objective of a good economic policy to lower it, and that credit expansion is an appropriate means of achieving this end without harm to anybody but parasitic moneylenders. It is this infatuation that causes them to embark upon ventures which must finally bring about the slump. If one takes these facts into consideration, one could be tempted to abstain from any discussion of the problems involved in the frame of the theory of the pure market economy, and to relegate it to the analysis of interventionism, the interference of government with the market phenomena. It is beyond doubt that credit expansion is one of the primary issues of interventionism. 
Nevertheless, the right place for the analysis of the problems involved is not in the theory of interventionism, but in that of the pure market economy. For the problem we have to deal with is essentially the relation between the supply of money and the rate of interest, a problem of which the consequences of credit expansion are only a particular instance. Everything that has been asserted with regard to credit expansion is equally valid with regard to the effects of any increase in the supply of money proper as far as this additional supply reaches the loan market at an early stage of its inflow into the market system. If the additional quantity of money increases the quantity of money offered for loans at a time when commodity prices and wage rates have not yet been completely adjusted to the change in the money relation, the effects are no different from those of a credit expansion. In analyzing the problem of credit expansion, catalactics completes the structure of the theory of money and of interest. It implicitly demolishes the age-old errors concerning interest and explodes the fantastic plans to abolish interest by means of monetary or credit reform. What differentiates credit expansion from an increase in the supply of money, as it can appear in an economy employing only commodity money and no fiduciary media at all, is conditioned by divergencies in the quantity of the increase and in the temporal sequence of its effects on the various parts of the market. Even a rapid increase in the production of the precious metals can never have the range which credit expansion can attain. The gold standard was an efficacious check upon credit expansion, as it forced the banks not to exceed certain limits in their expansionist ventures. The gold standard's own inflationary potentialities were kept within limits by the vicissitudes of gold mining. Moreover, only a part of the additional gold immediately increased the supply offered on the loan market. The greater part acted first upon commodity prices and wage rates, and affected the loan market only at a later stage of the inflationary process. However, the continuous increase in the quantity of commodity money exercised a steady expansionist pressure on the loan market. The gross market rate of interest was, in the course of the last centuries, continually subject to the impact of an inflow of additional money into the loan market. Of course, this pressure for the last hundred and fifty years in the Anglo-Saxon countries, and for the last hundred years in the countries of the European continent, was far exceeded by the effects of the synchronous development of circulation credit, as granted by the banks, apart from their, from time to time reiterated, straightforward endeavors to lower the gross market rate of interest by an intensified expansion of credit. Thus, three tendencies toward a lowering of the gross market rate of interest were operating at the same time and strengthening one another. One was the outgrowth of the steady increase in the quantity of commodity money. The second, the outgrowth of a spontaneous development of fiduciary media in banking operations. The third, the fruit of intentional anti-interest policies sponsored by the authorities and approved by public opinion.
It is, of course, impossible to ascertain in a quantitative way the effect of their joint operation and the contribution of each of them. An answer to such a question can only be provided by historical understanding. What catalactic reasoning can show us is merely that a slight, although continuous, pressure on the gross market rate of interest, as originating from a continuous increase in the quantity of gold, and also from a slight increase in the quantity of fiduciary media, which is not overdone and intensified by purposeful easy-money policy, can be counterpoised by the forces of readjustment and accommodation inherent in the market economy. The adaptability of business not purposely sabotaged by forces extraneous to the market is powerful enough to offset the effects which such slight disturbances of the loan market can possibly bring about. Statisticians have tried to investigate the long waves of business fluctuations with statistical methods. Such attempts are futile. The history of modern capitalism is a record of steady economic progress, again and again interrupted by feverish booms and their aftermath, depressions. It is generally possible to discern statistically these recurring oscillations from the general trend toward an increase in the amount of capital invested and the quantity of products turned out. It is impossible to discover any rhythmical fluctuation in the general trend itself. 9. The Market Economy as Affected by the Recurrence of the Trade Cycle the popularity of inflation and credit expansion, the ultimate source of the repeated attempts to render people prosperous by credit expansion, and thus the cause of the cyclical fluctuations of business, manifests itself clearly in the customary terminology. The boom is called good business, prosperity, and upswing. Its unavoidable aftermath, the readjustment of conditions to the real data of the market, is called crisis, slump, bad business, depression. People rebel against the insight that the disturbing element is to be seen in the malinvestment and the overconsumption of the boom period, and that such an artificially induced boom is doomed. They are looking for the philosopher's stone to make it last. It has been pointed out already in what respect we are free to call an improvement in the quality and an increase in the quantity of products economic progress. If we apply this yardstick to the various phases of the cyclical fluctuations of business, we must call the boom retrogression and the depression progress. The boom squanders through malinvestment scarce factors of production, and reduces the stock available through overconsumption. Its alleged blessings are paid for by impoverishment. The depression, on the other hand, is the way back to a state of affairs in which all factors of production are employed for the best possible satisfaction of the most urgent needs of the consumers. Desperate attempts have been made to find in the boom some positive contribution to economic progress. Stress has been laid upon the role forced saving plays in fostering capital accumulation. The argument is vain. 
It has been shown already that it is very questionable whether forced saving can ever achieve more than to counterbalance a part of the capital consumption generated by the boom. If those praising the allegedly beneficial effects of forced saving were consistent, they would advocate a fiscal system subsidizing the rich out of taxes collected from people with modest incomes. The forced saving achieved by this method would provide a net increase in the amount of capital available, without simultaneously bringing about capital consumption of a much greater size. Advocates of credit expansion have furthermore emphasized that some of the malinvestments made in the boom later become profitable. These investments, they say, were made too early, that is, at a date when the state of the supply of capital goods and the valuations of the consumers did not yet allow their construction. However, the havoc caused was not too bad, as these projects would have been executed anyway at a later date. It may be admitted that this description is adequate with regard to some instances of malinvestment induced by a boom but nobody would dare to assert that the statement is correct with regard to all projects whose execution has been encouraged by the illusions created by the easy money policy. However this may be, it cannot influence the consequences of the boom, and cannot undo or deaden the ensuing depression. The effects of the malinvestment appear without regard to whether or not these malinvestments will appear as sound investments at a later time, under changed conditions. When, in 1845, a railroad was constructed in England, which would not have been constructed in the absence of credit expansion, Conditions in the following years were not affected by the prospect that in 1870 or 1880 the capital goods required for its construction would be available. The gain which later resulted from the fact that the railroad concerned did not have to be built by a fresh expenditure of capital and labor was, in 1847, no compensation for the losses incurred by its premature construction. The boom produces impoverishment, but still more disastrous are its moral ravages. It makes people despondent and dispirited. The more optimistic they were under the illusory prosperity of the boom, the greater is their despair and their feeling of frustration. The individual is always ready to ascribe his good luck to his own efficiency, and to take it as a well-deserved reward for his talent, application, and probity. But reverses of fortune he always charges to other people, and most of all to the absurdity of social and political institutions. He does not blame the authorities for having fostered the boom. He reviles them for the necessary collapse. In the opinion of the public, more inflation and more credit expansion are the only remedy against the evils which inflation and credit expansion have brought about. Here, they say, are plants and farms whose capacity to produce is either not used at all or not to their full extent. Here are piles of unsaleable commodities and hosts of unemployed workers. But here are also masses of people who would be lucky if they only could satisfy their wants more amply. All that is lacking is credit. 
Additional credit would enable the entrepreneur to resume or to expand production. The unemployed would find jobs again and could buy the products. This reasoning seems plausible. Nonetheless, it is utterly wrong. If commodities cannot be sold and workers cannot find jobs, the reason can only be that the prices and wages asked are too high. He who wants to sell his inventories or his capacity to work must reduce his demand until he finds a buyer. Such is the law of the market. Such is the device by means of which the market directs every individual's activities into those lines in which they can best contribute to the satisfaction of the wants of the consumers. The malinvestments of the boom have misplaced inconvertible factors of production in some lines at the expense of other lines in which they were more urgently needed. There is disproportion in the allocation of non-convertible factors to the various branches of industry. This disproportion can be remedied only by the accumulation of new capital and its employment in those branches in which it is most urgently required. This is a slow process. While it is in progress, it is impossible to utilize fully the productive capacity of some plants for which the complementary production facilities are lacking. It is vain to object that there is also unused capacity of plants turning out goods whose specific character is low. The slack in the sale of these goods, it is said, cannot be explained by disproportionality in the capital equipment of various branches. They can be used and are needed for many different employments. This, too, is an error. If steel and iron works, copper mines and sawmills cannot be operated to their full capacity, the reason can only be that there are not enough buyers on the market ready to purchase their whole output at prices which cover the costs of their current exploitation. As the variable costs can merely consist in prices of other products and in wages, and as the same is valid with regard to the prices of these other products, this always means that wage rates are too high to provide all those eager to work with jobs and to employ the inconvertible equipment to the full limits drawn by the requirement that non-specific capital goods and labor should not be withdrawn from employments in which they fill more urgent needs. Out of the collapse of the boom, there is only one way back to a state of affairs in which progressive accumulation of capital safeguards a steady improvement of material well-being. New saving must accumulate the capital goods needed for a harmonious equipment of all branches of production with the capital required. One must provide the capital goods lacking in those branches which were unduly neglected in the boom. Wage rates must drop. People must restrict their consumption temporarily until the capital wasted by malinvestment is restored. Those who dislike these hardships of the readjustment period must abstain in time from credit expansion. There is no use in interfering by means of a new credit expansion with the process of readjustment. 
This would, at best, only interrupt, disturb, and prolong the curative process of the depression, if not bring about a new boom with all its inevitable consequences. The process of readjustment, even in the absence of any new credit expansion, is delayed by the psychological effects of disappointment and frustration. People are slow to free themselves from the self-deception of delusive prosperity. Businessmen try to continue unprofitable projects. They shut their eyes to an insight that hurts. The workers delay reducing their claims to the level required by the state of the market. They want, if possible, to avoid lowering their standard of living and changing their occupation and their dwelling place. People are the more discouraged the greater their optimism was in the days of the upswing. They have, for the moment, lost self-confidence and the spirit of enterprise to such an extent that they even fail to take advantage of good opportunities. But the worst is that people are incorrigible. After a few years, they embark anew upon credit expansion, and the old story repeats itself. The role played by unemployed factors of production in the first stages of a boom There are in the changing economy always unsold inventories, exceeding those quantities which, for technical reasons, must be kept in stock. Unemployed workers and unused capacity of inconvertible production facilities. The system is moving toward a state in which there will be neither unemployed workers nor surplus inventories. In the evenly rotating economy, also, there may be unused capacity of inconvertible equipment. Its non-utilization does not disturb the equilibrium any more than the fallowness of submarginal soil. But, as the appearance of new data continually diverts the course toward a new goal, the conditions of the evenly rotating economy are never realized. The presence of unused capacity of inconvertible investments is an outgrowth of errors committed in the past. The assumptions made by the investors were, as later events proved, not correct. The market asks more intensively for other goods than for those which these plants can turn out. The piling up of excessive inventories and the catalactic unemployment of workers are speculative. The owner of the stock refuses to sell at the market price because he hopes to obtain a higher price at a later date. The unemployed worker refuses to change his occupation or his residence or to content himself with lower pay because he hopes to obtain at a later date a job with higher pay in the place of his residence and in the branch of business he likes best. Both hesitate to adjust their claims to the present situation of the market, because they wait for a change in the data which will alter conditions to their advantage. Their hesitation is one of the reasons why the system has not reached the state of the evenly rotating economy. The advocates of credit expansion argue that what is wanted is more fiduciary media, Then the plants will work at full capacity, the inventories will be sold at prices their owners consider satisfactory, and the unemployed will get jobs at wages they consider satisfactory. 
This very popular doctrine implies that the rise in prices brought about by the additional fiduciary media would at the same time and to the same extent affect all other commodities and services, while the owners of the excessive inventories and the unemployed workers would content themselves with those nominal prices and wages they are asking, in vain, of course, today. For if this were to happen, the real prices and the real wage rates obtained by these owners of unsold inventories and unemployed workers would drop, in proportion to the prices of other commodities and services, to the height to which they must drop in order to find buyers and employers. The course of the boom is not substantially affected by the fact that at its eve there are unused capacity, unsold surplus inventories, and unemployed workers. Let us assume that there are unused facilities for the mining of copper, unsold piles of copper, and unemployed workers of copper mines. The price of copper is at a level at which mining does not pay for some mines. Their workers are discharged. There are speculators who abstain from selling their stocks. What is needed in order to make these mines profitable again, to give jobs to the unemployed, and to sell the piles without forcing prices down below costs of production, is an increment P in the amount of capital goods available large enough to make possible such an increase in investment and in the size of production and consumption that an adequate rise in the demand for copper ensues. If, however, this increment P does not appear, and the entrepreneurs, deceived by the credit expansion, nevertheless act as if P had really been available, Conditions on the copper market, while the boom lasts, are as if P had really been added to the amount of capital goods available. But everything that has been predicated about the inevitable consequences of credit expansion fits this case, too. The only difference is that, as far as copper is concerned, the inappropriate expansion of production need not be achieved by the withdrawal of capital and labor from employments in which they would better have filled the wants of the consumers. As far as copper is concerned, the new boom encounters a piece of malinvestment of capital and malemployment of labor already effected in a previous boom which the process of readjustment has not yet absorbed. Thus it becomes obvious how vain it is to justify a new credit expansion by referring to unused capacity, unsold, or, as people say incorrectly, unsaleable stocks, and unemployed workers. The beginning of a new credit expansion runs across remainders of preceding malinvestment and malemployment, not yet obliterated in the course of the readjustment process, and seemingly remedies the faults involved. In fact, however, this is merely an interruption of the process of readjustment and of the return to sound conditions. The existence of unused capacity and unemployment is not a valid argument against the correctness of the circulation credit theory. 
the belief of the advocates of credit expansion and inflation that abstention from further credit expansion and inflation would perpetuate the depression is utterly false. The remedies these authors suggest would not make the boom last forever. They would merely upset the process of recovery. The Fallacies of the Non-Monetary Explanations of the Trade Cycle In dealing with the futile attempts to explain the cyclical fluctuations of business by a non-monetary doctrine, one point must first of all be stressed, which has hitherto been unduly neglected. There were schools of thought for whom interest was merely a price paid for obtaining the disposition of a quantity of money, or money substitutes. From this belief, they quite logically drew the inference that abolishing the scarcity of money and money substitutes would abolish interest altogether, and result in the gratuitousness of credit. If, however, one does not endorse this view and comprehends the nature of originary interest, a problem presents itself, the treatment of which one must not evade. An additional supply of credit brought about by an increase in the quantity of money or fiduciary media has certainly the power to lower the gross market rate of interest. If interest is not merely a monetary phenomenon, and consequently cannot be lastingly lowered or brushed away by any increase, however large, in the supply of money and fiduciary media, it devolves upon economics to show how the height of the rate of interest conforming to the state of the market's non-monetary data re-establishes itself. It must explain what kind of process removes the cash-induced deviation of the market rate from that state which is consonant with the ratio in people's valuation of present and future goods. If economics were at a loss to achieve this, it would implicitly admit that interest is a monetary phenomenon and could even disappear completely in the course of changes in the money relation. For the non-monetary explanations of the trade cycle, the experience that there are recurrent depressions is the primary thing. Their champions first do not see in their scheme of the sequence of economic events any clue which could suggest a satisfactory interpretation of these enigmatic disorders. They desperately search for a makeshift in order to patch it on to their teachings as an alleged cycle theory. The case is different with the monetary or circulation credit theory. Modern monetary theory has finally cleared away all notions of an alleged neutrality of money. It has proved irrefutably that there are in the market economy factors operating about which a doctrine ignorant of the driving force of money has nothing to say. The catalactic system that involves the knowledge of money's non-neutrality and driving force presses the questions of how changes in the money relation affect the rate of interest first in the short run and later in the long run. The system would be defective if it could not answer these questions. It would be contradictory if it were to provide an answer which would not simultaneously explain the cyclical fluctuations of trade. Even if there had never been such things as fiduciary media and circulation credit, 
modern catalactics would have been forced to raise the problem concerning the relations between changes in the money relation and the rate of interest. It has been mentioned already that every non-monetary explanation of the cycle is bound to admit that an increase in the quantity of money, or fiduciary media, is an indispensable condition of the emergence of a boom. It is obvious that a general tendency of prices to rise, which is not caused by a general drop in production and in the supply of commodities offered for sale, cannot appear if the supply of money, in the broader sense, has not increased. Now we can see that those fighting the monetary explanation are also forced to resort to the theory they slander for a second reason. For this theory alone answers the question of how an inflow of additional money and fiduciary media affects the loan market and the market rate of interest. Only those for whom interest is merely the outgrowth of an institutionally conditioned scarcity of money can dispense with an implicit acknowledgment of the circulation credit theory of the cycle. This explains why no critic has ever advanced any tenable objection against this theory. The fanaticism with which the supporters of all these non-monetary doctrines refuse to acknowledge their errors is, of course, a display of political bias. The Marxians have inaugurated the usage of interpreting the commercial crisis as an inherent evil of capitalism, as the necessary outgrowth of its anarchy of production. The non-Marxian socialists and the interventionists are no less anxious to demonstrate that the market economy cannot avoid the return of depressions. They are the more eager to assail the monetary theory, as currency and credit manipulation is today the main instrument by means of which the anti-capitalist governments are intent upon establishing government omnipotence. The attempts to connect business depressions with cosmic influences, the most remarkable of which was William Stanley Jevons' sunspot theory, failed utterly. The market economy has succeeded in a fairly satisfactory way in adjusting production and marketing to all the natural conditions of human life and its environment. It is quite arbitrary to assume that there is just one natural fact, namely allegedly rhythmic harvest variations, with which the market economy does not know how to cope. Why do entrepreneurs fail to recognize the fact of crop fluctuations and to adjust business activities in such a way as to discount their disastrous effects upon their plans? Guided by the Marxian slogan, Anarchy of Production, the present-day non-monetary cycle doctrines explain the cyclical fluctuations of trade in terms of a tendency, allegedly inherent in the capitalist economy, to develop disproportionately in the size of investments made in various branches of industry. Yet even these disproportionality doctrines do not contest the fact that every businessman is eager to avoid such mistakes, which must bring him serious financial losses. The essence of the activities of entrepreneurs and capitalists is precisely not to embark upon projects which they consider unprofitable. 
If one assumes that there prevails a tendency for businessmen to fail in these endeavors, one implies that all businessmen are short-sighted. They are too dull to avoid certain pitfalls, and thus blunder again and again in their conduct of affairs. The whole of society has to foot the bill for the shortcomings of the thick-headed speculators, promoters, and entrepreneurs. Now it is obvious that men are fallible, and businessmen are certainly not free from this human weakness. But one should not forget that on the market a process of selection is in continual operation. There prevails an unceasing tendency to weed out the less efficient entrepreneurs, that is, those who fail in their endeavors to anticipate correctly the future demands of the consumers. If one group of entrepreneurs produces commodities in excess of the demand of the consumers, and consequently cannot sell these goods at remunerative prices and suffers losses, other groups who produce those things for which the public scrambles make all the greater profits. Some sectors of business are distressed, while others thrive. No general depression of trade can emerge. But the proponents of the doctrines we have to deal with argue differently. They assume that not only the whole entrepreneurial class, but all of the people, are struck with blindness. As the entrepreneurial class is not a closed social order to which access is denied to outsiders, as every enterprising man is virtually in a position to challenge those who already belong to the class of entrepreneurs, as the history of capitalism provides innumerable examples of penniless newcomers who brilliantly succeeded in embarking upon the production of those goods which, according to their own judgment, were fitted to satisfy the most urgent needs of consumers, the assumption that all entrepreneurs regularly fall prey to certain errors tacitly implies that all practical men lack intelligence. It implies that nobody who is engaged in business, and nobody who considers engaging in business if some opportunity is offered to him by the shortcomings of those already engaged in it, is shrewd enough to understand the real state of the market. But, on the other hand, the theorists, who are not themselves active in the conduct of affairs, and merely philosophize about other people's actions, consider themselves smart enough to discover the fallacies leading astray those doing business. These omniscient professors are never deluded by the errors which cloud the judgment of everyone else. They know precisely what is wrong with private enterprise. Their claims to be invested with dictatorial powers to control business are therefore fully justified. The most amazing thing about these doctrines is that they furthermore imply that businessmen, in their littleness of mind, obstinately cling to their erroneous procedures in spite of the fact that the scholars have long since unmasked their faults. Although every textbook explodes them, the businessmen cannot help repeating them. There is manifestly no means to prevent the recurrence of economic depression other than to entrust, in accordance with Plato's utopian ideas, supreme power to the philosophers. 
Let us examine briefly the two most popular varieties of these disproportionality doctrines. There is first the durable goods doctrine. These goods retain their serviceableness for some time. As long as their life period lasts, the buyer who has acquired a piece abstains from replacing it by the purchase of a new one. Thus, once all people have made their purchases, the demand for new products dwindles. Business becomes bad. A revival is possible only when, after the lapse of some time, the old houses, cars, refrigerators, and the like are worn out, and their owners must buy new ones. However, businessmen are as a rule more provident than this doctrine assumes. They are intent upon adjusting the size of their production to the anticipated size of consumers' demand. The bakers take account of the fact that every day a housewife needs a new loaf of bread, and the manufacturers of coffins take into account the fact that the total annual sale of coffins cannot exceed the number of people deceased during this period. The machine industry reckons with the average life of its products no less than do the tailors, the shoemakers, the manufacturers of motor cars, radio sets and refrigerators, and the construction firms. There are, to be sure, always promoters who, in a mood of deceptive optimism, are prone to overexpand their enterprises. In the pursuit of such projects, they snatch away factors of production from other plants of the same industry and from other branches of industry. Thus, their overexpansion results in a relative restriction of output in other fields. One branch goes on expanding while others shrink until the unprofitability of the former and the profitability of the latter rearranges conditions. Both the preceding boom and the following slump concern only a part of business. The second variety of these disproportionality doctrines is known as the acceleration principle. A temporary rise in the demand for a certain commodity results in increased production of the commodity concerned. If, then, demand later drops again, the investments made for this expansion of production appear as malinvestments. This becomes especially pernicious in the field of durable producer's goods. If the demand for the consumer's good, A, increases by 10%, business increases the equipment, P, required for its production by 10%. The resulting rise in the demand for P is the more momentous in proportion to the previous demand for P. The longer the duration of serviceableness of a piece of P is, and the smaller, consequently, the previous demand for the replacement of worn-out pieces of P was. If the life of a piece of P is ten years, the annual demand for P for replacement was ten percent of the stock of P previously employed by the industry. The rise of ten percent in the demand for A doubles, therefore, the demand for P, and results in a one hundred percent expansion in the equipment R needed for the production of P. If, then, the demand for A stops increasing, 50% of the production capacity of R remains idle. 
If the annual increase in the demand for A drops from 10% to 5%, 25% of the production capacity of R cannot be used. The fundamental error of this doctrine is that it considers entrepreneurial activities as a blindly automatic response to the momentary state of demand. Whenever demand increases and renders a branch of business more profitable, production facilities are supposed instantly to expand in proportion. This view is untenable. Entrepreneurs often err. They pay heavily for their errors. But whoever acted in the way the acceleration principle describes would not be an entrepreneur, but a soulless automaton. Yet the real entrepreneur is a speculator, a man eager to utilize his opinion about the future structure of the market for business operations, promising profits. It is noteworthy that the same term, speculator, is employed to signify the premeditation and the ensuing actions of the promoters and entrepreneurs, and the purely academic reasoning of theorists that does not directly result in any action. This specific anticipative understanding of the conditions of the uncertain future defies any rules and systematization. It can be neither taught nor learned. If it were different, everybody could embark upon entrepreneurship with the same prospect of success. What distinguishes the successful entrepreneur and promoter from other people is precisely the fact that he does not let himself be guided by what was and is, but arranges his affairs on the ground of his opinion about the future. He sees the past and the present as other people do, but he judges the future in a different way. In his actions he is directed by an opinion about the future which deviates from those held by the crowd. The impulse of his actions is that he appraises the factors of production and the future prices of the commodities which can be produced out of them in a different way from other people. If the present structure of prices renders very profitable the business of those who are today selling the articles concerned, their production will expand only to the extent that entrepreneurs believe that the favorable market constellation will last long enough to make new investments pay. If entrepreneurs do not expect this, even very high profits of the enterprises already operating will not bring about an expansion. It is exactly this reluctance of the capitalists and entrepreneurs to invest in lines which they consider unprofitable that is violently criticized by people who do not comprehend the operation of the market economy. Technocratically-minded engineers complain that the supremacy of the profit motive prevents consumers from being amply supplied with all those goods with which technological knowledge could provide them. Demagogues cry out against the greed of capitalists intent upon preserving scarcity. A satisfactory explanation of business fluctuations must not be built upon the fact that individual firms or groups of firms misjudge the future state of the market, and therefore make bad investments. 
The objective of the trade cycle theory is the general upswing of business activities, the propensity to expand production in all branches of industry, and the following general depression. These phenomena cannot be brought about by the fact that increased profits in some branches of business result in their expansion and a corresponding over-proportional investment in the industries manufacturing the equipment needed for such an expansion. It is a very well-known fact that the more the boom progresses, the harder it becomes to buy machines and other equipment. The plants producing these things are overloaded with orders. Their customers must wait a long time until the machines ordered are delivered. This clearly shows that the producers' goods industries are not so quick in the expansion of their own production facilities as the acceleration principle assumes. But even if, for the sake of argument, we were ready to admit that capitalists and entrepreneurs behave in the way the disproportionality doctrines describe, it remains inexplicable how they could go on in the absence of credit expansion. The striving after such additional investments raises the prices of the complementary factors of production and the rate of interest on the loan market. These effects would curb the expansionist tendencies very soon, if there were no credit expansion. The supporters of the disproportionality doctrines refer to certain occurrences in the field of farming as a confirmation of their assertion concerning the inherent lack of provision on the part of private business. However, it is impermissible to demonstrate characteristic features of free competitive enterprise as operating in the market economy by pointing to conditions in the sphere of medium size and small farming. In many countries, this sphere is institutionally removed from the supremacy of the market and the consumers. Government interference is eager to protect the farmer against the vicissitudes of the market. These farmers do not operate in a free market. They are privileged and pampered by various devices. The orbit of their production activities is a reservation, as it were, in which technological backwardness, narrow-minded obstinacy, and entrepreneurial inefficiency are artificially preserved at the expense of the non-agricultural strata of the people, if they blunder in their conduct of affairs, the government forces the consumers, the taxpayers, and the mortgagees to foot the bill. It is true that there is such a thing as the corn hog cycle and analogous happenings in the production of other farm products. But the recurrence of such cycles is due to the fact that the penalties which the market applies against inefficient and clumsy entrepreneurs do not affect a great part of the farmers. These farmers are not answerable for their actions because they are the pet children of governments and politicians. If it were not so, they would long since have gone bankrupt, and their former farms would be operated by more intelligent people. Chapter 19. The Rate of Interest 1. The Phenomenon of Interest It has been shown that time preference is a category inherent in every human action. Time preference manifests itself in the phenomenon of originary interest, 
that is, the discount of future goods as against present goods. Interest is not merely interest on capital. Interest is not the specific income derived from the utilization of capital goods. The correspondence between three factors of production, labor, capital, and land, and three classes of income, wages, profit, and rent, as taught by the classical economists, is untenable. Rent is not the specific revenue from land. Rent is a general catalactic phenomenon. It plays in the field of labor and capital goods the same role it plays in the yield of land. Furthermore, there is no homogeneous source of income that could be called profit in the sense in which the classical economists applied this term. Profit, in the sense of entrepreneurial profit, and interest are no more characteristic of capital than they are of land. The prices of consumers' goods are, by the interplay of the forces operating on the market, a portion to the various complementary factors cooperating in their production. As the consumers' goods are present goods, while the factors of production are means for the production of future goods, and as present goods are valued higher than future goods of the same kind and quantity, the sum thus apportioned, even in the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy, falls behind the present price of the consumer's goods concerned. This difference is the originary interest. It is not specifically connected with any of the three classes of factors of production which the classical economists distinguished. Entrepreneurial profit and loss are produced by changes in the data and the resulting price changes which occur in the passing of the period of production. Naive reasoning does not see any problem in the current revenue derived from hunting, fishing, cattle breeding, forestry, and agriculture. Nature generates deer, fish, and cattle, and makes them grow causes the cows to give milk and the chickens to lay eggs, the trees to put on wood and to bear fruit, and the seeds to shoot into ears. He who has a title to appropriate for himself this recurring wealth enjoys a steady income. Like a stream which continually carries new water, the stream of income flows continually and conveys again and again new wealth. The whole process is plainly a natural phenomenon. But for the economist, a problem is presented in the determination of prices for land, cattle, and all the rest. If future goods were not bought and sold at a discount as against present goods, the buyer of land would have to pay a price which equals the sum of all future net revenues, and which would leave nothing for a current reiterated income. The yearly recurring proceeds of the owners of land and cattle are not marked by any characteristic which would catalactically distinguish them from the proceeds stemming from produced factors of production, which are used up sooner or later in the processes of production. The power of disposal over a piece of land is the control of this field's cooperation in the production of all the fruit which can ever be grown on it. 
and the power of disposal over a mine is the control of its cooperation in the extraction of all the minerals which can ever be brought to the surface from it. In the same way, the ownership of a machine or a bale of cotton is the control of its cooperation in the manufacture of all goods which are produced with its cooperation. The fundamental fallacy implied in all the productivity and use approaches to the problem of interest was that they traced back the phenomenon of interest to these productive services rendered by the factors of production. However, the serviceableness of the factors of production determines the prices paid for them, not interest. These prices exhaust the whole difference between the productivity of a process aided by a definite factor's cooperation and that of a process lacking this cooperation. The difference between the sum of the prices of the complementary factors of production and the products, which emerges even in the absence of changes in the market data concerned, is an outcome of the higher valuation of present goods as compared with future goods. As production goes on, the factors of production are transformed, or ripen, into present goods of a higher value. This increment is the source of specific proceeds flowing into the hands of the owners of the factors of production, of originary interest. The owners of the material factors of production, as distinct from the pure entrepreneurs of the imaginary construction of an integration of catalactic functions, harvest two catalactically different items. The prices paid for the productive cooperation of the factors they control on the one hand, and interest on the other hand. These two things must not be confused. It is not permissible to refer in the explanation of interest to the services rendered by the factors of production in the turning out of products. Interest is a homogeneous phenomenon. There are no different sources of interest. Interest on durable goods and interest on consumption credit are, like other kinds of interest, an outgrowth of the higher valuation of present goods as against future goods. 2. Originary Interest Originary interest is the ratio of the value assigned to want satisfaction in the immediate future and the value assigned to want satisfaction in remoter periods of the future. It manifests itself in the market economy in the discount of future goods as against present goods. It is a ratio of commodity prices, not a price in itself. There prevails a tendency toward the equalization of this ratio for all commodities. In the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy, the rate of originary interest is the same for all commodities. Originary interest is not the price paid for the services of capital. The higher productivity of more time-consuming roundabout methods of production, which is referred to by Bumbaverk and by some later economists in the explanation of interest, does not explain the phenomenon. 
It is, on the contrary, the phenomenon of originary interest that explains why less time-consuming methods of production are resorted to, in spite of the fact that more time-consuming methods would render a higher output per unit of input. Moreover, the phenomenon of originary interest explains why pieces of usable land can be sold and bought at finite prices. If the future services which a piece of land can render were to be valued in the same way in which its present services are valued, no finite price would be high enough to impel its owner to sell it. Land could neither be bought nor sold against definite amounts of money, nor bartered against goods which can render only a finite number of services. Pieces of land would be bartered only against other pieces of land. A superstructure that can yield during a period of ten years an annual revenue of one hundred dollars would be priced, apart from the soil on which it is built, at the beginning of this period at one thousand dollars, at the beginning of the second year at nine hundred dollars, and so on. Originary interest is not a price determined on the market by the interplay of the demand for and the supply of capital or capital goods. Its height does not depend on the extent of this demand and supply. It is rather the rate of originary interest that determines both the demand for and the supply of capital and capital goods. It determines how much of the available supply of goods is to be devoted to consumption in the immediate future, and how much to provision for remoter periods of the future. People do not save and accumulate capital because there is interest. Interest is neither the impetus to saving, nor the reward or the compensation granted for abstaining from immediate consumption. It is the ratio in the mutual valuation of present goods as against future goods. The loan market does not determine the rate of interest. It adjusts the rate of interest on loans to the rate of originary interest as manifested in the discount of future goods. Originary interest is a category of human action. It is operative in any valuation of external things, and can never disappear. If one day the state of affairs were to return, which was actual at the close of the first millennium of the Christian era, when people believed that the ultimate end of all earthly things was impending, men would stop providing for future secular wants. The factors of production would, in their eyes, become useless and worthless, the discount of future goods as against present goods would not vanish. It would, on the contrary, increase beyond all measure. On the other hand, the fading away of originary interest would mean that people do not care at all for want satisfaction in nearer periods of the future. It would mean that they prefer to an apple available today tomorrow, in one year, or in ten years, two apples available in a thousand or ten thousand years. We cannot even think of a world in which originary interest would not exist as an inexorable element in every kind of action. 
Whether there is or is not division of labor and social cooperation, and whether society is organized on the basis of private or of public control of the means of production, originary interest is always present. In a socialist commonwealth, its role would not differ from that in the market economy. Bermba-Werk has once for all unmasked the fallacies of the naive productivity explanations of interest, that is, of the idea that interest is the expression of the physical productivity of factors of production. However, Bermba-Werk has himself based his own theory, to some extent, on the productivity approach. In referring in his explanation to the technological superiority of more time-consuming, roundabout processes of production, he avoids the crudity of the naive productivity fallacies. But in fact, he returns, although in a subtler form, to the productivity approach. Those later economists who, neglecting the time-preference idea, have stressed exclusively the productivity idea contained in Bermba-Werk's theory, cannot help concluding that originary interest must disappear if men were one day to reach a state of affairs in which no further lengthening of the period of production could bring about a further increase in productivity. This is, however, utterly wrong. Originary interest cannot disappear as long as there is scarcity, and therefore, action. As long as the world is not transformed into a land of cocaine, men are faced with scarcity and must act and economize. They are forced to choose between satisfaction in nearer and in remoter periods of the future, because neither for the former nor for the latter can full contentment be attained. Then a change in the employment of factors of production which withdraws such factors from their employment for want satisfaction in the nearer future, and devotes them to want satisfaction in the remoter future, must necessarily impair the state of satisfaction in the nearer future, and improve it in the remoter future. If we were to assume that this is not the case, we should become embroiled in insoluble contradictions. We may, at best, think of a state of affairs in which technological knowledge and skill have reached a point beyond which no further progress is possible for mortal men. No new processes increasing the output per unit of input can henceforth be invented. But if we suppose that some factors of production are scarce, we must not assume that all processes which, apart from the time they absorb, are the most productive ones, are fully utilized, and that no process rendering a smaller output per unit of input is resorted to merely because of the fact that it produces its final result sooner than other physically more productive processes. Scarcity of factors of production means that we are in a position to draft plans for the improvement of our well-being, the realization of which is unfeasible because of the insufficient quantity of the means available. It is precisely the unfeasibility of such desirable improvements that constitutes the element of scarcity. 
The reasoning of the modern supporters of the productivity approach is misled by the connotations of Bermbaverk's term roundabout methods of production and the idea of technological improvement which it suggests. However, if there is scarcity, there must always be an unused technological opportunity to improve the state of well-being by a lengthening of the period of production in some branches of industry, regardless of whether or not the state of technological knowledge has changed. If the means are scarce, if the praxeological correlation of ends and means still exists, there are, by logical necessity, unsatisfied wants with regard both to nearer and to remoter periods of the future. There are always goods the procurement of which we must forego, because the way that leads to their production is too long and would prevent us from satisfying more urgent needs. The fact that we do not provide more amply for the future is the outcome of a weighing of satisfaction in nearer periods of the future against satisfaction in remoter periods of the future. The ratio which is the outcome of this valuation is originary interest. In such a world of perfect technological knowledge, a promoter drafts a plan, A., according to which a hotel in picturesque but not easily accessible mountain districts and the roads leading to it should be built. In examining the practicability of this plan, he discovers that the means available are not sufficient for its execution. Calculating the prospects of the profitability of the investment, he comes to the conclusion that the expected proceeds are not great enough to cover the costs of material and labor to be expended, and interest on the capital to be invested. He renounces the execution of Project A, and embarks instead upon the realization of another plan, B. According to Plan B, the hotel is to be erected in a more easily accessible location, which does not offer all the advantages of the picturesque landscape which Plan A had selected, but in which it can be built either with lower costs of construction or finished in a shorter time. If no interest on the capital invested were to enter into the calculation, the illusion could arise that the state of the market data, supply of capital goods and the valuations of the public, allows for the execution of Plan A. However, the realization of Plan A would withdraw scarce factors of production from employments in which they could satisfy once considered more urgent by the consumers. It would mean a manifest malinvestment, a squandering of the means available. A lengthening of the period of production can increase the quantity of output per unit of input, or produce goods which cannot be produced at all within a shorter period of production. But it is not true that the imputation of the value of this additional wealth to the capital goods required for the lengthening of the period of production generates interest. If one were to assume this, one would relapse into the crassest errors of the productivity approach, irrefutably exploded by Bermba Verk. 
the contribution of the complementary factors of production to the result of the process is the reason for their being considered as valuable. It explains the prices paid for them and is fully taken into account in the determination of these prices. No residuum is left that is not accounted for and could explain interest. It has been asserted that in the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy, no interest would appear. However, it can be shown that this assertion is incompatible with the assumptions on which the construction of the evenly rotating economy is based. We begin with the distinction between two classes of saving, plain saving and capitalist saving. Plain saving is merely the piling up of consumers' goods for later consumption. Capitalist saving is the accumulation of goods which are designed for an improvement of production processes. The aim of plain saving is later consumption. It is merely postponement of consumption. Sooner or later the goods accumulated will be consumed, and nothing will be left. The aim of capitalist saving is, first, an improvement in the productivity of effort. It accumulates capital goods which are employed for further production and are not merely reserves for later consumption. The boon derived from plain saving is later consumption of the stock not instantly consumed but accumulated for later use. The boon derived from capitalist saving is the increase of the quantity of goods produced or the production of goods which could not be produced at all without its aid. In constructing the image of an evenly rotating, static economy, economists disregard the process of capital accumulation. The capital goods are given and remain as, according to the underlying assumptions, no changes occur in the data. There is neither accumulation of new capital through saving nor consumption of capital available through a surplus of consumption over income, that is, current production minus the funds required for the maintenance of capital, it is now our task to demonstrate that these assumptions are incompatible with the idea that there is no interest. There is no need to dwell in this reasoning upon plain saving. The objective of plain saving is to provide for a future in which the saver could possibly be less amply supplied than in the present. Yet one of the fundamental assumptions characterizing the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy is that the future does not differ at all from the present, that the actors are fully aware of this fact and act accordingly. Hence, in the frame of this construction, no room is left for the phenomenon of plain saving. It is different with the fruit of capitalist saving, the accumulated stock of capital goods. There is in the evenly rotating economy neither saving and accumulation of additional capital goods, nor eating up of already existing capital goods. Both phenomena would amount to a change in the data, and would thus disturb the even rotation of the imaginary system. Now, the magnitude of saving and capital accumulation in the past, 
that is, in the period preceding the establishment of the evenly rotating economy, was adjusted to the height of the rate of interest. If, with the establishment of the conditions of the evenly rotating economy, the owners of the capital goods were no longer to receive any interest, the conditions which were operative in the allocation of the available stocks of goods to the satisfaction of wants in the various periods of the future would be upset. The altered state of affairs requires a new allocation. Also, in the evenly rotating economy, the difference in the valuation of want satisfaction in various periods of the future cannot disappear. Also, in the frame of this imaginary construction, people will assign a higher value to an apple available today as against an apple available in ten or a hundred years. If the capitalist no longer receives interest, the balance between satisfaction in nearer and remoter periods of the future is disarranged. The fact that a capitalist has maintained his capital at just $100,000 was conditioned by the fact that 100,000 present dollars were equal to $105,000 available 12 months later. These $5,000 were, in his eyes, sufficient to outweigh the advantages to be expected from an instantaneous consumption of a part of this sum. If interest payments are eliminated, capital consumption ensues. This is the essential deficiency of the static system as Schumpeter depicts it. It is not sufficient to assume that the capital equipment of such a system has been accumulated in the past, that it is now available to the extent of this previous accumulation, and is henceforth unalterably maintained at this level. We must also assign in the frame of this imaginary system a role to the operation of forces which bring about such a maintenance. If one eliminates the capitalist's role as receiver of interest, one replaces it by the capitalist's role as consumer of capital. There is no longer any reason why the owner of capital goods should abstain from employing them for consumption. Under the assumption implied in the imaginary construction of static conditions, the evenly rotating economy, there is no need to keep them in reserve for rainy days. But even if, inconsistently enough, we were to assume that a part of them is devoted to this purpose, and therefore withheld from current consumption, at least that part of capital will be consumed, which corresponds to the amount that capitalist saving exceeds plain saving. If there were no originary interest, capital goods would not be devoted to immediate consumption, and capital would not be consumed. On the contrary, under such an unthinkable and unimaginable state of affairs, there would be no consumption at all, but only saving, accumulation of capital and investment. Not the impossible disappearance of originary interest, but the abolition of payment of interest to the owners of capital would result in capital consumption. The capitalists would consume their capital goods and their capital precisely because there is originary interest, and present want satisfaction is preferred to later satisfaction. 
Therefore, there cannot be any question of abolishing interest by any institutions, laws, and devices of bank manipulation. He who wants to abolish interest will have to induce people to value an apple available in a hundred years no less than a present apple. What can be abolished by laws and decrees is merely the right of the capitalists to receive interest. But such laws would bring about capital consumption and would very soon throw mankind back into the original state of natural poverty. 3. THE HEIGHT OF INTEREST RATES In plain saving and in the capitalist saving of isolated economic actors, the difference in the valuation of want satisfaction in various periods of the future manifests itself in the extent to which people provide, in a more ample way, for nearer than for remoter periods of the future. Under the conditions of a market economy, the rate of originary interest is, provided the assumptions involved in the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy are present, equal to the ratio of a definite amount of money available today and the amount available at a later date which is considered as its equivalent. The rate of originary interest directs the investment activities of the entrepreneurs, It determines the length of waiting time and of the period of production in every branch of industry. People often raise the question of which rate of interest, a high or a low, stimulates saving and capital accumulation more, and which less. The question makes no sense. The lower the discount attached to future goods is, the lower is the rate of originary interest. People do not save more because the rate of originary interest rises, and the rate of originary interest does not drop on account of an increase in the amount of saving. Changes in the originary rates of interest and in the amount of saving are, other things, especially the institutional conditions, being equal, two aspects of the same phenomenon— the disappearance of originary interest would be tantamount to the disappearance of consumption. The increase of originary interest beyond all measure would be tantamount to the disappearance of saving and any provision for the future. The quantity of the available supply of capital goods influences neither the rate of originary interest nor the amount of further saving. Even the most plentiful supply of capital need not necessarily bring about either a lowering of the rate of originary interest or a drop in the propensity to save. The increase in capital accumulation and the per capita quota of capital invested, which is a characteristic mark of economically advanced nations, does not necessarily either lower the rate of originary interest or weaken the propensity of individuals to make additional savings. People are, in dealing with these problems, for the most part misled by comparing merely the market rates of interest as they are determined on the loan market. However, these gross rates are not merely expressive of the height of originary interest. They contain, as will be shown later, other elements besides, 
the effect of which accounts for the fact that the gross rates are, as a rule, higher in poorer countries than in richer ones. It is generally asserted that, other things being equal, the better individuals are supplied for the immediate future, the better they provide for once for the remoter future. Consequently, it is said, the amount of total saving and capital accumulation within an economic system depends on the arrangement of the population into groups of different income levels. In a society with approximate income equality, there is, it is said, less saving than in a society in which there is more inequality. There is a grain of truth in such observations. However, they are statements about psychological facts, and as such lack the universal validity and necessity inherent in praxeological statements. Moreover, the other things, the equality of which they presuppose, comprehend the various individuals' valuations, their subjective value judgments in weighing the pros and cons of immediate consumption and of postponement of consumption. There are certainly many individuals whose behavior they describe correctly, but there also are other individuals who act in a different way. The French peasants, although for the most part people of moderate wealth and income, were in the nineteenth century widely known for their parsimonious habits, while the wealthy members of the aristocracy and the heirs of huge fortunes amassed in commerce and industry were no less renowned for their profligacy. It is therefore impossible to formulate any praxeological theorem concerning the relation of the amount of capital available in the whole nation, or to individual people on the one hand, and the amount of saving or capital consumption and the height of the originary rate of interest on the other hand. The allocation of scarce resources to want satisfaction in various periods of the future is determined by value judgments, and indirectly by all those factors which constitute the individuality of the acting man. 4. Originary Interest in the Changing Economy So far we have dealt with the problem of originary interest under certain assumptions— that the turnover of goods is effected by the employment of neutral money, that saving, capital accumulation, and the determination of interest rates are not hampered by institutional obstacles, and that the whole economic process goes on in the frame of an evenly rotating economy. We shall eliminate the first two of these assumptions in the following chapter. Now we want to deal with originary interest in a changing economy. He who wants to provide for the satisfaction of future needs must correctly anticipate these needs. If he fails in this understanding of the future, his provision will prove less satisfactory or totally futile. There is no such thing as an abstract saving that could provide for all classes of want satisfaction and would be neutral with regard to changes occurring in conditions and valuations. Originary interest can, therefore, in the changing economy, never appear in a pure, unalloyed form. It is only in the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy that the mere passing of time matures originary interest, 
in the passage of time and with the progress of the process of production, more and more value accrues, as it were, to the complementary factors of production. With the termination of the process of production, the lapse of time has generated in the price of the product the full quota of originary interest. In the changing economy during the period of production, there also arise, synchronously, other changes in valuations. Some goods are valued higher than previously, some lower. These alterations are the source from which entrepreneurial profits and losses stem. Only those entrepreneurs who, in their planning, have correctly anticipated the future state of the market are in a position to reap, in selling the products, an excess over the costs of production, inclusive of net originary interest, expended. An entrepreneur who has failed in his speculative understanding of the future can sell his products, if at all, only at prices which do not cover completely his expenditures, plus originary interest on the capital invested. Like entrepreneurial profit and loss, interest is not a price but a magnitude which is to be disengaged by a particular mode of computation from the price of the products of successful business operations. The gross difference between the price at which a commodity is sold and the costs expended in its production, exclusive of interest on the capital invested, was called profit in the terminology of British classical economics. Modern economics conceives this magnitude as a complex of catalactically disparate items. The excess of gross receipts over expenditures, which the classical economists called profit, includes the price for the entrepreneur's own labor employed in the process of production, interest on the capital invested, and, finally, entrepreneurial profit proper. If such an excess has not been reaped at all in the sale of the products, the entrepreneur not only fails to get profit proper, he receives neither an equivalent for the market value of the labor he has contributed, nor interest on the capital invested. The breaking down of gross profit, in the classical sense of the term, into managerial wages, interest, and entrepreneurial profit, is not merely a device of economic theory. It developed, with progressing perfection in business practices of accountancy and calculation, in the field of commercial routine independently of the reasoning of the economists. The judicious and sensible businessman does not attach practical significance to the confused and garbled concept of profit as employed by the classical economists. His notion of costs of production includes the potential market price of his own services contributed, the interest paid on capital borrowed, and the potential interest he could earn, according to the conditions of the market, on his own capital invested in the enterprise by lending it to other people. Only the excess of proceeds over the costs so calculated is, in his eyes, entrepreneurial profit. But, of course, the present-day intentional confusion of all economic concepts is conducive to obscuring this distinction. 
Thus, in the United States, in dealing with the dividends paid by corporations, people speak of profits. The precipitation of entrepreneurial wages from the complex of all the other items included in the profit concept of classical economics presents no particular problem. It is more difficult to sunder entrepreneurial profit from originary interest. In the changing economy, interest stipulated in loan contracts is always a gross magnitude, out of which the pure rate of originary interest must be computed by a particular process of computation and analytical repartition. It has been shown already that in every act of lending, even apart from the problem of changes in the monetary unit's purchasing power, there is an element of entrepreneurial venture. The granting of credit is necessarily always an entrepreneurial speculation, which can possibly result in failure and the loss of a part or of the total amount lent. Every interest stipulated and paid in loans includes not only originary interest, but also entrepreneurial profit. This fact for a long time misled the attempts to construct a satisfactory theory of interest. It was only the elaboration of the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy that made it possible to distinguish precisely between originary interest and entrepreneurial profit and loss. 5. The Computation of Interest Originary interest is the outgrowth of valuations unceasingly fluctuating and changing. It fluctuates and changes with them. The custom of computing interest pro anno is merely commercial usage and a convenient rule of reckoning. It does not affect the height of the interest rates as determined by the market. The activities of the entrepreneurs tend toward the establishment of a uniform rate of originary interest in the whole market economy. If there turns up in one sector of the market a margin between the prices of present goods and those of future goods, which deviates from the margin prevailing in other sectors, a trend toward equalization is brought about by the striving of businessmen to enter those sectors in which this margin is higher, and to avoid those in which it is lower. The final rate of originary interest is the same in all parts of the market of the evenly rotating economy. The valuations resulting in the emergence of originary interest prefer satisfaction in a nearer period of the future to satisfaction of the same kind and extent in a remoter period of the future. Nothing would justify the assumption that this discounting of satisfaction in remoter periods progresses continuously and evenly. If we were to assume this, we would imply that the period of provision is infinite. However, the mere fact that individuals differ in their provision for future needs, and that even to the most provident actor provision beyond a definite period appears supererogatory, forbids us to think of the period of provision as infinite. The usages of the loan market must not mislead us. It is customary to stipulate a uniform rate of interest for the whole duration of a loan contract, 
and to apply a uniform rate in computing compound interest. The real determination of interest rates is independent of these and other arithmetical devices of interest computation. If the rate of interest is unalterably fixed by contract for a period of time, intervening changes in the market rate of interest are reflected in corresponding changes in the prices paid for the principal, due allowance being made for the fact that the amount of principal to be paid back at the maturity of the loan is unalterably stipulated. It does not affect the result whether one calculates with an unchanging rate of interest and changing prices of the principal, or with changing interest rates and an unchanging amount of the principal, or with changes in both magnitudes. The terms of a loan contract are not independent of the stipulated duration of the loan not only because those components of the gross rate of market interest which made it deviate from the rate of originary interest are affected by differences in the duration of the loan, but also on account of factors which bring about changes in the rate of originary interest. Loan contracts are valued and appraised differently according to the duration of the loan stipulated. Chapter 21 Work and Wages 1. Introversive Labor and Extroversive Labor A man may overcome the disutility of labor, forego the enjoyment of leisure, for various reasons. 1. He may work in order to make his mind and body strong, vigorous, and agile. The disutility of labor is not a price expended for the attainment of these goals. Overcoming it is inseparable from the contentment sought. The most conspicuous examples are genuine sport, practiced without any design for reward and social success. The search for truth and knowledge pursued for its own sake, and not as a means of improving one's own efficiency and skill in the performance of other kinds of labor aiming at other ends. Cognition does not aim at a goal beyond the act of knowing. What satisfies the thinker is thinking as such, not obtaining perfect knowledge, a goal inaccessible to man. 2. He may submit to the disutility of labor in order to serve God. He sacrifices leisure to please God, and to be rewarded in the beyond by eternal bliss, and in the earthly pilgrimage by the supreme delight which the certainty of having complied with all religious duties affords. If, however, he serves God in order to attain worldly ends, his daily bread and success in his secular affairs— his conduct does not differ substantially from other endeavors to attain mundane advantages by expending labor. Whether the theory guiding his conduct is correct, and whether his expectations will materialize, is irrelevant to the catalactic qualification of his mode of acting. It is hardly necessary to remark that comparing the craving for knowledge and the conduct of a pious life with sport and play does not imply any disparagement of either. 3. He may toil in order to avoid greater mischief. He submits to the disutility of labor in order to forget, 
to escape from depressing thoughts and to banish annoying moods. Work for him is, as it were, a perfected refinement of play. This refined playing must not be confused with the simple games of children, which are merely pleasure-producing. However, there are also other children's games. Children, too, are sophisticated enough to indulge in refined play. 4. He may work because he prefers the proceeds he can earn by working to the disutility of labor and the pleasures of leisure. The labor of the classes 1, 2, and 3 is expended because the disutility of labor in itself, and not its product, satisfies. One toils and troubles not in order to reach a goal at the termination of the march, but for the very sake of marching. The mountain climber does not want simply to reach the peak, he wants to reach it by climbing. He disdains the rack railway which would bring him to the summit more quickly and without trouble, even though the fare is cheaper than the costs incurred by climbing, for example, the guide's fee. The toil of climbing does not gratify him immediately, it involves disutility of labor, but it is precisely overcoming the disutility of labor that satisfies him. A less exerting ascent would please him not better, but less. We may call the labor of classes 1, 2, and 3 introversive labor, and distinguish it from the extroversive labor of class 4. In some cases, introversive labor may bring about, as a byproduct, as it were, results for the attainment of which other people would submit to the disutility of labor. The devout may nurse sick people for a heavenly reward. The truth-seeker, exclusively devoted to the search for knowledge, may discover a practically useful device. To this extent, introversive labor may influence the supply on the market. But, as a rule, catalactics is concerned only with extroversive labor. The psychological problems raised by introversive labor are catalactically irrelevant. Seen from the point of view of economics, introversive labor is to be qualified as consumption. Its performance as a rule requires not only the personal efforts of the individuals concerned, but also the expenditure of material factors of production, and the produce of other people's extroversive, not immediately gratifying labor that must be bought by the payment of wages. The practice of religion requires places of worship and their equipment. Sport requires diverse utensils and apparatus, trainers and coaches. All these things belong in the orbit of consumption. 2. Joy and Tedium of Labor Only extroversive, not immediately gratifying labor, is a topic of catalactic disquisition. The characteristic mark of this kind of labor is that it is performed for the sake of an end which is beyond its performance and the disutility which it involves. People work because they want to reap the produce of labor. The labor itself causes disutility. 
But apart from this disutility, which is irksome, and would enjoin upon man the urge to economize labor, even if his power to work were not limited, and he were able to perform unlimited work, special emotional phenomena sometimes appear, feelings of joy or tedium, accompanying the execution of certain kinds of labor. Both the joy and the tedium of labor are in a domain other than the disutility of labor. The joy of labor, therefore, can neither alleviate nor remove the disutility of labor. Neither must the joy of labor be confused with the immediate gratification provided by certain kinds of work. It is an attendant phenomenon which proceeds either from labor's immediate gratification, the produce or reward, or from some accessory circumstances. People do not submit to the disutility of labor for the sake of the joy which accompanies the labor, but for the sake of its immediate gratification. In fact, the joy of labor presupposes, for the most part, the disutility of the labor concerned. The sources from which the joy of labor springs are 1. The expectation of the labor's immediate gratification, the anticipation of the enjoyment of its success and yield. The toiler looks at his work as a means for the attainment of an end sought, and the progress of his work delights him as an approach toward his goal. His joy is a foretaste of the satisfaction conveyed by the immediate gratification. In the frame of social cooperation, this joy manifests itself in the contentment of being capable of holding one's ground in the social organism, and of rendering services which one's fellow men appreciate, either in buying the product or in remunerating the labor expended. The worker rejoices because he gets self-respect and the consciousness of supporting himself and his family and not being dependent on other people's mercy. 2. In the pursuit of his work, the worker enjoys the aesthetic appreciation of his skill and its product. This is not merely the contemplative pleasure of the man who views things performed by other people, it is the pride of a man who is in a position to say, I know how to make such things. This is my work. 3. Having completed a task, the worker enjoys the feeling of having successfully overcome all the toil and trouble involved. He is happy in being rid of something difficult, unpleasant, and painful, in being relieved for a certain time of the disutility of labor. His is the feeling of, I have done it. 4. Some kinds of work satisfy particular wishes. There are, for example, occupations which meet erotic desires, either conscious or subconscious ones. These desires may be normal or perverse. Also, fetishists, homosexuals, sadists, and other perverts can sometimes find in their work an opportunity to satisfy their strange appetites. There are occupations which are especially attractive to such people. Cruelty and bloodthirstiness luxuriantly thrive under various occupational cloaks. The various kinds of work offer different conditions for the appearance of the joy of labor. 
These conditions may be, by and large, more homogeneous in classes 1 and 3 than in class 2. It is obvious that they are more rarely present for class 4. The joy of labor can be entirely absent. Psychical factors may eliminate it altogether. On the other hand, one can purposely aim at increasing the joy of labor. Keen discerners of the human soul have always been intent upon enhancing the joy of labor. A great part of the achievements of the organizers and leaders of armies of mercenaries belong to this field. Their task was easy as far as the profession of arms provides the satisfactions of class four. However, these satisfactions do not depend on the arms-bearer's loyalty. They also come to the soldier who leaves his warlord in the lurch and turns against him in the service of new leaders. Thus the particular task of the employers of mercenaries was to promote an esprit de corps and loyalty that could render their hirelings proof against temptations. There were also, of course, chiefs who did not bother about such impalpable matters. In the armies and navies of the eighteenth century, the only means of securing obedience and preventing desertion were barbarous punishments. Modern industrialism was not intent upon designedly increasing the joy of labor. It relied upon the material improvement that it brought to its employees in their capacity as wage earners, as well as in their capacity as consumers and buyers of the products. In view of the fact that job-seekers thronged to the plants and everyone scrambled for the manufactures, there seemed to be no need to resort to special devices. The benefits which the masses derived from the capitalist system were so obvious that no entrepreneur considered it necessary to harangue the workers with pro-capitalist propaganda. Modern capitalism is essentially mass production for the needs of the masses. The buyers of the products are, by and large, the same people who, as wage earners, cooperate in their manufacturing. Rising sales provided dependable information to the employer about the improvement of the masses' standard of living. He did not bother about the feelings of his employees as workers. He was exclusively intent upon serving them as consumers. Even today, in the face of the most persistent and fanatical anti-capitalist propaganda, there is hardly any counter-propaganda. This anti-capitalist propaganda is a systematic scheme for the substitution of tedium for the joy of labor. The joy of labor of classes one and two depends to some extent on ideological factors. The worker rejoices in his place in society and his active cooperation in its productive effort. If one disparages this ideology and replaces it by another which represents the wage earner as the distressed victim of ruthless exploiters, one turns the joy of labor into a feeling of disgust and tedium. No ideology, however impressively emphasized and taught, can affect the disutility of labor. It is impossible to remove or to alleviate it by persuasion or hypnotic suggestion. On the other hand, it cannot be increased by words and doctrines. 
the disutility of labor is a phenomenon unconditionally given. The spontaneous and carefree discharge of one's own energies and vital functions in aimless freedom suits everybody better than the stern restraint of purposive effort. The disutility of labor also pains a man who, with heart and soul, and even with self-denial, is devoted to his work. He, too, is eager to reduce the lump of labor if it can be done without prejudice to the immediate gratification expected, and he enjoys the joy of labor of class three. However, the joy of labor of classes one and two, and sometimes even that of class three, can be eliminated by ideological influences and be replaced by the tedium of labor. The worker begins to hate his work if he becomes convinced that what makes him submit to the disutility of labor is not his own higher valuation of the stipulated compensation, but merely an unfair social system. Deluded by the slogans of the socialist propagandists, he fails to realize that the disutility of labor is an inexorable fact of human conditions, something ultimately given that cannot be removed by devices or methods of social organization. He falls prey to the Marxian fallacy that in a socialist commonwealth work will arouse not pain but pleasure. The fact that the tedium of labor is substituted for the joy of labor affects the valuation neither of the disutility of labor nor of the produce of labor. Both the demand for labor and the supply of labor remain unchanged, for people do not work for the sake of labor's joy, but for the sake of the immediate gratification. What is altered is merely the worker's emotional attitude. His work, his position in the complex of the social division of labor, his relations to other members of society and to the whole of society appear to him in a new light. He pities himself as the defenseless victim of an absurd and unjust system. He becomes an ill-humored grumbler, an unbalanced personality, an easy prey to all sorts of quacks and cranks. To be joyful in the performance of one's tasks and in overcoming the disutility of labor makes people cheerful and strengthens their energies and vital forces. To feel tedium in working makes people morose and neurotic. A commonwealth in which the tedium of labor prevails is an assemblage of rancorous, quarrelsome, and wrathful malcontents. However, with regard to the volitional springs for overcoming the disutility of labor, the role played by the joy and the tedium of labor is merely accidental and supererogatory. There cannot be any question of making people work for the mere sake of the joy of labor. The joy of labor is no substitute for the immediate gratification of labor. The only means of inducing a man to work more and better is to offer him a higher reward. It is vain to bait him with the joy of labor. When the dictators of Soviet Russia, Nazi Germany, and Fascist Italy tried to assign to the joy of labor a definite function in their system of production, they saw their expectations blighted.
Neither the joy nor the tedium of labor can influence the amount of labor offered on the market. As far as these feelings are present with the same intensity in all kinds of work, the case is obvious. But it is the same with regard to joy and tedium which are conditioned by the particular features of the work concerned, or the particular character of the worker. Let us look, for example, at the joy of class four. The eagerness of certain people to get jobs which offer an opportunity for the enjoyment of these particular satisfactions tends to lower wage rates in this field. But it is precisely this effect that makes other people less responsive to these questionable pleasures, prefer other sectors of the labor market in which they can earn more. Thus an opposite tendency develops, which neutralizes the first one. The joy and the tedium of labor are psychological phenomena, which influence neither the individual's subjective valuation of the disutility and the immediate gratification of labor, nor the price paid for labor on the market. 3. Wages Labor is a scarce factor of production. As such, it is sold and bought on the market. The price paid for labor is included in the price allowed for the product or the services if the performer of the work is the seller of the product or the services. If bare labor is sold and bought as such, either by an entrepreneur engaged in production for sale, or by a consumer eager to use the services rendered for his own consumption, the price paid is called wages. For acting man, his own labor is not merely a factor of production, but also the source of disutility. He values it not only with regard to the immediate gratification expected, but also with regard to the disutility it causes. But for him, as for everyone, other people's labor as offered for sale on the market is nothing but a factor of production. Man deals with other people's labor in the same way that he deals with all scarce material factors of production. He appraises it according to the principles he applies in the appraisal of all other goods. The height of wage rates is determined on the market in the same way in which the prices of all commodities are determined. In this sense, we may say that labor is a commodity. The emotional associations which people under the influence of Marxism attach to this term do not matter. It suffices to observe, incidentally, that the employers deal with labor as they do with commodities, because the conduct of the consumers forces them to proceed in this way. It is not permissible to speak of labor and wages in general without resorting to certain restrictions. A uniform type of labor, or a general rate of wages, do not exist. Labor is very different in quality, and each kind of labor renders specific services. Each is appraised as a complementary factor for turning out definite consumers' goods and services. Between the appraisal of the performance of a surgeon and that of a stevedore, there is no direct connection. But indirectly, each sector of the labor market is connected with all other sectors. 
an increase in the demand for surgical services, however great, will not make stevedores flock into the practice of surgery. Yet the lines between the various sectors of the labor market are not sharply drawn. There prevails a continuous tendency for workers to shift from their branch to other similar occupations in which conditions seem to offer better opportunities. Thus, finally, every change in demand or supply in one sector affects all other sectors indirectly. All groups indirectly compete with one another. If more people enter the medical profession, men are withdrawn from kindred occupations, who again are replaced by an inflow of people from other branches, and so on. In this sense, there exists a connexity between all occupational groups, however different the requirements in each of them may be. There again, we are faced with the fact that the disparity in the quality of work needed for the satisfaction of wants is greater than the diversity in men's inborn ability to perform work. Connexity exists not only between different types of labor and the prices paid for them, but no less between labor and the material factors of production. Within certain limits, labor can be substituted for material factors of production, and vice versa. The extent that such substitutions are resorted to depends on the height of wage rates and the prices of material factors. The determination of wage rates, like that of the prices of material factors of production, can be achieved only on the market. There is no such thing as non-market wage rates, just as there are no non-market prices. As far as there are wages, labor is dealt with like any material factor of production, and sold and bought on the market. It is usual to call the sector of the market of producers' goods on which labor is hired the labor market. As with all other sectors of the market, the labor market is actuated by the entrepreneurs, intent upon making profits. Each entrepreneur is eager to buy all the kinds of specific labor he needs for the realization of his plans at the cheapest price. But the wages he offers must be high enough to take the workers away from competing entrepreneurs. The upper limit of his bidding is determined by anticipation of the price he can obtain for the increment in saleable goods he expects from the employment of the worker concerned. The lower limit is determined by the bids of competing entrepreneurs, who themselves are guided by analogous considerations. It is this that economists have in mind in asserting that the height of wage rates for each kind of labor is determined by its marginal productivity. Another way to express the same truth is to say that wage rates are determined by the supply of labor and of material factors of production on the one hand, and by the anticipated future prices of the consumer's goods. This catalactic explanation of the determination of wage rates has been the target of passionate but entirely erroneous attacks. It has been asserted that there is a monopoly of the demand for labor. Most of the supporters of this doctrine think that they have sufficiently proved their case by referring to some incidental remarks of Adam Smith, 
concerning a sort of tacit but constant and uniform combination among employers to keep wages down. Others refer in vague terms to the existence of trade associations of various groups of businessmen. The emptiness of all this talk is evident. However, the fact that these garbled ideas are the main ideological foundation of labor unionism and the labor policy of all contemporary governments makes it necessary to analyze them with the utmost care. The entrepreneurs are in the same position with regard to the sellers of labor as they are with regard to the sellers of the material factors of production. They are under the necessity of acquiring all factors of production at the cheapest price. But if in the pursuit of this endeavor some entrepreneurs, certain groups of entrepreneurs, or all entrepreneurs, offer prices or wage rates which are too low, that is, do not agree with the state of the unhampered market, they will succeed in acquiring what they want to acquire only if entrance into the ranks of entrepreneurship is blocked through institutional barriers. If the emergence of new entrepreneurs or the expansion of the activities of already operating entrepreneurs is not prevented, any drop in the prices of factors of production not consonant with the structure of the market must open new chances for the earning of profits. There will be people eager to take advantage of the margin between the prevailing wage rate and the marginal productivity of labor. Their demand for labor will bring wage rates back to the height conditioned by labor's marginal productivity. The tacit combination among the employers to which Adam Smith referred, even if it existed, could not lower wages below the competitive market rate unless access to entrepreneurship required not only brains and capital, the latter always available to enterprises promising the highest returns, but in addition also an institutional title, a patent or a license reserved to a class of privileged people. It has been asserted that a job seeker must sell his labor at any price, however low, as he depends exclusively on his capacity to work and has no other source of income. He cannot wait and is forced to content himself with any reward the employers are kind enough to offer him. This inherent weakness makes it easy for the concerted action of the masters to lower wage rates. They can, if need be, wait longer, as their demand for labor is not so urgent as the workers' demand for subsistence. The argument is defective. It takes it for granted that the employers pocket the difference between the marginal productivity wage rate and the lower monopoly rate as an extra monopoly gain, and do not pass it on to the consumers in the form of a reduction in prices. For if they were to reduce prices according to the drop in costs of production, they, in their capacity of entrepreneurs and sellers of the products, would derive no advantage from cutting wages. The whole gain would go to the consumers, and thereby also to the wage earners in their capacity as buyers. The entrepreneurs themselves would be benefited only as consumers. 
However, to retain the extra profit resulting from the exploitation of the workers' poor bargaining power would require concerted action on the part of employers in their capacity as sellers of the products. It would require a universal monopoly of all kinds of production activities which can be created only by an institutional restriction of access to entrepreneurship. The essential point of the matter is that the alleged monopolistic combination of the employers, about which Adam Smith and a great part of public opinion speak, would be a monopoly of demand. But we have already seen that such alleged monopolies of demand are in fact monopolies of supply of a particular character, the employers would be in a position enabling them to lower wage rates by concerted action only if they were to monopolize a factor indispensable for every kind of production and to restrict the employment of this factor in a monopolistic way. As there is no single material factor indispensable for every kind of production, they would have to monopolize all material factors of production. This condition would be present only in a socialist community, in which there is neither a market nor prices and wage rates. Neither would it be possible for the proprietors of the material factors of production, the capitalists and the landowners, to combine in a universal cartel against the interests of the workers. The characteristic mark of production activities in the past and in the foreseeable future is that the scarcity of labor exceeds the scarcity of most of the primary, nature-given material factors of production. The comparatively greater scarcity of labor determines the extent to which the comparatively abundant primary natural factors can be utilized. There is unused soil, there are unused mineral deposits, and so on, because there is not enough labor available for their utilization. If the owners of the soil that is tilled today were to form a cartel in order to reap monopoly gains, their plans would be frustrated by the competition of the owners of the submarginal land. The owners of the produced factors of production in their turn could not combine in a comprehensive cartel without the cooperation of the owners of the primary factors. Various other objections have been advanced against the doctrine of the monopolistic exploitation of labor by a tacit or avowed combine of the employers. It has been demonstrated that at no time and at no place in the unhampered market economy can the existence of such cartels be discovered. It has been shown that it is not true that the job-seekers cannot wait and are therefore under the necessity of accepting any wage rates, however low, offered to them by the employers. It is not true that every unemployed worker is faced with starvation. The workers, too, have reserves and can wait. The proof is that they really do wait. On the other hand, waiting can be financially ruinous to the entrepreneurs and capitalists, too. If they cannot employ their capital, they suffer losses. Thus all the disquisitions about an alleged employer's advantage and worker's disadvantage in bargaining are without substance.
But these are secondary and accidental considerations. The central fact is that a monopoly of the demand for labor cannot and does not exist in an unhampered market economy. It could originate only as an outgrowth of institutional restrictions of access to entrepreneurship. Yet one point must be stressed. The doctrine of the monopolistic manipulation of wage rates by the employers speaks of labor as if it were a homogeneous entity. It deals with such concepts as demand for labor in general and supply of labor in general. But such notions have, as has been pointed out already, no counterpart in reality. What is sold and bought on the labor market is not labor in general, but definite, specific labor suitable to render definite services. Each entrepreneur is in search of workers who are fitted to accomplish those specific tasks which he needs for the execution of his plans. He must withdraw these specialists from the employments in which they happen to work at the moment. The only means he has to achieve this is to offer them higher pay. Every innovation which an entrepreneur plans, the production of a new article, the application of a new process of production, the choice of a new location for a specific branch, or simply the expansion of production already in existence, either in his own enterprise or in other enterprises, requires the employment of workers hitherto engaged somewhere else. The entrepreneurs are not merely faced with a shortage of labor in general, but with a shortage of those specific types of labor they need for their plants. The competition among the entrepreneurs in bidding for the most suitable hands is no less keen than their competition in bidding for the required raw materials, tools, and machines, and in their bidding for capital on the capital and loan market. The expansion of the activities of the individual firms, as well as of the whole society, is not only limited by the amount of capital goods available and of the supply of labor in general. In each branch of production it is also limited by the available supply of specialists. This is, of course, only a temporary obstacle, which vanishes in the long run when more workers, attracted by the higher pay of the specialists in comparatively undermanned branches, will have trained themselves for the special tasks concerned. But in the changing economy, such a scarcity of specialists emerges anew daily and determines the conduct of employers in their search for workers. Every employer must aim at buying the factors of production needed, inclusive of labor, at the cheapest price. An employer who paid more than agrees with the market price of the services his employees render him would be soon removed from his entrepreneurial position. On the other hand, an employer who tried to reduce wage rates below the height consonant with the marginal productivity of labor would not recruit the type of men that the most efficient utilization of his equipment requires. There prevails an inevitable tendency for wage rates to reach the point at which they are equal to the price of the marginal product of the kind of labor in question. 
If wage rates drop below this point, the gain derived from the employment of every additional worker will increase the demand for labor and thus make wage rates rise again. If wage rates rise above this point, the loss incurred from the employment of every worker will force the employers to discharge workers. The competition of the unemployed for jobs will create a tendency for wage rates to drop. 4. Catalactic Unemployment If a job seeker cannot obtain the position he prefers, he must look for another kind of job. If he cannot find an employer ready to pay him as much as he would like to earn, he must abate his pretensions. If he refuses, he will not get any job. He remains unemployed. What causes unemployment is the fact that, contrary to the above-mentioned doctrine of the worker's inability to wait, those eager to earn wages can and do wait. A job seeker who does not want to wait will always get a job in the unhampered market economy in which there is always unused capacity of natural resources and, very often, also unused capacity of produced factors of production. It is only necessary for him either to reduce the amount of pay he is asking for or to alter his occupation or his place of work. There were and still are people who work only for some time and then live for another period from the savings they have accumulated by working. In countries in which the cultural state of the masses is low, it is often difficult to recruit workers who are ready to stay on the job. The average man there is so callous and inert that he knows of no other use for his earnings than to buy some leisure time. He works only in order to remain unemployed for some time. It is different in the civilized countries. Here, the worker looks upon unemployment as an evil. He would like to avoid it, provided the sacrifice required is not too grievous. He chooses between employment and unemployment in the same way in which he proceeds in all other actions and choices. He weighs the pros and cons. If he chooses unemployment, this unemployment is a market phenomenon, whose nature is not different from other market phenomena, as they appear in a changing market economy. We may call this kind of unemployment market-generated, or catalactic unemployment. The various considerations which may induce a man to decide for unemployment can be classified in this way. 1. The individual believes that he will find at a later date a remunerative job in his dwelling place and in an occupation which he likes better and for which he has been trained. He seeks to avoid the expenditure and other disadvantages involved in shifting from one occupation to another and from one geographical point to another. There may be special conditions increasing these costs. A worker who owns a homestead is more firmly linked with the place of his residence than people living in rented apartments. A married woman is less mobile than an unmarried girl. Then there are occupations which impair the worker's ability to resume his previous job at a later date. 
A watchmaker who works for some time as a lumberman may lose the dexterity required for his previous job. In all these cases, the individual chooses temporary unemployment because he believes that this choice pays better in the long run. 2. There are occupations the demand for which is subject to considerable seasonal variations. In some months of the year the demand is very intense, in other months it dwindles or disappears altogether. The structure of wage rates discounts these seasonal fluctuations. The branches of industry subject to them can compete on the labor market only if the wages they pay in the good season are high enough to indemnify the wage earners for the disadvantages resulting from the seasonal irregularity in demand. Then, many of the workers, having saved a part of their ample earnings in the good season, remain unemployed in the bad season. 3. The individual chooses temporary unemployment for considerations which, in popular speech, are called non-economic or even irrational. He does not take jobs which are incompatible with his religious, moral, and political convictions. He shuns occupations the exercise of which would impair his social prestige. He lets himself be guided by traditional standards of what is proper for a gentleman and what is unworthy. He does not want to lose face or caste. Unemployment in the unhampered market is always voluntary. In the eyes of the unemployed man, unemployment is the minor of two evils between which he has to choose. The structure of the market may sometimes cause wage rates to drop. But on the unhampered market, there is always for each type of labor a rate at which all those eager to work can get a job. The final wage rate is that rate at which all job seekers get jobs and all employers as many workers as they want to hire. Its height is determined by the marginal productivity of each type of work. Wage rate fluctuations are the device by means of which the sovereignty of the consumers manifests itself on the labor market. They are the measure adopted for the allocation of labor to the various branches of production. They penalize disobedience by cutting wage rates in the comparatively overmanned branches and recompense obedience by raising wage rates in the comparatively undermanned branches. They thus submit the individual to a harsh social pressure, It is obvious that they indirectly limit the individual's freedom to choose his occupation. But this coercion is not rigid. It leaves to the individual a margin in the limits of which he can choose between what suits him better and what less. Within this orbit he is free to act of his own accord. This amount of freedom is the maximum of freedom that an individual can enjoy in the framework of the social division of labor, and this amount of coercion is the minimum of coercion that is indispensable for the preservation of the system of social cooperation. There is only one alternative left to the catalactic pressure exercised by the wages system the assignment of occupations and jobs to each individual by the peremptory decrees of an authority, 
a central board planning all production activities. This is tantamount to the suppression of all freedom. It is true that under the wages system, the individual is not free to choose permanent unemployment. But no other imaginable social system could grant him a right to unlimited leisure. That man cannot avoid submitting to the disutility of labor is not an outgrowth of any social institution. It is an inescapable natural condition of human life and conduct. It is not expedient to call catalactic unemployment in a metaphor borrowed from mechanics frictional unemployment. In the imaginary construction of the evenly rotating economy, there is no unemployment, because we have based this construction on such an assumption. Unemployment is a phenomenon of a changing economy. The fact that a worker discharged on account of changes occurring in the arrangement of production processes does not instantly take advantage of every opportunity to get another job but waits for a more propitious opportunity, is not a consequence of the tardiness of the adjustment to the change in conditions, but is one of the factors slowing down the pace of this adjustment. It is not an automatic reaction to the changes which have occurred, independent of the will and the choices of the job-seekers concerned, but the effect of their intentional actions. It is speculative, not Frictional. Catalactic unemployment must not be confused with institutional unemployment. Institutional unemployment is not the outcome of the decisions of the individual job seekers. It is the effect of interference with the market phenomena intent upon enforcing by coercion and compulsion wage rates higher than those the unhampered market would have determined. The treatment of institutional unemployment belongs to the analysis of the problems of interventionism. 5. Gross Wage Rates and Net Wage Rates What the employer buys on the labor market and what he gets in exchange for the wages paid is always a definite performance, which he appraises according to its market price. The customs and usages prevailing on the various sectors of the labor market do not influence the prices paid for definite quantities of specific performances. Gross wage rates always tend toward the point at which they are equal to the price for which the increment resulting from the employment of the marginal worker can be sold on the market due allowance being made for the price of the required materials and to originary interest on the capital needed. In weighing the pros and cons of the hiring of workers, the employer does not ask himself what the worker gets as take-home wages. The only relevant question for him is, what is the total price I have to expend for securing the services of this worker? In speaking of the determination of wage rates, catalactics always refers to the total price which the employer must spend for a definite quantity of work of a definite type, that is, to gross wage rates. If laws or business customs force the employer to make other expenditures besides the wages he pays to the employee, 
the take-home wages are reduced accordingly. Such accessory expenditures do not affect the gross rate of wages. Their incidence falls entirely upon the wage earner. Their total amount reduces the height of take-home wages, that is, of net wage rates. It is necessary to realize the following consequences of this state of affairs. 1. It does not matter whether wages are time wages or piecework wages. Also, where there are time wages, the employer takes only one thing into account, namely the average performance he expects to obtain from each worker employed. His calculation discounts all the opportunities time work offers to shirkers and cheaters. He discharges workers who do not perform the minimum expected. On the other hand, a worker eager to earn more must either shift to piecework or seek a job in which pay is higher because the minimum of achievement expected is greater. Neither does it matter on an unhampered labor market whether time wages are paid daily, weekly, monthly, or as annual wages. It does not matter whether the time allowed for notice of discharge is longer or shorter, whether agreements are made for definite periods or for the worker's lifetime, whether the employee is entitled to retirement and a pension for himself, his widow, and his orphans, to paid or unpaid vacations, to certain assistance in case of illness or invalidism, or to any other benefits and privileges. The question the employer faces is always the same. Does it or does it not pay for me to enter into such a contract? Don't I pay too much for what I am getting in return? 2. Consequently, the incidence of all so-called social burdens and gains ultimately falls upon the workers' net wage rates. It is irrelevant whether or not the employer is entitled to deduct the contributions to all kinds of social security from the wages he pays in cash to the employee. At any rate, these contributions burden the employee, not the employer. 3. The same holds true with regard to taxes on wages. Here, too, it does not matter whether the employer has or has not the right to deduct them from take-home wages. 4. Neither is a shortening of the hours of work a free gift to the worker. If he does not compensate for the shorter hours of work by increasing his output accordingly, time wages will drop correspondingly. If the law decreeing a shortening of the hours of work prohibits such a reduction in wage rates, all the consequences of a government-decreed rise in wage rates appear. The same is valid with a regard to all other so-called social gains, such as paid vacations, and so on. 5. If the government grants to the employer a subsidy for the employment of certain classes of workers, their take-home wages are increased by the total amount of such a subsidy. 6. If the authorities grant to every employed worker whose own earnings lag behind a certain minimum standard an allowance raising his income to this minimum, the height of wage rates is not directly affected. 
Indirectly, a drop in wage rates could possibly result as far as this system could induce people who did not work before to seek jobs, and thus bring about an increase in the supply of labor. In the last years of the 18th century, amidst the distress produced by the protracted war with France and the inflationary methods of financing it, England resorted to this makeshift, the Spienhamland system. The real aim was to prevent agricultural workers from leaving their jobs and going into the factories where they could earn more. The Spienhamland system was thus a disguised subsidy for the landed gentry, saving them the expense of higher wages. 6. Wages and Subsistence The life of primitive man was an unceasing struggle against the scantiness of the nature-given means for his sustenance. In this desperate effort to secure bare survival, many individuals and whole families, tribes, and races succumbed. Primitive man was always haunted by the specter of death from starvation. Civilization has freed us from these perils. Human life is menaced day and night by innumerable dangers. It can be destroyed at any instant by natural forces which are beyond control, or at least cannot be controlled at the present stage of our knowledge and our potentialities. But the horror of starvation no longer terrifies people living in a capitalist society. He who is able to work earns much more than is needed for bare sustenance. There are also, of course, disabled people who are incapable of work. Then there are invalids who can perform a small quantity of work, but their disability prevents them from earning as much as normal workers do. Sometimes the wage rates they could earn are so low that they could not maintain themselves. These people can keep body and soul together only if other people help them. The next of kin friends, the charity of benefactors and endowments, and communal poor relief take care of the destitute. Almsfolk do not cooperate in the social process of production. As far as the provision of the means for the satisfaction of wants is concerned, they do not act. They live because other people look after them. The problems of poor relief are problems of the arrangement of consumption, not of the arrangement of production activities. They are, as such, beyond the frame of a theory of human action which refers only to the provision of the means required for consumption, not to the way in which these means are consumed. Catalactic theory deals with the methods adopted for the charitable support of the destitute only as far as they can possibly affect the supply of labor. It has sometimes happened that the policies applied in poor relief have encouraged unwillingness to work and the idleness of able-bodied adults. In the capitalist society there prevails a tendency toward a steady increase in the per capita quota of capital invested. The accumulation of capital soars above the increase in population figures. Consequently, the marginal productivity of labor, wage rates, and the wage earner's standard of living tend to rise continually. 
But this improvement in well-being is not the manifestation of the operation of an inevitable law of human evolution. It is a tendency resulting from the interplay of forces which can freely produce their effects only under capitalism. It is possible, and if we take into account the direction of present-day policies, even not unlikely, that capital consumption on the one hand, and an increase or an insufficient drop in population figures on the other hand, will reverse things. Then it could happen that men will again learn literally what starvation means and that the relation of the quantity of capital goods available and population figures will become so unfavorable as to make part of the workers earn less than a bare subsistence. The mere approach to such conditions would certainly cause irreconcilable dissensions within society, conflicts the violence of which must result in a complete disintegration of all societal bonds. The social division of labor cannot be preserved if part of the cooperating members of society are doomed to earn less than a bare subsistence. The notion of a physiological minimum of subsistence to which the iron law of wages refers, and which demagogues put forward again and again, is of no use for a catalactic theory of the determination of wage rates. One of the foundations upon which social cooperation rests is the fact that labor performed according to the principle of the division of labor is so much more productive than the efforts of isolated individuals that able-bodied people are not troubled by the fear of starvation which daily threatened their forebears. Within a capitalist commonwealth, the minimum of subsistence plays no catalactic role. Furthermore, the notion of a physiological minimum of subsistence lacks that precision and scientific rigor which people have ascribed to it. Primitive man, adjusted to a more animal-like than human existence, could keep himself alive under conditions which are literally unbearable to his dainty scions pampered by capitalism. There is no such thing as a physiologically and biologically determined minimum of subsistence, valid for every specimen of the zoological species Homo sapiens. No more tenable is the idea that a definite quantity of calories is needed to keep a man healthy and progenitive, and a further definite quantity to replace the energy expended in working. The appeal to such notions of cattle breeding and the vivisection of guinea pigs does not aid the economist in his endeavors to comprehend the problems of purposive human action. The iron law of wages and the essentially identical Marxian doctrine of the determination of the value of labor power by the working time necessary for its production, consequently also for its reproduction, are the least tenable of all that has ever been taught in the field of catalactics. Yet it was possible to attach some meaning to the ideas implied in the iron law of wages. If one sees in the wage earner merely a chattel, and believes that he plays no other role in society, 
if one assumes that he aims at no other satisfaction than feeding and proliferation, and does not know of any employment for his earnings other than the procurement of those animal satisfactions, one may consider the iron law as a theory of the determination of wage rates. In fact, the classical economists, frustrated by their abortive value theory, could not think of any other solution of the problem involved. For Torrens and Ricardo, the theorem that the natural price of labor is the price which enables the wage earners to subsist and to perpetuate their race, without any increase or diminution, was the logically inescapable inference from their untenable value theory. But when their epigones saw that they could no longer satisfy themselves with this manifestly preposterous law, they resorted to a modification of it, which was tantamount to a complete abandonment of any attempt to provide an economic explanation of the determination of wage rates. They tried to preserve the cherished notion of the minimum of subsistence by substituting the concept of a social minimum for the concept of a physiological minimum. They no longer spoke of the minimum required for the necessary subsistence of the laborer and for the preservation of an undiminished supply of labor. They spoke instead of the minimum required for the preservation of a standard of living sanctified by historical tradition and inherited customs and habits. While daily experience taught impressively that under capitalism real wage rates and the wage earner's standard of living were steadily rising, while it became from day to day more obvious that the traditional walls separating the various strata of the population could no longer be preserved, because the social improvement in the conditions of the industrial workers demolished the vested ideas of social rank and dignity, these doctrinaires announce that old customs and social convention determine the height of wage rates. Only people blinded by preconceived prejudices and party bias could resort to such an explanation in an age in which industry supplies the consumption of the masses again and again with new commodities hitherto unknown and makes accessible to the average worker satisfactions of which no king could dream in the past. It is not especially remarkable that the Prussian historical school of the Wirtschaftliche Staatswissenschaften viewed wage rates no less than commodity prices and interest rates as historical categories, and that in dealing with wage rates it had recourse to the concept of income adequate to the individual's hierarchical station in the social scale of ranks. It was the essence of the teachings of this school to deny the existence of economics and to substitute history for it. But it is amazing that Marx and the Marxians did not recognize that their endorsement of this spurious doctrine entirely disintegrated the body of the so-called Marxian system of economics. When the articles and dissertations published in England in the early sixties convinced Marx that it was no longer permissible to cling unswervingly to the wage theory of the classical economists, he modified his theory of the value of labor power. 
He declared that the extent of the so-called natural wants and the manner in which they are satisfied are in themselves a product of historical evolution and depend to a large extent on the degree of civilization attained by any given country and, among other factors, especially on the conditions and customs and pretensions concerning the standard of life under which the class of free laborers has been formed. Thus, a historical and moral element enter into the determination of the value of labor power. But when Marx adds that nonetheless, for a given country at any given time, the average quantity of indispensable necessaries of life is a given fact, he contradicts himself and misleads the reader. What he has in mind is no longer the indispensable necessaries, but the things considered indispensable from a traditional point of view, the means necessary for the preservation of a standard of living adequate to the worker's station in the traditional social hierarchy. The recourse to such an explanation means virtually the renunciation of any economic or catalactic elucidation of the determination of wage rates. Wage rates are explained as a datum of history. They are no longer seen as a market phenomenon, but as a factor originating outside of the interplay of the forces operating on the market. However, even those who believe that the height of wage rates as they are actually paid and received in reality are forced upon the market from without, as a datum, cannot avoid developing a theory which explains the determination of wage rates as the outcome of the valuations and decisions of the consumers. Without such a catalactic theory of wages, no economic analysis of the market can be complete and logically satisfactory. It is simply nonsensical to restrict the catalactic disquisitions to the problems of the determination of commodity prices and interest rates, and to accept wage rates as a historical datum. An economic theory worthy of the name must be in a position to assert with regard to wage rates more than that they are determined by a historical and moral element. The characteristic mark of economics is that it explains the exchange ratios manifested in market transactions as market phenomena, the determination of which is subject to a regularity in the concatenation and sequence of events. It is precisely this that distinguishes economic conception from the historical understanding, theory from history. We can well imagine a historical situation in which the height of wage rates is forced upon the market by the interference of external compulsion and coercion. Such institutional fixing of wage rates is one of the most important features of our age of interventionist policies. But with regard to such a state of affairs, it is the task of economics to investigate what effects are brought about by the disparity between the two wage rates the potential rate which the unhampered market would have produced by the interplay of the supply of and the demand for labor on the one hand, and on the other the rate which external compulsion and coercion impose upon the parties to the market transactions.
It is true wage earners are imbued with the idea that wages must be at least high enough to enable them to maintain a standard of living adequate to their station in the hierarchical gradation of society. Every single worker has his particular opinion about the claims he is entitled to raise on account of status, rank, tradition, and custom, in the same way as he has his particular opinion about his own efficiency and his own achievements. But such pretensions and self-complacent assumptions are without any relevance for the determination of wage rates. They limit neither the upward nor the downward movement of wage rates. The wage earner must sometimes satisfy himself with much less than what, according to his opinion, is adequate to his rank and efficiency. If he is offered more than he expected, he pockets the surplus without a qualm. The age of laissez-faire for which the iron law and Marx's doctrine of the historically determined formation of wage rates claim validity, witnessed a progressive, although sometimes temporarily interrupted, tendency for real wage rates to rise. The wage earner's standard of living rose to a height unprecedented in history and never thought of in earlier periods. The labor unions pretend that nominal wage rates at least must always be raised in accordance with the changes occurring in the monetary unit's purchasing power, in such a way as to secure to the wage earner the unabated enjoyment of the previous standard of living. They raise these claims also with regard to wartime conditions and the measures adopted for the financing of war expenditure. In their opinion, even in wartime, neither inflation nor the withholding of income taxes must affect the workers' take-home real wage rates. This doctrine tacitly implies the thesis of the Communist Manifesto that the working men have no country and have nothing to lose but their chains. Consequently, they are neutral in the wars waged by the bourgeois exploiters, and do not care whether their nation conquers or is conquered. It is not the task of economics to scrutinize these statements. It only has to establish the fact that it does not matter what kind of justification is advanced in favor of the enforcement of wage rates higher than those the unhampered labor market would have determined. If, as a result of such claims, real wage rates are really raised above the height consonant with the marginal productivity of the various types of labor concerned, the unavoidable consequences must appear without any regard to the underlying philosophy. The same is valid with regard to the confused doctrine that wage earners are entitled to claim for themselves all the benefits derived from improvements in what union officers call the productivity of labor. On the unhampered labor market, wage rates always tend toward the point at which they coincide with the marginal productivity of labor. The concept of the productivity of labor in general is no less empty than all other universal concepts of this kind. For example, the concept of the value of iron or gold in general. To speak of the productivity of labor in a sense other than that of the marginal productivity is meaningless. 
What these Union officers have in mind is an ethical justification of their policies. However, the economic consequences of these policies are not affected by the pretexts advanced in their favor. Wage rates are ultimately determined by the value which the wage earner's fellow citizens attach to his services and achievements. Labor is appraised like a commodity, not because the entrepreneurs and capitalists are hard-hearted and callous, but because they are unconditionally subject to the supremacy of the pitiless consumers. The consumers are not prepared to satisfy anybody's pretensions, presumptions, and self-conceit. They want to be served in the cheapest way. A Comparison Between the Historical Explanation of Wage Rates and the Regression Theorem It may be useful to compare the doctrine of Marxism and the Prussian historical school, according to which wage rates are a historical datum and not a catalactic phenomenon, with the regression theorem of money's purchasing power. The regression theorem establishes the fact that no good can be employed for the function of a medium of exchange which, at the very beginning of its use for this purpose, did not have exchange value on account of other employments. This fact does not substantially affect the daily determination of money's purchasing power as it is produced by the interplay of the supply of and the demand for money on the part of people intent upon keeping cash. The regression theorem does not assert that any actual exchange ratio between money on the one hand and commodities and services on the other hand is a historical datum not dependent on today's market situation. It merely explains how a new kind of media of exchange can come into use and remain in use. In this sense, it says that there is a historical component in money's purchasing power. It is quite different with the Marxian and Prussian theorem. As this doctrine sees it, the actual height of wage rates as it appears on the market is a historical datum. The valuations of the consumers, who immediately are the buyers of labor, and those of the wage earners, the sellers of labor, are of no avail. Wage rates are fixed by historical events of the past. They can neither rise above nor drop below this height. The fact that wage rates are today higher in Switzerland than in China can be explained only by history, just as only history can explain why Napoleon I became a Frenchman and not an Italian, an emperor and not a Corsican lawyer. It is impossible, in the explanation of the discrepancy between the wage rates of shepherds or of bricklayers in these two countries, to resort to factors unconditionally in operation on every market. An explanation can only be provided by the history of these two nations.